The following is a conversation with Michael Malice and Yaron Brook, Michael's third time on this podcast and Yaron's second, but together for the first time. Michael is an anarchist, political thinker, host of a podcast called You're Welcome, and author of Dear Reader, The New Right, and two upcoming books, Anarchist Handbook and The White Pill. Yaron is an objectivist philosopher, chairman of the Ayn Rand Institute, host of the Yaron Brook Show, and co-author of The Free Market Revolution and Equal is Unfair. Quick mention of our sponsors, Ground News, Public Goods, Athletic Greens, Brave, and Four Sigmatic. Check them out in the description to support this podcast. As a side note, let me say that this conversation is a kind of experiment. Both Michael and Yaron are thoughtful and passionate, united in part by an interest in the history and philosophy of Ayn Rand, but they are also very different in style. Good conversation, like good food, is often made delicious by pairing of contrasting elements. For example, someone suggested I try a peanut butter, bacon, and banana sandwich, which apparently is very good. Among the three of us, I don't know who's the peanut butter, who's the bacon, and who's the banana. I'm guessing it's probably me. I'm the banana. But I hope the final result, the final dish, if you will, is equally delicious. We talked through, I think, a lot of interesting ideas, sometimes disagreeing, sometimes even, in rare cases, saying something humorous, including dark humor, especially in Michael's case. All three of us are sensitive to the suffering in the world today and throughout human history. We think about it, we talk about it, and we deal with it in different ways. Be patient with us. Whether you agree, disagree, enjoy, or dislike the result, I hope if you listen, you're a wiser person on the other end of it. I know I was. Mostly, I really enjoyed this conversation because no matter what Michael and Yaron believe, underneath it all, they're genuine, kind human beings that I'm lucky to be able to hang out with and learn from. As usual, I'll do a few minutes of ads now, no ads in the middle. I try to make these interesting, but I give you timestamps so you can skip. But if you do, please still check out the sponsors by clicking the links in the description. It is the best way to support this podcast. I'm very picky about the sponsors we take on. So hopefully if you buy their stuff, you'll find value in it just as I have. This show is sponsored by a new sponsor, a really interesting one, called Ground News, an apolitical news website that helps me get all perspectives on a story and analyze my blind spots politically. They draw from 50,000 outlets across the world and across the political spectrum. The point is to see every side and come to your own conclusions. This approach, I think, is the future of news. Whether Ground News succeeds as a company I don't know, but I really hope they do, so please do support them. But in general, as with my conversation with Max Tagmark, for example, these guys give me hope that there's a technological solution to uh, make it more frictionless for us to consider alternative perspectives, to challenge our own worldviews, to detect blind spots through analysis, but also through a nice interface. I think these guys do a great job of it, so worth supporting. Try them out by signing up at ground.news slash lex. It's inexpensive, so definitely worth it. But more importantly, just like I said, subscribing to them shows your support for people who are trying to fix the problem. I think clickbait journalism 
And the state of the media today is definitely a big problem in public discourse. Go to ground.news slash lex to sign up and show your support. This show is sponsored by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for affordable, sustainable, healthy household products. I use their hand soap, toothpaste, and toothbrush, and I think a bunch of other stuff. Their products often have a minimalist black and white design that I find to be just beautiful. It warms my soul. I recently gave away almost everything I own as a kind of regular act of minimalism and stoicism that I practice. So almost anytime I move, I really make a deliberate action to give away almost everything I have. I think financially in the short term, this can be quite painful, but uh, psychologically, it's truly liberating. It really forces your mind to focus on what is important in life. Anyway, go to publicgoods.com slash Lex or use code Lex at checkout to get 15 bucks off your first order. Plus, you'll receive your first choice of either a free pack of bamboo straws or reusable food storage wraps. Visit publicgoods.com slash Lex or use code Lex at checkout. They are testing our podcast this month, so this is a good time to try them out if you're interested. Cool design, good products, I'm happy. See what you think. This show is sponsored by the thing that fuels most days for me, Athletic Greens, the all-in-one daily drink to support better health and peak performance. It replaced the multivitamin for me and went far beyond that with 75 vitamins and minerals. It's the first thing I drink every day, and I actually have been drinking two a day. For me, it tastes good. It makes me feel good. It builds a very basic base of nutrition on top of which I can do whatever the heck I want in terms of both exercise and all the crazy brisket, delicious brisket, incredible barbecue that I've been eating in Texas. I've been pigging out. I'm not sure any of it is good for me, but I know I feel good. Actually, I'm pretty sure the brisket is pretty good, but on top of that, the thing I've been doing that's not probably good for me is all the whiskey I've been drinking. It's good for the soul, maybe not so good for the body. That's where Athletic Greens steps in and helps out. I can still feel good doing all the crazy hours of work that I'm doing. Anyway, they're also giving you a one month supply of fish oil, which I also take, I think is essential. Check them out at athleticgreens.com slash Lex. That's athleticgreens.com slash Lex for the drink and the fish oil. Trust me, it's awesome. You will not regret it. This show is also sponsored by Brave, a fast privacy-preserving browser that feels like Google Chrome, but without ads or the various kinds of tracking that ads can do. I love using it. It's become my favorite browser, better than Chrome. Yes, I still love Chrome, but this is even better than Chrome because it's super fast. You can tell the amount of incredible engineering that's gone into it. The philosophy behind it is really interesting. I think it has a potential to just revolutionize the way people pay for attention on the internet. It's giving power back to the consumer, to the individual. You should check out my conversation with Brendan Eich, the guy who created uh, JavaScript, created Mozilla and Firefox. Brilliant guy. Brave, I think, has a chance to be even more revolutionary than that. Of course, despite all the hate that JavaScript has gotten over the years, I've always loved it. I love it even more now. I choose to focus on the beautiful aspects of things. And JavaScript, I do think, has beautiful things to it. Now, some of you may be deeply upset by me saying this, but I actually find beautiful things in PHP as well. I think if something is useful, it's also beautiful. Function is beauty, my friends. 
Anyway, get the browser at brave.com slash Lex. It might become your favorite browser too. That's brave.com slash Lex. Check them out, support them. It's good for the internet. It's gonna be good for you. This show is also sponsored by Four Sigmatic, the maker of delicious mushroom coffee and plant-based protein. By the way, I heard uh, Cal Newport do a read on his podcast called Deep Questions that you should definitely check out for Four Sigmatic. He loves them too. You may be asking, does the coffee taste like mushrooms? It does not. It tastes delicious, which is all that matters. Well, actually, two things matter. Does it make you feel good? Yes. Does it taste good? Yes. Okay, there we go. So if you want to partake in the performance-enhancing chemical that is caffeine, you should definitely be drinking Four Sigmatic. Get up to 40% off and free shipping on mushroom coffee bundles if you go to foursigmatic.com slash Lex. That's foursigmatic.com slash Lex. And remember to check out Cal Newport's podcast, both for the coffee recommendations, but also the productivity that maybe you'll actually be getting some sleep if you follow his productivity advice. Unlike me, when I rarely have my stuff together, I just take the leap into the madness and love every moment of it. But when I grow up, I want to be like Cal Newport. Anyway, foursigmatic.com slash Lex. I don't remember if I said that, but there you go. There it is. This is the Lex Friedman podcast, and here is my conversation with Michael Malice and Yaron Brook. I've been a huge fan of the two of you for the longest time. Are we that... recording now? Is it starting? Or are you just talking? I'm not recording he, at he's all. He's not going to compliment us if it's yes, not part of all the, the show. Yes, he does. All the time. He very, speaks very highly of me. You, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> yeah, he's being I'm charitable. Sure. He only does this to me on the show. Objectivists don't like charity, so don't compliment him. He won't, he won't think it's sincere. There you go. <laughs> so it's, it's an incredible honor that the both of you would show up here. Uh, if we, let me just ask this sort of uh, profound philosophical question. How well do you think we would get along if we were stuck in a desert island together? What, what would life be like? I thought the original question you had that you you, you sent us this question yeah. was how long would it take for us to murder one another or something like that? There was murder in the question, if I remember. I, I Listen, <laughs> he sent us homework, right? All these questions. I, I ignored it. I, I didn't spend four years at Patrick Henry University to do homework. <laughs> to answer your question, I think it would be very easy for us to live together in a desert island in terms of interpersonal, I know, a lot, and I say this because I know a lot of people who have been the show Survivor. So they, and I know a little bit about the dynamics. So when you have people who are intelligent, who are going to have the same goals, uh, it, it, I mean, and there's space to go away if I'm annoyed at you, I don't think it would be that hard at all. What's our goals on a desert island? Food, shelter. Survival. Survival. Survival, yeah. basically. And it's survival and getting out of there, right? You don't want to stay on the desert island. So uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think... I think that's true of any three, you know, even semi-rational people who, uh, you know, who basically share the goal that they want to survive, they want to thrive, they want to get off of the island. Uh, why would there be conflict? Yeah. Well, I mean, there would be conflict, but and there can be conflict, but they'd, they'd find ways to deal with it. I, I don't have this negative view of human beings, particularly not as individuals. It's it's when they get into mobs and groups and collectives that uh, ideology can really motivate them to do horrible things. One of the things that really drives me crazy is how sinister an impact the book Lord of the Flies has had yes, on our culture. I read it in high school. It's a, it's a superb book. That's not even a question, but it's not accurate. We see in 
many situations where people are trapped together under difficult circumstances, obviously that book's about children, that very quickly, it is not about conflict. It very quickly becomes about cooperation. Uh, let's work together. We all have the same goal. This is not a time to worry about other things. It really, the human beings, it, the, the animal instinct that kicks in is the social animal and I'm going to shut up and go over there and have a, a, like stop my feet instead of arguing with your own because we're really trapped in the situation and we need to make it work. Well, and to the extent that they're bad people, bad people are dealt with, right? So this is true of all of, you know, how did we survive as a species, right? How have we survived as a species? We've been on a desert island, in a sense, as a species forever. Uh, tribes survived. They survived by cooperation. They survived by dealing with with bad people. Civilization is created by people cooperating and working together and and allowing individuals to thrive within within the group. And when uh, when bad people arise, they deal with them, right? They, they now sometimes these groups get captured by bad people, right? And and bad ideas and probably from day one that was going on, right? The whole the whole tribe is probably a bad idea to begin with. But you know, underneath it all. The fact is that to survive as a species, we need to we need to think, we need to to be rational. And uh, if if we don't have any respect for reason, then we'll, we would all die. We would die off. So that that's a hopeful message. But where does that go wrong? So with three people, we might get along. We would focus on the basics of life. We have oh, similar easy. goals. Uh, once women are introduced, <laughs> their incessant irrationalism. No, no. <laughs> and look, also their hormones. Look, or SOL. <laughs> look, three of, three of us on the desert island would be nice, but without women, it wouldn't be fun. Um, I'm going to edit out half the things I, Michael said through this podcast. As, as, you, as you know, I used to run the Ayn Rand Institute. She, she was a woman last time I looked. Oh, wait a minute. And, 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 you, know, you know exactly yeah, what yeah. I'm going to say. Yeah, yeah. When Ludwig von Mises, or Hazlitt, yes. I don't know who it was, oh, it was, Mises, was Mises was praising Ayn Rand and some I think it was Hazlitt who said it to her. He said, Ludwig von Mises said, You're the smartest man I've ever met. And Ayn Rand said, Did he say man? Right? <laughs> no, she viewed it as a compliment. Uh, right, but she was she, she wanted to be compliment. clear that he said oh, man. Yeah, she absolutely. was excited. Yes. Absolutely. But, <laughs> she was excited, uh, but she was yes. I took it as her perceiving him as seeing her as a full equal. Oh, I I, I think that's right. Yeah. I think that's right. Plus, plus I think the 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 perception out there, the perception in the culture of man as being rational. You know, was was a compliment and to her because also, that was that was a re, re, affirm, affirming that he viewed her as a rational. Yeah, because Mises is old school. He's an you oh, know, yeah. older Eastern European guy, so he would definitely have these yeah. rigid views of the like his wife. I read her um, autobiography, Margit von Mises, and basically he made her his secretary to the point where like if he's typing something or he had something handwritten, she had to type it out. And if she made a typo, he would tear up the page. You have to start from the beginning. Sure. But it's like, that's the, this is the role of the man. This is yeah. the role of the woman. So for him to regard her, this was kind of a breaking through moment. Not that she was secretly, you know, um, misogynist. So, so I think we go wrong when people try to understand the world around them and come up with wrong ideas. And, and it, it's, it's, it's natural that they would come up with wrong ideas because it's hard to figure out what's right. So we start with trying to come up with mystical explanations for the for the for the existence of the things around us uh, and that i think very quickly leads to some people being able to communicate with the mystical stuff out there and some people not being able to communicate and some people wanting to control other people and using those pseudo explanations as a way to control so you always have uh, rand called it attila and the witch doctor you always have a witch doctor the mystic, mm -hmm. the, the the philosopher, the the intellectual, yeah. the philosopher, 
you know, king is a, a unity of the, and you have an Attila, you have somebody who wants to control other people, who's willing to use force to control other people. And when those two get together, that's when things go bad. And unfortunately, 95, 98% of human history is when those two are together. And, uh, and, and so the, the, the not having them together, having the right ideas, and the right ideas are ones that are not exclusive to those guys, and where we don't allow Attila to have that kind of physical power over us, that's an exception, and that's rare, and that's, that's what needs to be defended. Yeah. Stalin's not personally killing people. Hitler's not personally killing people. Charles Manson's not personally killing people. They need their goons. They need their goons, but they're also, they don't, they don't have original ideas. Nothing Stalin says is original to him, right? He needs a Marx, even Lenin, sure. right? He, they all need a Marx, right? They all, and Marx needs a, a particular line of thinkers that come before him that, uh, that set him up for these kind of ideas. So, so he, uh, Stalin both needs his goons, even though he's somewhat of a goon, particularly Stalin. Yeah, he was a bank robber, yeah. yeah. And then, uh, so take Lenin. Lenin, I think, is a better example because Lenin's more intellectual, if you will. But Lenin needs his goons. He needs his Stalins. But Lenin also needs his Marx. And we, we don't want to let Marx off the hook because Marx knows, I think, implicitly that his ideas have to lean, lead to Lenin and Stalin. His I, ideas are not neutral. I don't think it's implicit at all. I think Marx very much yes. gl glorified <laughs> revolution, right. blood and terror. This is not implicit in no, the No, absolutely. I mean, there are letters between him and Engels where they talk about which peoples will be have to be eliminated because they don't have that proletarian yeah, yeah. thing, right? So so I think the, the, the certain certain peoples uh, in Southern Europe are not appropriate for, 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 for the utopia to come and will have to be gone. And, and Marx also had this concept Concept, which we still see today in, in in garbled ways of polylogism, which is if you're a capitalist and I'm bourgeois or I'm a worker, you just your logic is different than mine. It's mm -hmm. literally going to be impossible for us to communicate. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, you're going to have to be liquidated. And they pretend that doesn't mean murdered, but it means murdered. Yeah. And very quickly, everyone becomes a capitalist or bourgeois. And then, then you have you know the the Holodomor and things like this. No, he knows exactly where it's going to lead, and and this is why. You know, people say, oh, Marx is not evil. He just wrote books. No, <laughs> it's the people who write books who are responsible for the way people uh, history evolves. And they know, they know, the bad guys certainly know uh, the consequence of their ideas. And uh, and they need to bear the moral responsibility for what, what happens when the ideas are implemented. Here's a wait. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Because I, I think I know more about Rand than Yaron does. So let's oh. see. Okay. The gauntlet has like, been thrown down. Who, who did Ayn Rand say is the most evil man who ever lived? Immanuel Kant. That's right. Correct. No, okay. that I know. I mean, okay. yeah, so <laughs> it's, a, it's a big deal that Immanuel Kant is, and, it, and most people don't understand why, because if you read Kant, there's certain passages in Kant that sound pretty liberal. They sound pretty, he's, he's for the individual. It sounds like he's for the individual. He sounds like he's for Conscious. the American Revolution, yep. Yep. things like that. But when you, when you actually read his philosophy and what he's trying to defend and what he's trying to undermine, He's trying to undermine the foundations that make the revolution possible, that make freedom and individualism possible. He's trying to destroy the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment is, are those ideas that make freedom, individualism uh, feasible. He's trying to undermine reason. And without reason, we're nothing. We're, we're, we're not, we can't survive as a species. So, And that's why she uh, thought he was the most evil person, because uh, his ideas undermine the very foundations of what it requires to be a human being reason and individualism. Those are the things he's trying to eviscerate. I know you've you've talked about Hoffman before. So Hoffman is a modern day attempt 
to Donald Hoffman. Donald Hoffman. Donald Hoffman is the University of, of California Irvine uh, neurologist, uh, neuroscientist, something like that. So I met him once, and uh, we were at, at, at these, one of these conferences where you do a quick intro. You sit and you do a quick intro. His introduction was, I've just written a book that proves that evolution has conditioned us not to see reality. Okay, that is very Kantian. Yeah, and he is basically just presenting pseudoscience to defend Kant's position about uh, epistemology and about and about metaphysics. And there's nothing there's nothing original there. And he puts up a bunch of equations, and he says, "I ran a simulation, and it proves I'm right." So uh, Yaron is a little bit frustrated uh, with Donald Hoffman's work. Let me uh, not let frustrated. Me... I just think it's completely wrong, and it is. And it's it's anti-life, anti-mind, anti-evolution. Mm -hmm. I think he's an anti-evolutionist at the end. And I think it, you know, anytime you say, look, here's the important point. Anytime you say reality doesn't exist. Or that you well, can't perceive it. Yeah. Well, who are you? Yeah, yeah. What do you mean by reality? What do any of your words mean? What does anything you say even mean if it doesn't refer to something that's well, actually out there in reality? Let me try to defend this point of view because in, in, a, in a certain kind of sense, I hear it as a, being humble in the face of the uncertainty that's around us. Sort of, uh, you know, when you speak with the confidence of Ayn Rand and, and yourself, that reason can be like this weapon that cuts through all the bullshit of the world and makes us like have an ethical, moral life and all those kinds of things, you kind of assume that uh, reason is a superpower that has no limits. Wait, oh, hold on. Hold on, you, hold on a second. Okay, but, but I got this one. <laughs> see this is already leading to uh murder by words yeah <laughs> and we've been only maybe talking for 20 minutes together <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't get along together no, we, we on an island him, we yeah. just make him our slave <laughs> <laughs> we're all gonna get along he's just gonna do the work but i'm afraid i, I cannot <laughs> provide any value as a slave so this is this is not gonna end well we for me provide, we provide value as dinner <laughs> <laughs> that's the problem i'm trying to get that's to. a solution <laughs> uh what was okay but Donald Hoffman says that there is, uh, like, he, he he makes an argument that the exactly as you said that the the what we perceive uh, is not is very very far from actual physical reality. In fact, we're not able to perceive uh, the of physical reality at all. And he also makes the bigger claim that evolution uh, prefers beings who are not attached to reality. So like evolution created creatures that are basically functioning way outside of what the Okay, now I'm gonna, I got go, this, okay, I got go this. It. Okay, because there's a lot to unpack here and all I right. hate all of it. <laughs> okay, first of all, no, no, I'm serious. First of all, <laughs> when you were making that comment about how, you know, reason is a superpower beyond limit, you're being ironic, but it's true. And I'll give you one example, which is astronomy. If you look at the physical size of the universe, it's literally in one sense incomprehensible. So he's right in the sense that I do not understand and none of us understand what it means for 93 million miles away for the sun to be. It makes no, it's a number on the screen, right? That said, the fact that my mind, and I'm not one of the great thinkers of all time, is Close, capable, but... uh, we're getting there, uh, is capable of appreciating what the sun means, what heliocentrism means. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that we can you know, you're a math person that you could look at galaxies and reduce it to 10 to the 64th power in terms of distance. That shows the unlimited capacity of the human mind and reason, number one. Number two is if he says 
that evo- that evolution favors uh, uh, those who are not in touch with reality. And I don't know in what context he's saying that because that sentence could mean a lot of different things. Evolution is what guides. Uh, reality is what guides evolution. Evolution works because you are fitted to the reality of the situation around you. It's not that someone is sitting down and says, well, I'm going to add a fin to this animal and that fin helps it swim. swim. I engineer a check mark. It's that mutations occur the vast majority of mutations are against reality. They do not further this animal's life or this plant's life or this fungus's life. But the ones that are in touch with reality, such as, okay, it's really cold here. There's no predators here. If I could figure out, and I'm using that term very loosely, a way where I could survive in the cold, I don't have predation. Mm-hmm. It's really great. So the fact that unconsciously and mindlessly, this process can force the uh, mutation and evolution of the form precisely means that they're in touch with reality. Now, if he means the consciousness is not in touch with reality, that's another thing that I really hate. You're referring to the reality as like the biological reality of evolution, but all of that is based on many other layers of abstraction that ultimately has quantum mechanics underneath it all. And he's saying somewhere along the layers, you start to lose more and more and more attachment to the actual- Hold on, can I one more sentence? Sure, sure. I do not, I despise the idea. (laughs) I I say despise, I'm not using this, I'm not joking. And the idea that the reality we don't live in is somehow more real than this. That is a very dangerous idea to say, well, quantum works in this way, and I'm sure he's correct, and none of us disagree with that. What we perceive, macro, works in a different way. Well, that's the real reality, and this is fake. Bullshit. This is the real reality. That is a different type, a subset, but no one's living there. Well, and it's a subset. And humanity is the starting point. It's a subset that that has to integrate with this world. Uh, There isn't two worlds, one in the quantum world and one here. They're integrated. Now, we might not have the scientific knowledge to know how they're integrated, but so what? We know that there's only one reality, and that's this one. He he has this difference. He says evolution um, matches up to fitness, not to reality, and he creates this dichotomy between fitness and reality. But that's complete nonsense. There is no such thing as a concept of fitness outside of fitness to what? To reality. The fitness and reality are the same thing. They're not separate things. So the whole way he sets this up intellectually is wrong, I think, to some extent, dishonest, and certainly philosophically corrupt. And it's Kantian. Again, he's accepted Kant's ideas, and 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 everybody pretty much has accepted Kant's ideas for the last 200 years. And they keep it, they give it a different facade, and he's giving it an evolutionary facade. But it's just a facade for the same idea, and that is that somehow because we have eyes, we cannot see because uh, the, the, the light waves are going through a medium, and that medium necessarily distorted. The medium changes the resolution at which you see, Right, like if I take off my glasses, I'm seeing it a little differently, but the thing is still there, and the thing is still there in the way I see it because the handle I'm grasping the handle and lifting the cup, that's not an illusion. That is a real cup. So do you do you think some things are more real than others? For example, money. There's a bunch of things that uh, seem real. This This is not an animal farm reference. It's going to be about love. (laughs) There's nothing as real as love, right, Lex? (laughs) What is love? (laughs) Love is a fundamental part of the quantum mechanics. Yes. No. No. (laughs) No. No. Uh, Is there some things that have are become reality because we humans, in a collective sense, believe it? 
you can't believe something collectively. Now, it, and it doesn't it become mean, real. What does it mean to say something's real? That is, you can, so love, for example, love's a good example, right? Love is an abstraction, right? It's not, it's not something I can touch. It's not something I can see, but it's certainly something you would feel. Well, it's something you can hit. Right? And, <laughs> We love differently. <laughs> I don't you think that's I. true. I think I'm just start honest can't about hit it. Love, you you can't love is love is an abstraction. So is love real? Yes, it's real because I, I I feel it. It's an existent, but it's not an existent in the same sense as this cup is. So you know, abstractions are, are real, but at the end of the day, all abstractions have to be able to be in a you know reduced to actual concrete so you can either see it. Can I, I, I really don't like criticizing someone whose work I haven't read secondhand. So I want to take this away from speaking sure. about him personally because I'm not familiar with his work. But he I, is a nice guy. I, I, that makes me yeah, like no, him. I met him. That I, makes I, him I, like him nice less. <laughs> I, I think... Now you're back I, talking about fitness, evolutionary fitness. I, I think there's um, uh, disingenuousness when we talk about the word real in terms of ideas are real, versus the cup is real. And you try to switch back into between those two meanings. And it's a little bit of linguistic uh, wordplay that is trying to force a point that's not accurate, in my opinion. Well, I think the issue is, and what he's challenging is, and what Kant is challenging is, do we know reality? And I think the answer is, yes, we do. We know reality. We observe it. We Now, do we know everything about reality? No, we we can't, for example, sense what a bat's, bat senses as reality, right? A bat observes reality through, what is it? Uh, sonar. Uh, sound waves, right? Yeah. Through sonar, right? So it has a different sense, but it's the same reality. It, it It's still a table. It, the bat's spatial relationship to the table is different than ours, but the object is still the same object. But how do you know that's true? Are, are you not just hoping that's true but that's or what, assuming that's true? No. That's it, what no means. No yes. means I have identified an aspect of reality. That's literally the definition of knowledge. Now, if you say, how are you certain? Well, that's a whole other question. But one of the reasons I know it was certain is because this happens. Yes. Okay. And so I know this is going to happen. And if I tell if I tell you, if you go downstairs, you're going to see, you know, Mr. Jones and you walk downstairs and I see Mr. Jones, at the very least, you know, something's going on there. So what about all the things that mess with our perception? For example, we've talked about psychedelics before, sure. talked about in dreams where you detached from this, uh, I mean, there's certain things that happen that's to your brain to where you're not able to perceive. So you're not way. perceiving reality, that's right. So your brain is creating a different reality, it's not real. That's... Well, how do you know it's not real? How do you know the elves we meet in the because I need because partially because I need to take a drug <laughs> in order serious. because I need to take a drug in order to do it because I'm asleep when I'm dreaming. It's not reality. It's whoa, that whoa, is whoa, that whoa. is clearly a creation of our mind. It's but, not a creation. Hold on, let's get the drug is real. The drug is real. If yes. you are, I, I, I'm not. I, I think you're going to be thinking I'm joking a lot more than I am this episode. Okay. I'm going to be the humorous objectivist. He could be the jest, the court jester. Um, <laughs> in terms of psychedelic, when people are perceiving these elves, these machine elves, these other entities, whether they are, they could either be real or not, I don't know. But the point is that doesn't go to his broader point because if these beings exist and the only way to perceive them is to take a drug, they still exist. This is just, it's for example, if I'm in, in, in uh, out walking outside in the woods at night 
right? And there's a deer and I can't see it. But if I put on night vision goggles, I can see it. That deer was there the entire time. It's not that the night vision goggles no, but, caused the yeah, deer but, to but, appear. But you can you can recreate it not only using night vision goggles, but there you, you can you can then use sonar, you can use other mechanisms by which to prove that the deer is there. Uh, the thing with psychedelics is that, now I don't know, because I'm, maybe I'm the least experienced with psychedelics here probably. Uh, my guess is every time you take the psychedelic, you have exactly the same experience of the deer? No. no. Um, second, uh, are there other mechanisms, other scientific mechanisms by which I can find the deer out there, uh, other than the psychedelics? We don't no. know yet. So, oh, well, we don't know yet. Well, but but the you know this is this is uh, Occam's razor, right? The the simplest explanation here is the most likely, and that is that you're, you you've taken something that's messing with the chemicals in the brain. Something is being that your brain can project. We dream. Nobody's arguing that the dream is real and reality's not. Or if they are, I think they're nuts. The dream is a dream. Your 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 brain is creating an image of telling you a story. Psychedelics are simulating the same thing. That's probably what's going on until there's evidence to the contrary. Well, hold on. I, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit because let's take Adderall, for example. We all, no one here disagrees that that's something much more simpler than less, you know, out of this world. Uh, I think what he might be speaking to, I know Joe Rogan talks about this and other people in this space, is that when you take certain drugs, it changes your perception. It doesn't have to be otherworldly. It changes your perception of what's around you. And as an example, what they talk about is the three of us are talking. There's lots of other stuff in the room. We're only aware of it vaguely on a peripheral level. So oh, it, let me cha- let me it changes the- Hold the... on, let me finish. No, I don't do that. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm you're, Israeli. You're, you're about to start. <laughs> this is back to the desert island no, murder. We, we just I... resolved it within three seconds. We yeah, there's no, there's no yeah. honk. He's trying to get us. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to happen. I'm trying exactly. No I'm conk. trying to create murder. <laughs> no one has asthma. It's no. going to be fine. Because <laughs> if the two of you murder each other, there's more food for me. There's no. Just what saying. You, you're all you. you well, bro, ratings bro, bro would go up. alcohol. <laughs> ratings would go up. Yeah, Viewership yeah. would go up. Yeah, it's um, good for the ratings. Yeah. But if you take, for example, Adderall or speed, right? People t- like you focus on things, you perceive yes. things that aren't there, but that doesn't mean those things weren't there to begin yes. with. There are absolutely ways to change human perception chemically, through glasses, through getting drunk. None of that changes the fact that the reality underneath it is real and is causing this effect. Absolutely. And it has a particular nature, right? And all it's doing is changing the the focus, right? So if I take off my glasses, I'm seeing the same thing. I'm just seeing something's out of focus. And maybe in a distance, I can't see something. It just It's gone. And then I put it on, there it is. That thing was always there. It's just my um, the sensitivity I have to it has changed, and it's absolutely not sensitive to everything equally. And drugs can change the relative sensitivities. It doesn't change reality. It changes our ability to focus on reality. Let me give you or, one great example. One simple yeah, example: uh, the microscope. I forget who yes. it was. His name was with an L. The, the scientist who discovered it. He had a drop of water, and he's seeing monsters the protozoa in this drop of water. For him, it must have been, it, it is like a drug experience. Like, wait a minute, I'm drinking this and there's alien beings yeah, yeah. whose shapes are completely crazy in this water. Those beings were always there. Those beings were there before any of us were here. Yeah. They've been there for billions of years. But because he had this apparatus, now he's able to see protozoa. No one's arguing protozoa are extra dimensional. No one's arguing the supernatural. Amoebas are well-studied, paramecia, all the, all the other lots. So if these elves, the machine elves are real and the only way to perceive them is through uh, DMT or something like that. That doesn't contradict the broader point that they've always been there, and this is the mechanism for perceiving them. So here's the wood I was looking for. It's a wood actually Greg uh, Greg taught me this, so uh, um, Greg Salamiri. So it's resolution, right? Uh, 
So it's resolution. My resolution changes with the glasses. My resolution gets finer with the microscope. Microscope. So there's a, there's probably some bacteria here on the table. Hundred percent. Right. Yeah. There's no there's no doubt about it. I can't see them. So I need a microscope to see them, but they're either there or they're not there. And I have the tools to discover whether they are there or they're not there. And that's called a microscope. Now, they could be even smaller beings that even with a microscope, I won't be able to define. But that's completely arbitrary to claim that, that they're there until I find a tool to be able to discover it. The same with what you see if you're seeing other beings when you're taking psychedelics. Unless you find another tool to be able to see them with, the simplest assumption is probably the truest assumption. But even the not simplest assumption doesn't contradict the broader point. No. Which is, no. again, if, Reality is what it, is. Yeah. if yeah. it turns out that there are these creatures that you can only see with psychedelics, then there are these creatures that you can only see with psychedelics. And uh, our resolution uh, while we're not on psychedelics is not fine enough to observe them. So what? That doesn't change the fact that we evolved to survive in reality as it is. What do you do with the possibility that our resolution, as it currently stands, is really, really crappy? That basically, well, it's so, not. No, but but you don't know that. Are. No, we know but it. We know it completely. compared to who? Because, compared exactly. to the future possibilities, like artificial intelligence. It is true. Us, oh, it is crappy years compared to the future. Fine, that's true. But but that's not relevant. But it, much much like orders yes. of magnitude. No, but crappier. here, here I use the standard that that Hoffman uses evolution. Right. The reason I know that our resolution is phenomenal, is phenomenally good. Right. Is Look at us. <laughs> We're sitting here comfortably in 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 a in an apartment with air conditioning in in warm Austin with micro microphones and it can't. Where did all this stuff? We're yeah. really good at survival and changing environment. Indeed, if you look at the species that we know of, there's not a species that come anywhere close to our ability to deal with reality, to observe to reality, to understand reality, yeah, but- and to shape it. Now, in the future. Well, we'll come up with machines that can figure out stuff that we have no clue about today. Yeah, but so okay. that's only because we're so well suited to reality that can we create those. Machines. And I promise you, it's in the future. It's going to be much more what you're saying. Uh, that's how it's going to happen. No, but the thing is, when the, the creatures from the future look back to the things we're saying now, what Ayn Rand is saying, what you're saying, with certainty, do you think they'll laugh at the the level of how much confusion there was, how much inaccuracy? Did you no? No, much, no, no. Can no. I, let me get this one. You know what they're going to do? <laughs> yes. They're going to do what you do when any of us read Aristotle yeah. or read uh, any of these great geniuses of the past. It's like these people didn't have electricity. They didn't have uh, uh, like warm clothes or anything, and they're able to figure out the diameter of the Earth, like the creativity. To be and to get it within like a few miles, the creativity and to figure out the speed of light when you don't even have a stopwatch. Like when you look back, like a lot of it's nonsense. And we, but we at the same, it's like when you're talking to a kid, you don't you disregard the nonsense. And when they get something right, it's all that's you. So it's never a numbers game, right? So mm-hmm. it's the the few that validate and justify the rest. So when you look at Aristotle, he's talking about the, the w- w- there was one of those causes, which is like time travel and it doesn't really make sense. But you look at the rest of his stuff or even Plato or any of these greats, it's like, oh my, this is a, an amazing miracle. And not, I wouldn't say literally miracle. I yep. got you, everyone. Yep. But at the same time, yeah, a lot of these other people had stupid ideas. You don't care. You care about those great, great minds and what and how they moved us all forward to this day. We still study Pythagoras. And and it's not even it's not even just the sciences and the math. Think about the philosophy. I mean, how much is there to learn from reading Aristotle or Plato or Socrates when you disagree with them? I mean, how many giants have there been in all of human history that have had the minds of a Socrates, a Plato, and an Aristotle? 
uh, a thousand years where they look back at Plato and Aristotle and admire them? Absolutely. Well, they find certain things that are wrong, yes, but certain things that Aristotle discovered are absolutely right and will always be right. Certain things that Ayn Rand discovered will always be right. I think a lot of what she came up with, will some things be discovered to be wrong? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, that wouldn't shock me. But the the genius and the and the and the the truth of of that we know today is amazing. It's stunning to be pessimistic about us because in the future we'll know more. Not pessimistic, but more humble. The, well, there's the, no the... reason to be humble. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I really think humility is a vice, not a virtue. What's there to be humble about? Look, look at life. This is amazing. No, we no, should I, be. But the word humble has a different no, meaning. No, I, I know. I know. It, okay. You're, okay. You're I was going cool. to yeah, get. Yeah, okay, I sorry, was going okay. to get. I mean, humility in a sense of, uh, you know, humility in a sense of, of um, not appreciating the genius and the ability and the, and the success and all the stuff that we as individuals, I think, in our lives, but, but as, a, as a culture, as, as, a, as a movement, if you think about movement in terms of those of us who respect reason have achieved in spite of the odds, we should be proud of that. And pride is the virtue. Humility in the sense of, yeah, I know there's more to know. I know there's a lot more to know, and in the future we'll know more. Sure, but I don't think that's the way. See, I take humility as as the way the Christians use it, which is the other way, and I think it's a real vice. It's it's don't think of yourself too much. Just because you can think, you know, that's no big deal, or just because you can create this stuff, it is a big deal. It, your achievements are a big deal, and you should take credit for them. Um, so uh, it, it, be careful with the word humility, because because the real meaning is the Christian meaning, which is a very very bad meaning. Hold on, let me be a little pedantic because there's no such thing as real meaning, right? So there's different meanings, okay? Hold on. This is semantics, but here's another real meaning that you're not going to disagree with, which is the smartest person on earth is ignorant of 99.9% of knowledge, right? So if I meet someone who is less intelligent than me and less informed than me, it is still certain that this person has things to teach me. If I go to a mechanic and maybe this guy's dumb as rocks, Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about cars. What he tells me about that car is going I could take it to the bank. He's going to be in a position to inform me. So one of the reasons humility is extremely important is very often you have people, and you see this very much in academia, who think, you know exactly where I'm going, Yaron, who think they're know-it-alls. And they think, oh, I have this degree. You're a layman. You've never been formally educated. Therefore, not only are you dumb and uneducated, and you're wrong. And it's like, this person might be have one a great example of this, and this is an example Yaron might not like, is a lot of times you have these native populations and they'll have a better understanding of the animals around them, the plants, the fruits, whatever. And you'd have these scientists and be like, oh, they're talking about this monster in the woods. Yeah, whatever, this giant, this giant ape. But it was real. It was the gorilla. But, you know, you dismiss them because, oh, these are stupid, ignorant, whatever people. That's kind of changed to some extent. But that is an aspect of humility that I think behooves, especially highly intelligent people, because there is such a presumption to be dismissive of people who you regard as less than, but they're often right. So I agree I agree with all of the concrete examples. I just think we should come up with a better word than humility. And I don't have one because I'm, I'm not a woodsmith. I'm not, this is not my strength. Uh, but humility, humility is a, is a word from the Christian ethics. And it means something very specific in the field of ethics. And it means the opposite of of what I think virtue requires, right? Uh, it, it's it's demeaning. It's to put you down. It's to it's to it's to 
it's to resist pride. And I think pride is a very important thing. I don't know, Yaron. Uh, but again, you have to define your terms properly. Hating myself has uh, has been quite useful for me as a... <laughs> well, but that's because you're Russian and Jewish. So so by... What? By, you know, this changes everything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is this is what happens, right? We're brought up uh, to, 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 you know, to, to feel exactly Lex that way. Lex has been a good Russian boy. So we got oh him. Oh my God. What is this? What is this? Gematogen. What is this? Gematogen? What is that what it says? Yeah, let's get him out again. Uh, I can't. I can't. I, I'm blind. This is for you. Yeah, but, it, but, but as it, long as you're good, but Russian it's a magic, we have, we have, but wait, have candy. But is it kosher? <laughs> <laughs> Did you check if it's kosher? Um, this is Ukrainian, my friend. Oh. Oh my God, oh God. that is a sin. How dare you? That is really <laughs> sinful. You know, you know me and I were born in the same town. I'm kidding. My yep. dad's Ukrainian. Yep. Don't get mad. So. Uh, I don't think I don't think uh, self um, self. Well, what did you? How did you define it? Your self your, hate. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> I, I think self hate is quite destructive. Uh, Speak for I, yourself, Yaron. I, I think that humility is quite destructive. Humility in the sense of I'm no big deal. No, I mean if if you've achieved something in life, you are a big deal, and you are a big deal because you know, look, you got the two of us to fly into town just to sit down here and have a conversation with you. You're a big deal. Well, that should, says more about you than me. We're just We're lonely and depraved. <laughs> I'm not lonely. I might be desperate. <laughs> I'm, I'm starting to uh, question your ability to reason uh, with the decisions you're making. Uh, but on the, uh, on the aspect of, and I should mention that The Idiot by Dostoevsky is one of my favorite novels, and there is a Christian ethic that runs through that. I mean, the, because, because yeah, I mean, particularly, <laughs> but I, I hate to bring this up, but particularly Russians and particularly Russian Jews and particularly Eastern European Jews are incredibly Christian. There is a, there's a, there's a real Christian theme in, in Judaism that's, uh, that's um, about guilt. Guilt okay. is not, there's no guilt in Judaism. King David doesn't feel any guilt. Solomon doesn't. There's no guilt in the in the Old Testament. Plenty of guilt once Christianity has an impact on Judaism. We're raised to feel this way. We're raised to be humble. We're raised not to feel special. We're, we're raised to think we're no big deal and, to, and, to, and, and, and our mothers put us down and, and use that against us and, and try to inflict guilt on us. They raise us up and then they knock us down. It, it, it's a mechanism, but it's a, it's a cultural mechanism. And I think it's very destructive to self-esteem and to happiness. Let me, and I'll give you a great, he's absolutely right with what he just said. Because, I disagree. Well, <laughs> well, yeah, why, why is he right? Because like my family, for example, could, still doesn't really understand how I could pay the rent because I don't go into an office. And like when I started out trying to be a writer, the immediate reaction isn't, which is a lot of times I talk to kids, right? And, and they won't have these aspirations and I'll tell them, go for it while you're young. If you fail, yeah. You'll go to your grave with like I tried my best, yeah. I didn't make it happen. Whereas if you don't try and never achieve, you are going to feel horrible for the rest of your life. And this is the example I use all the time. I bring it up many times. I go, go to any bookstore, and look at all those terrible, terrible books on the shelves that you wonder <laughs> how is this a book? That could be you. Yep. You could be that crappy writer. But the thing is, in that culture that Yaron was talking about, you tell your family, "I'm going to be a writer." Who do you think you are? Why do you think you're going to be, you, you're no Stephen King. And it's like, why do you have to be Stephen King? Yeah. Why can't you just be a mediocre, crappy writer making the rent? The best but, that you can be. But right? even that is an yeah. amazing accomplishment. Yeah, absolutely. If I don't have to go absolutely. to an office and I write books that not that many people read, this is the story of my life. At the same time, I do have pride because I made this happen. You can be the best version. I mean, this is a cliche, but you can be the best version of yourself. It's not a competition. And yet our Jewish mothers 
that's not what they aspire us to be. They aspire us to be the best version of what they imagine, yeah. what the culture imagines, you know, what 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 society imagined. Not what not what's. It's not about you in in their minds. And and I've I've seen it. I see I see it all around me. People putting their kids down, putting themselves down. It's not healthy. I I've, I've never told the story. I'm going to tell it now. When I graduated college, I was a temp for a while because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Right. And when you're a temp, it's like playing roulette. You're going to have jobs that pay well that suck and pay well that are great or, or that are great that that don't pay well or, and suck and pay poorly. But it's it's you and you're 21. You have that that kind of space. And my grandmother was talking to her brother, you know, talk, he's talking about his kids. She's talking about me. She's, you know, from Odessa. And she told me she lied to him about how much money I was making. Huh. And that's something I've never brought up. And it still hurts me because it's like your approval of me should be a function of my character, mm-hmm. my happiness. Am I, and, and the fact that you, f- you feel ashamed over how much money I'm making, especially at this point in my life. I thought was very, uh, really misplaced priorities. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I don't know what to make make of that. I, I think the there's a huge benefit to the humility terms aside for uh, believing that others can teach you a lot. Everybody everybody can teach you a we lot. we all agree on that. I just mentioned but that, the mechanic. All, no, you do it exactly, exactly yeah. the yeah. point. But for that, I do believe you have to not constantly sort of uh, break your ego apart and, and I constantly question whether you know anything about this world and sort of there's a negativity with it that that I think is very useful and it's also very fulfilling just constantly I don't know it's the other way around I I find that the more the more I know the more I know I know the easier it is for me to learn from other people the yeah. the, the broader context I have uh the more curious I become the more areas I know, you know, it's true that the more you know, the more areas you know you don't know. And and the more I find myself attracted to people who can teach me something about oh, yeah. things I don't know. Whereas if I was ignorant, if I truly believed I didn't know anything, I don't know how I would live. It 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 would it would it would it would really completely challenge everything, everything about life for me. Where would I even start? You wouldn't know where to start. So no, I think and if you don't recognize what you know. You don't have a full appreciation of yourself. So really building a recognition of what do I know, right? What, and how much do I know is really crucial to, to, to living. And I'll tell you something else that furthers my life enormously is when you reach a certain point in your career in your life and you're talking to people who are a lot younger and they might be smart, driven, intelligent, they lack data. When you're yeah. 23, you don't know how to speak corporate. You don't know what the code words are. So if I... I'm in a position to sit down with this kid and be like, do X, Y, and Z. And here's why I'm coming to this conclusion. This is the information that reached me this conclusion. And I can save them from some of the suffering I went through. That is very gratifying. It's making the world a better place. And it's also the opposite in a sense of humility because like in this context- I'm an expert. I, or I'm at least knowledgeable enough that I'm yeah. comfortable giving you advice. Yeah, and look, everything I do is about me knowing stuff that other people don't. And I know a lot of stuff other people don't, and I, I I do, and it's fun. It's I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher at heart. Always have been. It turns out I didn't know that early on. But uh, you know, I like becoming an expert and then and then trying to teach people. It doesn't mean I know everything. It, quite the contrary. It, again, the more I know, the more I know that there's certain things I don't know, and there's certain areas of expertise I don't have. But look, pride is a broader concept than that. Pride is about 
And, and humility is the opposite of pride. And Christianity has that right. Pride is about taking your life seriously. Pride is about wanting to be really good at living, wanting to have the knowledge. And I think what you're describing is, you're describing is I'm constantly learning. Sometimes I have to re-challenge myself. I have to question what I believed in order to gain new knowledge. That's all good, but that is a, that is a, a drive that is driven by pride. You want to know. There are lots of people out there that don't want to know because they don't have that pride. They don't have that commitment to live, the commitment to achieving something. And I'm going to say something else that I think is crucial. Humility is extremely important when it comes to politics because if you feel comfortable telling someone you've never met how to live their life, that is a complete lack of humility. Well, the, I, I lack it, obviously, because I tell people how to live all the time. Not through the force. Not through that's force. That's what I'm saying. Not, and of course, not in the concrete. Not, that's, I don't that, tell them, but, you know, move to, although I do tell them to move to Austin, but, but I, I don't tell them, this is, this is what you do as a profession, but I give them the principles because I yeah, think they're yeah, principles they're are making how to live. choice. That's my point. No, Politically, what sure. I'm saying is it shows a lack of humility to be like, I've never met this person. This is how I'm going to take money from him. I'm going to- See, but I don't see that's humility. There's nothing- No, it's the lack of humility. No, but it's not even a lack of humility because it's- Who am it's, I to tell him how to live? No, that's of course you're not. Humility. No, you, who are you to tell him how to live is an issue of, it's an issue of, of, of force and rights and, and a bunch of different things. I don't think it's a lack of humility there. I think it's a lack of being a human being. Um, it could be both. <laughs> sure. Uh, I, I think it's who gives you the right to dictate to somebody else how to live their lives. Yeah, but that's a lack of humility if you think you have that right. I, I, again, we're using humility in a very different way. No, we're using it the same I don't way. Think, I don't because think the person good. who feels comfortable they think I know, I know better than you how you should live your life to the point where I'm comfortable forcing you because I know it's going to be best for you in the long run. And the answer is you don't know. Right, but that's a lack of humility. I think in your mind, Yaron, uh, humility is somehow tied to the Christian concept of humility, and so you're kind of allergic to the word. Well, absolutely, but, because it's it's part of. If you look at the cardinal the cardinal virtues, the cardinal sins in uh, in Christianity, pride is a cardinal sin. Yeah. And humility is a cardinal virtue, but they they don't mean it in this sense because they're happy to tell you how to live, right? They're happy to be philosopher kings over your life, and they believe that's being humble. And you should be humble, by the way, in listening to the Pope or listening to God, because what do you know? You know nothing. God knows everything, so you should shut up and do what you're told. That's the sense in which I don't think you should be humble. I, I mean, it, it's a sense in which I always use the example of, of Abraham, right? God comes to Abraham and says, go go kill your your, your eldest son, go your only son, right? Your only son, go kill him. It's like, and, and what does Abraham do? He says, yes, sir, I'll follow. And he's a moral hero for Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. He's a moral hero because he follows orders, because he's humble. He, You know, I would tell God to go to hell. <laughs> Screw you, I'm not killing my son. You know, but he killed, no way. I mean, he killed his son, so it's only fair. <laughs> well, this is before he killed yeah. his son, so I didn't know that. Right? But, but no, but part of the evil, part of the evil of Christianity is that he's killed his son in the most those torturous form of death possible. I mean, the whole story of Jesus is one of the most immoral, unjust stories ever told, and that Christians elevate this to a position of. I'd love to have this conversation with Jordan, right, Jordan Peterson. The, the idea of well, elevating that'll, that'll never happen. No, it won't. But <laughs> elevating Jesus, exactly, elevating Jesus to a superhero status for one of the most immoral acts in human history, is 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 horrific. So yeah, I mean, I'm I'm opposed to God 
sacrificing his own son. Never mind my son. But yeah, let him go do it to his own son. But he didn't kill Isaac. He killed the goat. The stories about Abraham, not about God. First of all, God is mean, right? To 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 put Abraham through that. But but Abraham has to has to assume that he's going to kill his son, and he lifts his. He's going to do it, and 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 he stopped. So the whole point is obedience. That's what humility leads to. It leads to the opposite of the story you were telling. It leads to people saying, yes, I should be told what to do. Where's the authority who actually knows something? Because well, yeah. I, I don't know anything. No, I know a lot. And I know a lot about my life. The science so you stay away from my life because I have pride in my life. The science is settled, right? Look at these experts. Who am yes. I to argue with these experts? Yes. They tell me yes. to drink dog pee. I'm going to drink. What am I going to not drink dog pee? Yes. Yeah. Let's go back to Speaking the island. Of which, mm, we're on the island again. <laughs> we're back to the island. Manhattan. And uh, let's let's go to the island. Let's let's. Uh, I live invite, on an island. So. It's everything is an island, in some context. Like Earth is an island. This universe is an island in a multiverse. Um, There's no so multiverses. There's only one universe. All right. So, <laughs> so let's invite Jordan Peterson to this island. You wish. Hold on. <laughs> So been... <laughs> Hold on a sec. Hey, girl, what you doing? Lex. Lex Friedman? Look him up. Lex who? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know. Lex, who? Lex has no, a, I know. as big of a following almost as, no, as Jordan does. I, 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 know, I know Jordan. I know his family, actually, through... Um, through Jim Keller, who's his relative. He's an engineer. So, uh, And I just talked to Sam, uh, who is perhaps a little bit aligned in some sense on your perspective on religion and so on. So let me ask, is there religion, some... Religion, yes, but... but uh, other things, no. Sam, other Sam things, Harris. No. Sam, Sam Harris, Sam yeah. Harris, yeah. Oh, sorry, Sam Harris. He's on first name relations Look with these guys. Look at this baseball. <laughs> yeah. I just talked to Sam. <laughs> I you, thought. I thought. Let's talk about humility. Let's talk about humility. Like no. my buddy Sam. I was talking to Barack. You might know him. Yeah. I, I simply humility went out the window. So I'm just a natural language processing model. That uh, I assume that once I mention Jordan Peterson, it becomes an obvious statement what Sam means. This is how neural networks think. This is how robots think. Michael, you should know this. Um, I thought by now I you'd be a scholar. I was being humble. <laughs> For the sake of the audience. <laughs> Humility. <laughs> Everything can teach you something, even a robot. Okay. So uh, do you think there's value in religion or broader? Do you think there's value in myth? And as we've been talking about the value of reason, do you think it's possible to argue in society as we grow this, the population of our little island, that there's some value of common myths, of common stories, of common religion? There was value. There is no value today. So human beings need explanations, right? They need a philosophy to guide their life. They need ethics. They need uh, some explanation of what's going on in the world, right? And it's, it's no accident that the early religions had a river god and they had a, a, a sun god and a moon god because they, they, everything they didn't understand, they, they made god, right? So, so they had multiple gods because they didn't understand very much. As human understanding evolved, increased, as we knew reality more, right, we, we came to the conclusion of, you know, this is very inefficient to have all these gods. This is a genius of Judaism, right? Let's just have one bucket to put all the stuff we don't know in, and we'll call it one god. And then we don't, as we gain new knowledge, we can just take it out of the bucket that's God and, and put it into the bucket of science. At some point, though, um, at some point, and that point suddenly came during the scientific revolution, I think, uh, we could come to the conclusion that no, 
we don't need this bucket that's called God to explain the things that we don't know. We can say we don't know, <laughs> and uh, and w- we're learning. And slowly, the, our knowledge is increasing, and yet there's a lot more that we don't know, but we don't need to throw it into some bucket that's called God in order to, in order to have it. And I think that's true for morality, and it's true for everything else, right? As we gain the tools to understand what morality requires, we don't need a set of commandments. We can figure out morality from human nature and from reality. Uh, so, so I don't think we need religion anymore. I think, I think religion needed to die probably about 200 years ago, and uh, and was dying, I think, up until Kant. It was it seemed to be dying. And one of Kant's missions, as he says, is to, is to revive religion uh, against the attack of reason and the Enlightenment. Now, mythology is a little different because it depends what you mean by mythology. Certainly, we need stories. And certainly, we need art. Art is a... And Rand writes about this a lot. And, you know, she's an artist and she writes in... I, I, I'm a huge fan of the Romantic Manifesto, which I think is one of her underappreciated uh, masterpieces. Oh, I hate it. Okay. Yeah. That's, okay. Yeah. So it's, I, think, I think we have a real need, right, as a conceptual yeah. being. We have a need for aesthetic experiences. We have a need to concretize abstractions, to concretize abstract ideas, to concretize the complex nature of the world out there. And that's what painting, sculpture, to some ex- to, to an extent music, but, but painting, sculpture, literature does for us. So to the extent that mythology serves that purpose, it's, it's just art, right? To the extent that it serves another purpose, that is that it's, it's, a, it's a way for the gods to communicate with us or it fits some kind of pre-existing mental construct that we have, again, kind of a Kantian perspective, right? That we have these categorical imperatives and these, this, this, this uh, mythology links up to that. Then I think it's, 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 it's false. It's, it's, it's not helpful and destructive. So I believe religion today is a destructive force on planet Earth. I think it's always been a destructive force. It was just a necessary force, right? You needed an explanation. People needed something to believe in. Once you get philosophy and once you get philosophy that starts explaining real life, real world, you don't need religion anymore. And indeed, it becomes a destructive force. And you look around the world today, it's an unbelievably destructive force. Everywhere it touches is, 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 uh, is bad for life. Uh, again, mythology depends. Art is essential. Very, very crucial to human existence. I mean, I'd love to hear what you think, but you don't see religion and philosophy and mythology on the, as, as just a, a continuous spectrum. No. Yeah, so religion is a primitive form of philosophy. But I, I don't it's pre philosophical. I, 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 where I thought Rand, uh, with Yaron was going to go and he didn't go was that I think um, he, I agree with what he was going to say. Uh, Rand was a mythologizer. In certain specific contexts, Atlas Shrugged is a myth. It's one thing to sit down and say, these are the people who move us forward. These are the values that are important. When you experience it through a story, through a movie, through a TV show, a poem, or a painting, it affects you in a very visceral, very different way. Talk about American history. You have the founding fathers, then you have the myth of the founding fathers. Now, unfortunately, the term myth often means lie, but it could mean in a, in a useful sense, an abstraction to help you systematize and concretize ideas. So you have the myth of Reagan, you have the myth of Thatcher, these, you know, the reality (laughs) often falls very short, but when you look at how these different figures are mythologized, not only is it very inspirational on a personal level, very motivating on a personal level, it's also a great way to concretize ideas because just how humans think, it's one thing to think about ideas, but when you see someone who embodies these ideas, Miss America, you know, I was saying earlier, I had an astro on my show. 
these people may be jerks, but when you look at them one specific aspect of their life and you extrapolate it, that can be to anyone very motivating. And it's very important for people to have the belief that happiness and achievement is possible. Because it's very hard to keep that in mind, especially if you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're unemployed, you don't have a girlfriend, you think it's going to be like this forever. And then you look at someone's story and they're like, you know what? That astronaut interview, Clayton Anderson, he applied 13 times, didn't get a callback, mm-hmm. applied the 14th time, got a callback, didn't get the job, 15th time he get the job. He talks to kids and he goes, listen, <laughs> apply 13 times. Even if you don't get the callback, you'll still feel I'm doing something. And having heard him and the myth yep. of Clayton Anderson, this is going to tell people, yeah, you know what? That could be me. You don't Absolutely. think- Absolutely. And, and it's not just happiness. It's, it's, it's the fact that virtue works, yeah. that, that the integrity. I mean, what, what's the power of the fountainhead? I know you love the fountainhead. Oh, yeah. Part of the power of the fountainhead is how it works, absolute uh, commitment to integrity. He is committed to integrity, and he gets and he, and, he, and he's happy, right? And and it's very rare in life uh, to see that, uh, to to actually see a concrete of that, and it's very hard to hold it in your mind. Yes, I, I'm I'm gonna be stuck in the quarry, or I'm gonna be stuck doing this horrible job. But if I stick to my principles, I'm gonna be how it work. Now I've got that concrete. I know I can I can immediately relate to that success. So I think art is essential. And I think in a sense, what we do to Thatcher and Reagan is art. You have to be careful in true stories, yeah. not to diverge too far from reality, because then white when you discover things. the yeah, reality, yeah, yeah, you don't yeah. want to whitewash it, and particularly when it has political implications, and then, then it's really bad. So particularly with Reagan and Thatcher, you have to be careful, because they weren't anywhere near as good as people try to make them out to be. But the, these these are powerful, powerful, powerful stories. And uh, and people are moved by it. And the integration of emotion with reason is crucial, right? One of the one of the goals to be happy is to bring your emotions in line with your thinking. And I think that stories and arts more broadly. And I, I you know, when I go and see Michelangelo's David, it does the same thing to me. You know, I can stand up to anybody because he did, and look, he succeeded, and and it makes sense that he could, right? So. There's a really interesting idea of uh, bringing your emotion in line with your thinking, with your reasoning. Mm-hmm. So Ben Shapiro famously has this saying, how do you like that transition, Michael? <laughs> you gave me props. I know I saw, you did. He's not Ben, it's Ben Shapiro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Someone is not taking your calls. Benny. Benny. <laughs> I guess it's the daily don't take the caller. <laughs> ba- back to the island with the murder. I think we know. Murder who, Island. <laughs> we would know who would be committing the murder. Oh. I have the suit for it. Uh, so he has the saying of uh, uh, facts don't care about your feelings. Mm-hmm. And that always, uh, I, I've always felt um, badly about that statement somehow, like it was incomplete. Uh, so it's interesting to uh, that you mentioned bringing your emotions in line with your thinking. Like, what do you think about that statement? Is I, I got this one. What, <laughs> what Ben is doing, Ben, Ben, what he's doing in a, uh, a loose way is attacking Kantianism. Because Kant, there's this, it's it's almost impossible for Westerners who aren't schooled in this to understand the idea of philosophical idealism because it sounds so crazy mm-hmm. that you're like, these great minds of all time can't really be saying this. I must be missing something. So the idea of, when we hear idealism, we think John F. Kennedy, right? It's yep. an example. You, you, you aspire things. You think life can be better than it is. That's not what it means in a philosophical sense. In philosophical idealism, it means ideas are more real than reality. That I have this idea, 
then this comes along. It's the reality that isn't correct. My idea is still correct. A good example of this that you see all the time on the internet is when they refer to Mitt Romney and John McCain as rhinos, Republicans in name only. And it's like, what is, who is more a real Republican? The nominee of the party, the senator, the governor of the party, or some person in your mind who has never existed and there's no evidence for them existing. So what Kant did is he bifurcated reality into what we see around us, the phenomenal world, but then it's inferior. The real world, the noumenal world, we can't access it. Because we have eyes, we only see the thing as it appears, not as it is in itself. And because of this, everything we know is a shadow and is secondary. And that's Plato, right? Yeah, and and that, straight out of Plato. Right. And the real reality is this realm of ideas. So when Ben is saying facts don't care about your feelings, what he is really saying is reality comes first. Your feelings have to be a response or a reaction mm -hmm. to it. You can't say, this is how I feel. This table doesn't care. Yep. You can yell at it all day long. It will still be indifferent to your emotional state because it comes first. So it's it's a it's a great statement. I think he's cribbing it from Ayn Rand in a sense. And I, <laughs> I, I love mean, it. Yes. I mean, there's a sense in which he is. <laughs> I mean, who popularized that kind of idea? And and Ben has, has read Ayn Rand quite extensively. Not enough. Not enough. Well, <laughs> not enough to reference her. He does wear the yarmulke, so yeah, obviously. Um, he may be read enough, but didn't understand enough. Um, but uh, so so fired. It's absolutely reality. Reality is unaffected by your emotional state and your feelings about it. And this is a, a great claim against the idealism, the philosophical idealism of much of the world out there, both left and right. I think politically, culturally, the left and right are detached from reality. They, they live in a different dimension, in a different space that they are creating in their own minds that has nothing to do with the real world. And when they fail, they make stuff up to justify their failure. Right, so this is you know uh, all, all of really the uh, the ideas that are promulgated today on both sides are this kind of detached from reality. We're putting emotions or ideas before before reality itself. But I believe that you know emotions are responses. The responses to reality conditioned by our existing you're, concepts. You're going to have to talk slowly to talk emotions to Lex because he doesn't really understand. What I that don't is. understand. So, so really, you got to really. <laughs> but he's big words. on love. <laughs> what is he's love? Big, but he's big on love. <laughs> he's trying to learn. Pretty big on love. I'm all in. Uh, I'm a love maximalist. I mean, I could create, we could create an environment on this island where you would really feel emotions. Like fear is an emotion. We could, terror, we could, that's, that's <laughs> the metaphysical terror. We could easily terrorize you easily. to the point oh, where you felt fear, right? Yeah. So, so we, we could teach him about emotions. <laughs> but emotions are response to us. So some people, for example, you could, you could take five different people and show them exactly the same thing. And some of them would feel fe fear and some of them would actually, uh, you know, feel indifferent and other people might feel love, right? Uh, I think Leonard Peikoff uses the example of looking through a microscope and seeing a, uh, a, a, I don't know, a virus or bacteria. And for one, it's a scientist. He's made a new discovery. He feels pride and love. And, you know, awe. the one is, has, has no clue, right? And he's looking at this and it means nothing to them. And somebody else might look at it and, you know, it's a bacteria, you know, and they feel fear because of what it could do right. to them. So, it's it's conditioned by what you know, what your values are, and, and your level of knowledge, and what the thing is out there in reality. And it's that into, so your emotions respond to that. Um, so 
aligning your emotions with your reason is making sure that your emotions are really conditioned by what you know explicitly versus what you've internalized implicitly that you might not agree with anymore. Uh, you know, you, things might happen in your childhood, and yeah. and they probably do, right? Where you you get a trauma. I don't know. I I I. Um, I f I'm afraid of dogs, and and maybe when I was a five-year-old, some dogs jumped me, and I don't even remember it, right? But I came to a conclusion when I was five, dog's bad. Yeah. Dog's dangerous, right? And now anytime I see a dog, oh my God, that bringing my emotions aligned with reality, right? With my ideas is, no, now I understand dogs don't have to be scary. I can work through this. I And there are various techniques, and hopefully, if there is such a science of psychology, but in psychology yeah, to yeah. get you to the point where you can get rid of that fear and align your emotion now with your explicit ideas. And, and that's what I mean by that. And let me build on that. We're talking about your friend, Putin. I think I mentioned this before, at least maybe on the show. He was meeting with Angela Merkel. Oh, Vladimir, please. Yeah, Vlad. Vladimir, My right. boy, Vlad. He was meeting with Angela Merkel. Angela Merkel has a fear of dogs. So he brought out his big Labrador retriever. Now, for people who don't know, Labradors are very big dogs, but they're also like the least aggressive. It's, it's like you could punch them in the face. They don't care. That dog is not going to be more likely to attack just because she's scared. And it, that's, it's kind of, I know they say animals can sense fear. Domesticated dogs, if they see you're scared, they're not going to be aggressive. They're going to try to play. I remember when I was a kid, I will never forget. There was this dog, Rex, this German Shepherd. I'm five. This dog is gigantic. And I'm sitting on the couch. German Shepherds have been bred for intelligence. They're very bright dogs. They're very good with kids. He's sitting next to me. This thing is three times my size. He very gently puts his paw on my leg to be like, kid, like he can sense my fear. He's like, I'm not going to do it. Like, I want to be your friend. I'm still freaking out. He licks my hand. It's just very scary. Uh -huh. You know, animals are so bright. But that's the thing is, in terms of facts, don't care about your feelings. That dog is not more likely to attack someone because their emotion is so intense. It's it's not that I feel something very strongly, therefore this thing is more likely to happen. So my intensity of my emotion does not in any way correlate in, a, in when you're being irrational mm -hmm. to the likelihood of that thing actually happening. No, you could have a dog that does respond to your emotion, oh, of course. right? But then and, it's yeah. but then it's not. It's but not then that's that part way. of reality, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah, that's that's yeah. a fact of reality that certain dogs respond to certain emotions. But isn't this emotion a part of reality? That's like okay. Let me let me say a yeah, word. So part of that, I would even say, don't let your emotion about your emotion, right? Because sometimes you have an emotion about your emotion. Don't be repressed. Don't be repressed. And identify the emotion as reality yeah. and evaluate it. Don't judge it. Evaluate it. Is it a rational emotion? Is it consistent with my, like, if I'm afraid of these dogs, if I feel that fear, is it rational to be afraid of yeah, these yeah. dogs? But, but you're speaking to your own individual trajectory as a human yes. being, as you grow through the world and try to understand reality and connect yourself yes. through reason to reality. What I'm talking about is... A, a term like lived experience. Sure. When you when you observe uh, and, and analyze the you know conversations with other people to try to understand how other people see the world, doesn't em emotion fundamentally integrate into that? Like, is an emotion lived experience? So yes. everybody experiences the same reality, but the way they experience it might be very different, and that has to do with what 
It doesn't with have to their do values, with... with their conclusions, with their ideas, with their experiences, with a million different things. But is it? Right? Not, is but it... at the end of the day, it's about the conclusions that they come to, which are then shaping their emotions. But look, emotions are not something to be uh, avoided or ignored. That is, I can sense your emotions to some extent. <laughs> That's <right>? a lie. <laughs> okay, it is Lex. I can sense <laughs> his emotions. Yeah. <laughs> I can sense Michael's emotions, and that's part of the facts of reality, right? So if 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 Michael responds to something that I view as really really important, right? If 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 we were standing in front of Michelangelo's David, uh, Michael responds to Michael Michelangelo's David was yeah, and turned his back to it and walked away. That would be really meaningful to me, right? That I would respond emotionally to that and cognitively, I would say, what is it about Michael <laughs> that makes him? You know, uh, respond this way. That is, that is, that gives me a lot of information about him. So emotions are information laden, right? But they are not primary. They are responses, responses to something. So once one must be very aware of one's own emotions, recognize them, and, and analyze them, and one. One should be aware of other people's emotions if they're important to you. If they're not important to you, it doesn't matter, right? You don't care about a stranger's emotion. You know, like a stranger walks up to Michelangelo's David and says, eh, and walks away. And I go, okay, I'm glad you're a stranger. Um, but it's... <laughs> now, now, I've known you what Michael's response to Michelangelo's David was or is, so I'm a little worried about what he's going to say. You but, got candy uh, <laughs> too, but that was great. <laughs> Hey, Do I get hey, the Ukrainian I thought candy? I, was I don't know. What I, I can't read either. What's this say? Joshua, what does that say to him? Yeah, is this Ukrainian candy as well? I, I thought it was, it was sent to me. Do you know that Atlas Shrugged was the best-selling book in Ukraine in 2015 and 2016? Do you know Atlas I mean, Shrugged was translated to Russian by someone who's now a crypto like billionaire, and he made like six copies, and I have one of them, and I sent it to my great grandma. No, they're, they're more than six, but yeah, oh, but they were like I have a copy too. Okay, not I personally. The institute has a copy. I sent it to my great grandma, and she said, "Why is he sending me this? I want to read books about love." And I'm like, you know what? <laughs> about love yeah <laughs> that's yeah. what you should have said <laughs> what's that is that say so this says it's uh содержит витамины и минералы it has vitamins and minerals it there's a there's a if bunch it's of in russian i don't believe it it just sounds really it sounds really strange to read like health information in russian but, but you know exactly but already distrustful of it there's a yorzik like you have exactly oh, i mean i'm, I'm much i like he doesn't mean much it more than i like moscow Wow, strong words. But this is uh, this is not. It's like hard candy. I don't know. I think I don't know. this. Some of my friends sent me that's made with blood to give the kids iron. Whose blood? Like cow blood. Oh, like with chocolate. All right, <laughs> you can keep it. <laughs> <laughs> that's all you. All right, I'm keeping both. But can of I? Can I? Can I take all of the something you're talking about with yeah. emotion? Yeah. Uh, something that is very pernicious in terms of emotion is people denying the validity of their own emotions. And here's one example. Someone could be in an abusive relationship or have had an abusive childhood and they think, well, I didn't have a black eye. We had dinner on the table. It wasn't abusive because you hear some other story. So they feel their emotion isn't valid or like, oh, he never lays hands on me. He gets drunk and is mean to me. He's still basically a good person. You're denying that emotion. And that emotion is a response to something real. There's an expression. I have friends who are in 12-step programs. There's an expression there, which I think is very profound, which is if it's hysterical, it's historical. Meaning if some minor incident is having an extreme disproportionate impact on you, think, ask yourself, why am I responding in such an extreme way mm -hmm. to some minor thing? And I will tell you 10 times out of 10, you'll go back and you'll be like, oh, I'm feeling now like I felt when I was eight. 
And my dad came home and he was a total jerk and I didn't do anything wrong. And he thought I had, and I was completely powerless. Mm -hmm. And now I'm in the same situation, my boss, I'm not that eight-year-old in one sense I am, another sense I'm not, but I feel the same way I did as a kid. And this is a very useful mechanism in terms of furthering one's happiness because you kind of deprogram all those things that you picked up as a child. But it's also, you know, if you're feeling something wrong, even though you're trying to rationalize in a way, you know, it's not abusive because he's not hitting me. No, the emotion is telling you something real about what's going on. So acknowledge it and fix the situation, right? So so one of the powers emotions give you is they, they send you signals about something that might not be in cognition yet. Yeah. And when you examine the emotion, it brings it to cognition. Yeah, yeah. And now you can act on it. So maybe the boss is abusive. Yeah. But I didn't really think of it in those terms. And my emotions is sending me signals. And now that I signal it, I'm going to resign. I'm going to find a better another job. I'm going to complain to his boss or whatever. And I'm going to take action. Why do you think Ayn Rand is such a controversial figure? Last time I spoke with you on this particular podcast, the, um, the amount of emails I've gotten, <laughs> positive and negative, and certainly Not negative. I don't usually get negative emails. Yeah, but uh, you did. Yeah, I, yeah. Can't, I can't relate. What's yeah. <laughs> I'm sure mine were all positive. positive. Uh, it was mostly uh, women sending pictures uh, for me to forward to you. Because you didn't send me any of that. <laughs> I I, oh, it's the wrong them. email address. I'm <laughs> sorry. Kept I kept bouncing. I was sending it to your Oh, email. so this is love. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> love hurts. Okay. Yes. Uh, no. I. It, but why do you think she's such a divisive figure? Uh, why do you think that she provokes such emotion in both the positive and the negative side? I'd love to hear both of your uh, viewpoints on this. Well, I think on the negative side, uh, and both on the positive and the negative side, I think it's because she's radical. <laughs> she's consistently radical. She upends the the uh, premises, the ideas uh, that are prevalent in the culture that we're brought up on that 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 are like you know uh, they're like milk and and, uh, and and you know the basic stuff that we're, we're growing up. You have to be altruistic. You have to live for other people. That's just basic stuff. Nobody challenges that. Nobody questions it. And if they do question it, they usually question it from the perspective of a cynic or a, a, a bad guy. Right, you mentioned the the Joker, right? Before we started, right? That, you know, I'm gonna upend the world because I don't care about other people, right? So, so they're presented with these two alternatives, and it's real in people's lives, right? You either live for other people or you're a evil sob, um, and you know, yeah, most people are neither one of those, but the ethic is right here. It's it's living for other people, and when you challenge that, they have no way cognitively to go with that. And the only place they can go with that cognitively is to the joker. It's to the evil guy. It's to somebody who wants to smash everything and destroy. Because they don't have this alternative conception of, oh, no, you can be rationally self-interested. And that does not involve destruction. And that does not involve, you know, exploiting other people. They can't conceptualize that. It's not in their framework. Um so it's the fact that she's so consistently on the side of self-interest, for example, on the side of capitalism, on the side of freedom. Uh, it's the fact that she dismisses faith to the extent that she does or, or to the extent that I do, right? That alienates people because that is completely different from what they brought up. Now, the flip side of that is it's also really interesting to some people. So, uh, you know, a lot of, you got some positives, right? Um, and I got a lot of positives from that appearance. I know a lot of people came to my podcast because I appeared on your show. Why? Because they hear something that's completely fresh, new, different, 
they've never heard before. It appeals to something in them that maybe, you know, a lot of people say I read Ayn Rand and it confirmed everything I believed. Now, for me, it didn't. It was the opposite. It turned upside down everything I believed. But there are a lot of people out there that who have a sense that something's wrong in the world, that altruism is wrong, that socialism, that just the stuff and, the, and religion is wrong, but they don't have an alternative. It hasn't coalesced. And they listen to a lot of podcasts because they're trying to get ideas of what is it what is it that I'm sensing that's wrong out there? And suddenly somebody comes out and gives them some clear explanation of things and they go, wow, that's what I've been looking for my whole life. So that's the positive for, for people. Um, you know, and I read Ayn Rand, it just all made sense. It all clicked and it all, in, in, in it made clear that everything I believed to that point was just wrong. It just didn't, it didn't integrate. And I always knew to some extent it didn't integrate. But there was no alternative, so I believed it. What, what else was there? I, I remember saying to myself as a kid, probably 15, why should I, why is this, why is morality all about other people? Why is that? Well, that's just the way it is, right? And, and, I, and I couldn't couldn't come up with an explanation. She gave me the explanation, and she gave me the explanation why it's wrong to do that. And I think, so I think that's why people respond. It's just too radical. It can't fit into their cognitive framework that they have been brought up on, that they've been educated on, that, that just their whole life revolves around. Michael, you don't bring up Ayn Rand that much in conversation except as kind of references every once in a while as part of the humor of just the general flow and the music of the way you like to talk. Well, why do you think you don't integrate her into your philosophy when you're like explaining ideas and all those kinds of things? Like why is she not, you know, a popular reference point for discussion of ideas because I, I and I don't, I don't know if your own is going to agree with or can agree with me. I think for a certain percentage of the population, actually, I talked to someone from the Ayn Rand Institute. I forgot his name, older guy with glasses, and he didn't disagree with me. He said, this is changing. I said, I think for a certain percentage of the population who are uninformed about her work, higher than 10%, less than 50%, you mentioned Ayn Rand. They have been trained to think this is identical to Scientology. So as soon as her name comes up, it's like, okay, I'm out the door. I don't, I'm not going to have anything to do with this. And everyone who follows her is a crazy person. That's one thing that has happened. Another thing is Rand in her um, personality was very aggressive and antagonistic. She was for a long time, the lone voice in the wilderness being like, this isn't like uh, you know, the, one of her big adversaries in a certain sense was Milton Friedman. And she really hated how Milton Friedman was like, oh, you know, having rent control is inefficient. And she's like, inefficient? We're talking about mass homelessness and people dying. And you're talking about this, like what color tie goes with this color shirt? Are you in, like, it, and in fact, it's hilarious. Uh, there was an organization called the Foundation for Economic Education, FEE. Leonard Reed was the head of this. And there were a series of letters <laughs> And she was helping him. She was much more philosophically grounded in certain contexts than he was. And there was an essay, a pamphlet that he published called Roofs or Ceilings. Yeah. It was co-written by uh, Milton Friedman, late, later Nobel Prize winner, and George Stigler, also later Nobel yeah. Prize winner. Yeah. And basically the argument was, well, if the government controls all housing, how's that going to work out? And she's sitting there and she's typing in all caps. So you know she's holding on the shift key and doing this. <laughs> on a typewriter. On a typewriter and being like, how? And you can imagine her at, with her cigarette holder, apoplectic, being like, how is an organization ostensibly devoted to free enterprise discussing these 
this Stalinist idea in the most casual of terms. Yeah. She's like, have I taught you nothing? And what's amazing is, so at, at Fee, they only have her letters because she sent them to read. The Ayn Rand Institute must have Leonard Reed letters. Oh, we do. Yeah. I was able to, knowing Rand enough, predict exactly what the conversation <laughs> would go like because he also did something she didn't approve of, which is he asked other people for uh, feedback on her work. And she goes, I gave this to you to read. Who are you shopping around to some jerk that I don't, I need their approval. What are you doing? Yeah. So it was a very uh, interesting situation. But so that's one issue. Now, I remember I this is Ayn Rand when she's young. She wasn't that so, young. Well, I mean, she's relatively young, right? Yeah. It's, it's before Atlas Shrugged. It was before Atlas Shrugged. So it's before she's super famous and before this is, this sure. is the fan has been published, but, but you know, she's, she's trying to work with others and they are disappointing her left and right. Yeah. So, and also when you are a, what she takes away from bad people is you have these kids, right? And you're going to sit down with them and they're going to be like, yeah, I'm going to take your guns. I'm going to lock you in your house. Um, I'm going to take 60% of your income and all this other stuff. And they might, up to reading Rand, they might sit down and have a discussion. And Rand goes, hey, you know what? You don't even have to give them an answer. You could say, go to hell. We're not having this conversation and you have no right to one second of my life. Mm -hmm. And this is not a legitimate opener. This is a declaration of war. This isn't like, it's not like if I sit down with you, Ron, I'm like, hey, Ron, here are my plans for your wife. Go, go to hell. <laughs> yeah. This isn't a conversation we're having. Oh, I'm going to make you unsafe in your house. What? This is not a discussion. So what happens is these people who five minutes ago were able to have a debate with this kid because mm -hmm. people read Rand when they're young often. And now that kid is like, yeah, I'm not even talking to you. It's her fault, whereas in reality, it's that person's fault mm. because that person had no right, although they've been trained to the contrary by our culture, to believe, yeah, I'm going to sit down and we're just going to equally have a discussion over Yaron's life and you have one vote and I have one vote and we're going to, and oh, Lex has a vote and that's just how it's going to be. Like, <laughs> no, this is Lex. And Rand's yeah. not having it. Yeah. Um, so I think those are two issues. And, and there's some other things which which I don't need to get into, but I, I, one of the things that Rand said consistently in her life is that her philosophy is an integrated whole, right? So to be an objectivist isn't just like, I like Atlas Shrugged. It means I accept objectivism as a totality. Since I do not, mm -hmm. I, do, I think it is proper to be respectful to her wishes and not constantly be, especially given that I have somewhat of a platform to be like Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand, because I don't think Ayn Rand would have liked it if I was talking about Ayn Rand this much. So yeah. how do you how do you deprogram because I, I don't like to bring up Ayn Rand just because I do see what, uh, like how people roll their eyes essentially. So how what's do- What's the upside, you know? What, what's the upside exactly? But what is that, pro can, we, can you speak to that programming I think that people have? programming people, I mean, look, at the end of the day, if you talk about the ideas and the ideas make sense and people are attracted to the ideas and you say, oh, by the way, and this came from Ayn Rand, that's how you deprogram them, right? If you make the ideas prevalent in the culture, if people start viewing self-interest as something that's kind of, that's interesting and worthwhile and something worth investigating, and they said, "Oh, that came from Ayn Rand," then I think I think then then we'll we'll deprogram them and get them and get them changing their minds about these things, and also you know going on shows where 
uh, people are going to watch your show no matter who you bring on, right? So uh, well, even though now you do, you, if you put <laughs> Ayn, you, you, you put Ayn Rand in the title, that immediately reduces the number of people who watch. So so in the so. future you but shouldn't. You put but, Michael uh, Malice in the title, and then at least the, the female exactly. population too. The female, to, you know, absolutely. Just, just to see. But, yeah. That's right. But so so you go and you try to make them as credible as possible yeah. to as many people as possible over time. It takes time. And ultimately, I don't think the culture will have this response to her. They might still disagree with her, but I think over time, and already you're seeing it, younger people, I think today are far less. There was a generation who never read Ayn Rand and was like this, bring out yeah, the yeah. garlic and the crosses. We don't want to have anything to do with her. Then, and, and I think today, there are many more people who've read her and might disagree or not disagree, right? And then there are a lot of people who haven't read her, but who are not opposed to it, who are willing to have an engage, to engage. So I think it's changing already. And I think in 20 years, it'll be completely different. And oh, just two more things that she does that I think it says that I think people find very, very off-putting given our culture. One is she will, basically, you could sit down with Rand and be like, your fear is not in any way a hold on my freedom. Just that one sentence. And for a lot of people, that's very off-putting uh, and very harsh. It's correct, mm -hmm. but for them, it's just like, wait a minute, I, I I'm still scared. It's like Sorry, I don't care. Like for example, like with lockdowns and things like this, yeah. it's like, well, I'm scared, and maybe I have a right to be scared. Ah, gotcha. Or like, I'm scared that you have a gun in your yeah. house, yeah. and it's like, I respect that you're scared. I don't care. At the end, at the as you say, at the end of the day, this is my house. I'm going to live my life as I please, as long as I don't hurt other people. Well, you are hurting me because I'm scared. No, that, that's not- This is the feeling versus fact. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that is one uh, situation this where- It's like a feeling uh, versus freedom, essentially. Yes, yeah, so yeah. where, where Rand oh, is, yeah. is, I mean, puts a lot of people off. Um, I also think that historically, a lot of people who were drawn to her are drawn to her for the wrong reasons. That a lot of times, like Howard Rourke, uh, the the hero, you, you, we're going to still say hero, you're supposed to say protagonist, but hero. hero. The hero of the Fountainhead, he's extremely intelligent, but he's also extremely uncompromising. What often ends up happening is you'll have a young kid who is somewhat intelligent, but then they pick up the personality and now you're someone I can't work with. And then it's like, you're not Howard Rourke, relax. You're not that skilled, you're not that talented, but because the character has to be a personification and have certain aspects together, the, when kids read that, they're gonna might get the wrong idea, and that's not Rand's fault. And, and it's more than that. It's it's so so. I, I completely agree with that, but it's it's even broader than that. So so here is a, in my view, you know, one of the geniuses of the millennium presenting a philosophy, and she's got not just the questions. In my view, she's got the answers, and you're reading them at sixteen, and you're reading the answers. You don't know at 16 that this is true. Yeah, yeah. You might have a sense that it's true, but you don't have the life experience, the learned experience. You don't have the facts. You don't have the knowledge. You're picking up truth. It's just being absorbed. You're accepting it as true, but you don't know it's true. And then you go out into the world advocating for it, right? Which we all did, or at least I did when I was 16. And you're obnoxious. You can't prove what you're arguing Yeah, for yeah. Because you don't have the experience. So it took me, I don't know, 10, 20 years, probably 20 to figure out that I really do think she what she said was true, right? But I didn't know when I was 16. When I was 16, I just absorbed these yeah. ideas and accepted them in a sense, you know, with some connection to reality, but in a sense on faith, right? At least presented it that way. Um, and, you, and, and, and as a consequence, you come off as a detached from reality, obnoxious uh, human being. And I think a lot of young objectivists are, and it's hard not to be. Because you are, you're confronted with genius and you're not a genius. I certainly am not a genius. And I'm confronted with just genius and have all this information in my head now. 
I can't articulate it. I, and, 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 I, and, and it's hard to deal with yourself. What, there's an inside joke. No, you said confront with genius, I point to us. Yeah. Uh, yes, I mean, I'm, I'm confronted with you guys. I'm, I'm at an age where I know how to deal with geniuses. Um, I, I, but I'm gonna say, there's something else. This is not why people don't like her, but there's something that the Fountainhead does, which I think is very, uh, um, and I don't, I don't blame her, but it's, it's a bad consequence. If you read the Fountainhead and you're young and you're intelligent and talented, the message, at least I got, and I know I'm not alone, is you are going to think that you're gonna be a pariah that uh, a lot of people are going to be against you, and you're going to—you're basically doomed for a short period right. of being isolated and alone. And that may have been the case when the Fountainhead was written, but I think now with the internet, and in my experience, both as a youth and someone who's a little bit older, I didn't appreciate. And you're not going to get it from that book, and you can't get it through that book because it has to have a certain narrative. How many people who are a little older are giddy when they find young? talent, oh, yeah. how inspiring Absolutely. it is, how exciting it is. Like when you talk to these kids who are doing things on the internet or writing or whatever achievement, you want them to flourish. You don't, you're not threatened by them as the antagonists of the Fountainhead are. And that doesn't come through in the Fountainhead because- but it depends on your profession, right? I mean, for sure. certain parts of the world are better than others. If you're an, well, of course. If you're an artist, at least the way I conceive of art, uh, and you, you want to go study art today, you're going to be poo-pooed and oh, looked down on and, and so on. So, so yeah, I agree. I mean, and in and, and my generation, when I read Ayn Rand, uh, you know, there was no internet. There yeah. was, and I was in Israel. So you, we were isolated and there was nobody else who had shared their ideas. And he did feel that kind of isolation. And, and But Rourke gave you, to me, he didn't teach me about, you know, you're going to be isolated because partially because I wasn't... Um, Maybe I was I was humble, right? Um, <laughs> I, I, I didn't think of myself when when I when I read Atlas Shrugged, I identified with Eddie Willis. Okay. When I read The Fountainhead, I didn't identify with Howard Rourke. How how old were you read The Fountainhead? So I read Atlas when I was sixteen. I probably read Atlas uh, Fountainhead when I was sixteen and a half, seventeen, something like that. That is unfortunate. And I read crime. and I and I you read, read The Fountainhead after Atlas Shrugged. Yeah. If yeah. anyone listening yeah. to this, they should read Fountainhead. If you first, read Fountainhead for me after Atlas Shrugged, no, that is a war crime. No, for me, so for me, not, reading Atlas Shrugged was much more important. You're outnumbered. It is more important, What's but. That? But my point is, I think The Fountainhead in many ways is redundant in certain aspects if you read Atlas Shrugged first. And because right. The Fountainhead is such a masterful book and such a personal book. Yeah. I agree I agree, I agree with that. So it, ideally you would read The Fountainhead That's first. what I'm saying, yes. Um, but And uh, here's the other thing people don't appreciate. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Uh, people think Rand's always about politics, 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 politics. The Fountainhead is not a political book. It's at all. It's about, it, well, she talks about politics in man's soul, sure. sure. But it's about ethics, yeah, how agree. important everyone has to have a moral code. That's the other thing why people find Rand off-putting. If you have young people who now find it very important to live a moral life, who are like, what does that mean to have morality, to have ethics, to live with integrity? For people who have gotten a little older, who have made these little sacrifices, who are like, I'm not gonna fight at work. Do I really need to look mm -hmm. for another job? Yeah, my wife's kind of you know, getting annoying, but am I gonna make a fight about it? These little sacrifices that they make every day. And big ones. And big ones, oh, absolutely. So when you have someone who's saying, forcing you yep. to look in the mirror and say, those little sacrifices and big sacrifices made, you did the wrong thing and you're evading that you betrayed your own conscience, that to many people, I think, is very threatening. But this is why so many people say that Ayn Rand is for fourteen-year-old boys. Yeah, right. 
right? Because, and, and, and there's a reason why there's a reason why it appeals to to 14 is a little young, but but 16, 18. Yeah. It's because those are the ages where we we're still open to idealism, idealism in the positive sense, right? To 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 beautiful things, to ideals, to to to, to seeking perfection, to mm-hmm. seeking uh, to seeking a great life. I think as you grow older, most people become cynical. They give up on their ideals. Why? Because their ideals were wrong and their ideas failed, yeah. right? My, my parents were socialists when they were young. Those ideas failed. So where do you go from socialism if your ideals fail? Cynicism, yeah. To cynicism. Yeah, which is Everybody, horrible. Right? All, all adults, almost all adults out there are cynical. And and that is that is that is failed idealism. And when they look at the young people, they see their idealism. Oh, well, that's the, I was idealistic too. And they don't question the idea, well, they're good ideals and they're bad ideals. Yeah. They're right ideals and they're wrong ideals. And uh, and and that's why they attribute it to, to they attribute it to youth. So it's a threat to a lot of people. A lot of people who it's too late for. For some people, it's too late to change their minds, and and they, and they know it. And and they they're too invested in the in the job, in the wife, in the in the compromises, in the comfort, in the comfort, and the and they're too invested in the comfort, too too, too invested in compromise, too invested in comfort, and they know that they shouldn't be. They know they should change. And these young people are challenging that. And that is really, really scary for them, and that's that's why they reject it without even without too much consideration. What, one of the things Rand, the working title for Fountainhead was Secondhand Lives, mm-hmm. and Rand had two definitions of selfishness in that book. One is selfishness in the sense of my life is the most important thing. It's not the only important thing. Uh, my family would be number two. Friends, they certainly are extremely high values, but you can't have these secondary values without the first value. But in the context of my life, right? Because your family yeah, might yeah, not yeah, be a value, right? You're right, right? right. You might hate your parents. Sure. The point being selfishness. Then there's the other kind of selfishness, which is Peter Keating, one of the villains of the book, which is he's selfish in that he's greedy. He's looking out for number one, but he has no values. He has no sense of character. He just wants to be wealthy. He wants to have a beautiful wife. He wants to have a big house. Why? He couldn't tell you because other people have it and he wants to have it more than them. His sense of reference is other people. He's living secondhand. What the problem with that is, a lot of young people read Rand, and when they start arguing online, they just start trying to talk like Rand, whereas Rand mm-hmm. would be like, be original, be an innovator. If you want to argue for objectivism in Rand's views, take her ideas, articulate them in your own way, because that's a good way of showing that you understand what she thinks. But what they end up doing is just talking like her. Mm-hmm. It sounds dated and comical. And that's going to be off-putting because it's like Rand wouldn't expect someone else to sound like Rand. She's her, uh, yeah. you know, her own person. So, so and you- she, of course, wouldn't view Keating as selfish in any sense because, it, or even greedy. Greed is a tricky word, but well, she, well, he selfish, was selfish in the old school sense. Yeah, he's selfish in the old. But but even there, he, it's not as if it's not as if he has some passion and he's going after passion no matter what. I'm going to, you know, light sheet steel. I'm going. He he doesn't have he, his passion is painting, right? And he doesn't pursue his passion. He pursues what his mother wants him to pursue. Right, right, yeah. And he pursues money and he, he pursues- Status. He's, com- he's, he's a status completely yeah. second-handed in the sense that he follows other people's values, not his own. Can we actually just backtrack and can we define some of these ideas that uh, Ayn Rand is known for of selfishness? Selfishness, egoism, egotism, yeah. greed. I mean, those, all basically all of those words are seen as negative in society. Yes. And uh, Ayn Rand has been reclaiming in her work those words- so can and you speak them. to I, what they mean? Do I, think you- she's, I think she's trying to, Yaron might disagree. I think she's trying to be needlessly provocative um, and it, it's off-putting. And on, on one hand, 
maybe you want to be a provocateur because that gives you people like, what does this woman mean? On the other hand, they, many people are going to be viscerally put off. When Ayn Rand was on Donahue in 1979, yeah. he asked her explicitly, define to me the virtue of selfishness, which is the title of her collection of essays as well. And she, this is Rand, immediately mm -hmm. says, use a different word, self-esteem. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, it's like, why are you championing this word which has extremely negative connotations. Whereas if you just say, and this is thanks to her and her work, my life matters, my values matter, I'm not going to apologize for that. That is a lot less off-putting yeah. than this caricature of Rand, which is I'm for, when people hear I'm for selfishness, they hear, oh, someone's bleeding out in the corner, but I want to get a Coke. That's nice. She condemned that. She says, I'm against this kind of sociopathy. That's absolutely yeah. crazy. But so that you, word selfishness- It becomes a mistake to uh, to to uh, to be provocative in this one uh, dimension, to go yes. like, and to stick with it. I mean, yes. she's stuck with this idea of yes. selfishness and so on. This term, and it's, I, 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 I often use terms for provocative effect. Yes, this is true. Yeah. You're a master, you're a scholar of the trolling <laughs> arts. Thank you, sir. Uh, but I, I think this is one example where the costs outweigh the benefits. and. Go ahead, Your Honor. Yes, I'm, I'm. I don't. I'm open to that idea, but I don't. I don't think that's right. When when you actually dig, uh, you know, uh, deeper into what people object to, they're not objecting to the word; they're objecting to the ideas. Um, and uh, she addresses this explicitly in the virtue of selfishness. In the, I think the introduction. Wait, hold on. I got. I got. That's for clarification. Yeah. You're saying they're objecting to the ideas, but when they talk about her, they're not talking about her actual ideas. They're talking about the caricature. Well, sure, but 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 the caricature is a defense mechanism, okay? Not to not to have to deal with the ideas, sure. right? So so they create the caricature in order to ignore the ideas, in order to and and some of them do it consciously, like when 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 people like Krugman and others do this, they know exactly what they're doing. Well, right? Krugman's an Andre, is Ellsworth Tui. Yes, he's he's, he's the pretty perfect much, Ellsworth yes. Tui, and and he he knows Ayn Rand, he's read Ayn Rand. And he knows she's the enemy in some sense. He knows. Uh, check out our episode with uh, with uh, Krugman. Uh, I think it's number ninety. Uh, it was a great conversation. Didn't get as many views as me, but what are you going to do? No. Well, he got, got a Nobel Prize. So uh, what you got? I've got, got a ticket to heaven. <laughs> Sorry, Paul. Uh, uh, Yasser Arafat has a Nobel Prize, and Hitler was uh, Times Man is, of the Year for yes, a few that times. Is, but that you, is, you, that that really bothers uh, me when people bring that up. Are you really? It, yeah, Time of the Year. Ti it's man called of the, the year joke, not Michael. Good, is it? <laughs> Man of the Year is not representative good. It's the, it represents the most influential person yeah. of that year, and Hitler was. Absolutely. Wait, years. what were you uh, upset about? When people like, well, t look at Time Magazine. They called Hitler Man of the Year. They like you're yeah. on side. They weren't say this guy's awesome. They said this is the guy who moved oh, out no. the world they the most. Yeah. 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 I don't know. It's not like he was. I, I don't. I, I don't go out there. <laughs> <laughs> that, now that's the who yeah. they like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hitler's terrible. Oh, yeah. no. The Stalin guy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh no, no, I'm not even joking. The, the attitude what? between the, the attitude of people. Between Nazism and or fascism and, and communism is stunning. Like, and I've got it, a, in I've my got upcoming book, I have all the receipts. How like the the things that they were saying about Stalin at the time oh, yeah. are, if you look back, it's unconscionable. And these people have had no accountability in for the what positive they did. But, but direction. It's not, yes. it's not at, even at the time. And I, 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 we need to get back to the selfishness stuff. But it's not even at the time. So I'm. I, I was once. Uh, I, I think I've told this story. I, I was at. Uh, I was in the green room uh, going on John Stossel show. And so a bunch of libertarians, right, are, are, are in the green room, all hanging out. And this guy walks in, this young guy walks in. And uh, somebody says to me, you know, he's he's a communist. I said, what do you mean? Said, they said, no, no, he's he's a card-carrying real member of the Communist Party. He's a communist. And I said, 
and that's okay with you guys? And they go, yeah, yeah, he's a nice guy. And I'm like, no, this is not acceptable. Hold on. <laughs> Let me quote Rand. Rand said <laughs> yeah. she would rather talk to a, a philosophical yeah. Marxist, right? Did she not say this? Yeah, but this is not a, this is, this is a communist in the context of 21st century, right? So, so I said- But not 20th. Well, well, in in a sense that we know exactly what sure, sure, we know sure. exactly. Oh yeah, yeah, that's fair. so. I'm that's fair. I'm like this guy has the blood of a hundred million people on his hands. I'm I'm not letting him off the hook. So I get I engage with this guy, and and and, and literally we get into this. You know, I'm I'm telling him what I what I think of his ideas, and therefore what I think of him. Um, and uh, the people from the wardrobe department come out, and their chairs are put aside, and you know this little gladiator ring. It's like the libertarians are like uh, sitting there amused because to them it's just it, you know. And I don't, you know, I'm not going to name names, but to them, it's just like, yeah, he's a communist. No and I said, I said at some names. point, and I said at some point to them, <laughs> I won't name names because yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I said at some point to them, if somebody walks into a room and says, I'm a Nazi, do you just treat him as, okay, let's, let, let's go hang out and get I, some drinks? I do. I don't. I do. Because I wrote a book about this, The New yeah. Right, and yeah. I did talk to Nazis and I went to North Korea. Yeah, because you were writing a book. Yeah. Right, but but you're not you're not going to hang out with a Nazi or a communist just like the regular person, right? To me, a Nazi and a communist are the same. I I don't under okay. Please explain this because first of all, anytime yeah. you have equivocation, I hate that because yeah. I don't I don't like equality. I think it's a bad concept. Sure, we're all sitting here as Jewish people, right? We're I'm from triggered. the we're from the Soviet Union. Yeah, to say these two things are basically the same. It's a matter of life and death for all of us. We'd be dead under Hitler. We're not doing so hot under Stalin, but we're still alive. So sure. So there's as, a, there's as, some very big difference. Sure. It's, so, so, one more thing. So within also, the context, hold on. One more right? thing. There's also one very big difference in yeah. that one has a lot worse of a brand name, and the other does not, even though the other should. It's a brand. Yeah. 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 So I so I, I agree. So there's a context in which I would fear Stalin more than Hitler. There's a different context in which I would hit fear sure. Hitler. But as ideologies, they are equally evil. Wait, wait, but not not the same because the difference between communism and fascism. But as ideologies, they're equally evil. They both view the individual as insignificant, unimportant, and they both basically want to kill any independent-minded. Well, human. you're equating communism and Stalinism, so you're equating. No, I'm equating co communism. Is, I don't know what Stalinism is. I don't care. Uh, Stalinism is one version of communism. It's an implementation. Sure yeah. Communism is an evil ideology, no matter who practices it. I, I don't. I don't think that's. I. I, I think that's too um, loose. Because here's one example: the first person who went to the Soviet Union from the left and denounced it was Emma Goldman. Mm -hmm. She was an anarcho-communist, right? Mm -hmm. So she went there. She got deported from the United States. She went to Lenin to his face. Hold on, let me finish. You're already. You're already dismissing what I'm saying. <laughs> Me? Your body language, no, your emotions. No. Your, listen, the humility. His, yeah. History doesn't humility. care. Where your, history doesn't yeah. care about your feelings yeah. either. She goes to Lenin. She goes, we're supposed to be about free speech. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to be about the individual freedom. What are you doing? And he goes, free speech is a bourgeois extravagance. Mm -hmm. You can't have it during a revolution. Right. Too bad. She comes back to the West. Wait, he's right? Yeah. Oh, no. You know, yeah, correct. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, yeah. He's more consistent. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah he's more consistent. She's, she's a compromise. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Well, I don't, she comes back to the West, <laughs> the big red Emma, the big hero of the left. And she goes, you guys. This is, this is a complete, not, she didn't say bad. Yeah. She was very random. She goes, this is pure evil. Yeah. This is horrifying. What they're doing to the workers, which you supposedly care mm -hmm. about, completely yeah. oppressing. And when one person described, they go, when she got up to talk, it was a standing ovation. And when she was finished, you could hear a pin drop because she wasn't some capitalist. She wasn't some bourgeois conservative. She was as hard left for violent revolution as it gets. 
And so I don't think she, as a communist, is an evil person. I think she is because because if she if she wasn't evading and and you know with Rand and I think in reality the, the the essence of evil is evasion is is ignoring the facts of reality is putting your feelings ahead of your facts uh, she would realize that what was going on in the Soviet Union was the inevitable consequence of her ideas that could be just so she done. could have so she could have changed her mind she could have coming back to the Soviet Union said these ideas are wrong. I now repudiate my ideas, not just of implementation, but my ideas. And then I would have said, yeah, she'd been mistaken before, and now she's confronted reality. But if she stayed a leftist, if she stayed a leftist to that extent, she not did, just yeah. a mild leftist, oh, yeah, she but a leftist, leftist yeah, yeah. then I think she's dishonest and therefore immoral, right? So, But you're so, using three words identically. You're saying dishonest, immoral, and evil. And I'm okay, I, so I, evil so evil is is more is is a is an extreme form of immorality, sure, right? Of course. So okay, so she's she's immoral, the ideology she holds is still evil because the ideology she might be delusional. That's yes. but delusional but, and but, evil on the same. But she can be delusional, she cannot be delusional. See, I, I, I'm willing to accept a delusion before she's gone to the Soviet Union and seen it. Once she's gone to see it, I don't think that excuse holds anymore. I think now she's been confronted and she's lying to herself about the implications of it. Uh, logically, it's inevitable that what happens in the Soviet Union has to happen in any communist uh, context. So to play a little bit of a devil's advocate here, is it logically inevitable? Is it? Can you imagine that there is communist systems where the consequences we've seen in the 20th century are not the, the consequences we get? In imagine future societies under different conditions, under different you know with the internet, different communication schemes, different as long uh, as human set of resources. Are what we are now, the Borg. You remember the Borg from from Star Trek or whatever the series okay, was? Okay, nerd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, okay, okay. No, I, I, <laughs> I, I'm a nerd. Okay, um, the Borg. It's the highest of compliments. The Borg the in highest, this household. The Borg is the highest of Lex. The, the, <laughs> the Borg is com the Borg is communist, right? The Borg is a different species. It has a different biology. Sure. It has a yeah. business different form of consciousness. Now, whether such a being could could survive evolution is a question. Whether well, such ants, they don't have to be intelligent. Yeah, but they. But then the question is, can you have free will? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Human <laughs> cognitive cognition and be a Borg. Right, I don't yeah. think so. But maybe, sure. maybe in another planet. But You got to take beings, DMT to meet the Borg. <laughs> <laughs> See, human beings, no. Communism is anti, the reason communism is evil is it's anti-reality, anti-human nature, anti-the individual, and therefore it is inherently evil. It cannot result in anything good coming out of it. Only bad can come of it. Do you it. think you could have predicted that before the 20th Yes, and plenty century. of people did. It's not, it's not. You know who did? Mikhail Bakunin. Mikhail Bakunin, who was an early communist, Marx's rival in 18, uh, this is going to be in my upcoming book, in 1860, he sat down and wrote an essay, goes, what Marx is advocating is insane. This is going to be worse than the czar. You're talking about complete totalitarian nightmare. When you put this into practice, it's going to be something we've never seen before. It's a pure horror. But he was a hardcore leftist. But look, Marx predicted it, right? We talked yeah, that's about true. Yeah, yeah. Marx at some point says certain people cannot be part of the politician. They have to be liquidated. So this idea of mass murder and mass killing is not new to communism. It is an inherent part of what it means. You're either politician or you're not. And you look... And in Marx, it's in Marx, right? The individual doesn't matter. Now, he might matter in his utopia because he knows he's got a marketing problem. 
See, Marx has a marketing problem because the fact is you have individuals. How do you convince individuals to give up their individualism, to give up the individuality? What you say is, well, we have to go through this difficult process yeah, yeah, yeah. to get to this utopia. And in this utopia, I mean, he's very Christian. I mean, this is the other thing about Marx. About the end time. Marx yeah, yeah, is yeah. very Christian in everything, in his morality, in his collectivism, and in the end time. The end times for Marx is going back to the Garden of Eden. The end time for Marx is you don't have to do anything. Food is just available. Every Wealth is just available. You can do your hobbies. You can do everything. You can do whatever you want, whatever feelings, whatever. So it's going back to Garden of Eden perception, perspective on human. So he knows what that is going to require. It's going to require this dictatorship of the proletarian to get there. And he never tells you how we get there, right? There's no, there's no game plan. Where there's, right? a way, yeah, yeah. there's a dictatorship, then there's utopia. <laughs> It's like the underpants notes. And not, nothing, step yeah. one, dictatorship. Step two, question mark. Step yeah. three, utopia. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. the question mark is where the action is, right? Annihilate. Yeah, you yada yada the important yeah. part. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> and people buy this garbage, right? So there's nothing of value in Marx. I mean, let me be very clear. There's nothing. He gets capitalism wrong. He gets the proletarian wrong. He gets the workers wrong. He gets uh, uh, the labor theory of value is wrong. There is nothing of value. There's nothing of value in communism. It is a wrong, unfitted to human nature ideology from beginning to end. The clarity with which you speak is just not something I, I don't think I have that clarity about anything. So I, I mean, it has to do with that thing that where everybody has something to teach you. I just feel like I've been reading Mein Kampf recently, for example, for the first time. Something to learn from Hitler? Well, there's a lot to learn from Hitler. About the nature of evil, about wrong ideas, not about anything good, not about anything positive. Oh, so yes, yeah, so that's probably a really bad example. And, but uh, say, uh, why is Hitler different than Marx? Well, that's a very good question. No, I, I get that. But in terms of ideas, why is Hitler different than Marx? Why, well, why do we have? Do I, why do we have to assume this ha there's something to learn from Marx, but there's nothing? But the, but we acknowledge that there's nothing positive to learn well, from Hitler. Because I mean, all right. Well, I could tell you something in the sense that, like, there's an interesting question: is how did this person get from step A to being yeah. able to implement the ideas? I know you. Everybody should read. Anybody who's interested should read Marx because it's it's really important. It's important in the history, right. and and a lot of people were influenced by it. How, how, why was it influential? What is it that he says that appeals to people? I find it interesting to see all the parallels with Christianity. And I think that's why, to a large extent, it appeals to people because they got to give up the unimportant part of religion and got to keep the fun parts of religion, uh, the important parts to them of religion, the morality, for example. Um, but no, there's not something positive to learn from everybody. In Ayn Rand's view, in your view, who was worse, Stalin or Hitler? I think worse is, this is something that I, I'll, I'll do a Randian sin and be evasive. It really drives me crazy when people sit down and have these competitions about like if someone who's Jewish brings up the Holocaust and someone who's African-American brings up slavery. Mm -hmm. And this is a conversation that I think is pointless yep. and very hurtful and harmful and it is, is really like silly and ridiculous. So it might make sense in like some kind of stoner context about like you're doing the math and trying to figure out. But it's like, you know, and yeah, you could be like, what would you rather have like this kind of cancer or full-blown AIDS? And sure, I mean, there's got to be life expectancy, but these are such, I'll evade your question, reframe it. I think we understand, and a lot of this is a function of the propaganda at the time, and I'm not using the word propaganda in a negative sense, the horrors of Hitler and Nazism. I think, and one of the things I'm trying to solve with my upcoming book, there is a very poor understanding about the horrors of Stalinism. 
uh, and what that meant in practice. One of the reasons I wrote Dear Reader, my North Korea book, and what I was shocked and delighted by when I started writing Dear Reader, I thought to myself, look, I have very little capacity to affect change, what I, but I can tell stories. I can write books. Mm -hmm. This is my competency. If I move the needle in America, we got it pretty good here. If I move the needle in North Korea, this could have really profound positive consequences. And I, so I set a very limited goal. And that goal is to change the conversation about North Korea, to stop it being regarded as a laughing stock, and start regarding it as a existential horror. And the metaphor I use always, and we brought up earlier, was the Joker. Because people look at Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-il, his father, they look at a clown. This guy's a buffoon, and that's valid. And I go, and I said, this is what I can do. I can move that camera a little bit. Yeah. And now that camera, instead of looking at Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-il, you see behind him literally millions of corpses. And when you see people putting on these performances in these shows, look at these fools, then you're like, every one of those people, their kid has a gun to their head right now. Yeah. If, a kid, if someone puts a gun to your kid's head, you're going to put on clown makeup? Yeah, you are. What color? Any? Put on the shoes, whatever you want. So in terms of uh, people do not appreciate the horrors of Stalinism, uh, I think this is a big fault of the right wing. You can't expect necessarily the New York Times to do this because of the blood on their hands. And for a long time, I was berating conservatives. I go, this was the big right wing victory, the, the bloodless largely, mm -hmm. the victory of the Soviet Union. No one's talking about it. No one's informing. And there, let's be clear, there are very many people who are Democrats who are on the left who are violently opposed, literally violently opposed to the Soviet sure. Union. It's horrors. There was the, you, this is not necessarily not a right partisan yet. issue. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to do something about it. So I know that's not really literally your question, but you know that's kind of information that feeds. Let into me the ask you that question, if it's okay. Yeah. So, what, uh, which do we can we learn more from from a historical perspective, looking forward, from okay. like which has more lessons in uh, in how to avoid it, how to, and just general lessons about human nature. Well, I mean, I, I agree with Michael that, that it, it, it's not important who's more evil because they're both evil and they're both just so evil that the differences don't matter. What matters is uh, what is the ideology? What, is the, what, is, uh, what are the consequences? What do we understand from it? What are we worried about? What are we going to avoid? So I'm not worried about Nazism qua Nazism because everybody hates Nazism. I mean, it, it's uniform that that's out. Even the people I think on the far right in America uh, are staying away from the cliches of Nazism, although some of them are stupid enough not to. But but in the end, if 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 uh, the United States goes authoritarian right, it's not going to be Nazism. It'll be some other form of fascism uh, because that is so. Uh, obviously, you know, being understood as evil and bad, that there's almost no understanding that the evil of communism. I mean, you brought it up earlier, right? Um, almost nobody understands that communism is an evil ideology. That there's that there's nothing worthwhile there. That any any attempt to go in that direction uh, in any sus sustainable way is destructive. There there are, as you mentioned, there are economists out there claiming they are communists. I mean, I find that despicable. Uh, that anybody would claim to be a communist uh, economist or communist anything, because I think that's it's uh, it's a it's a ideology that has no basis. But we haven't learned that. So to me, communism is the much bigger threat because we still think it's some kind of beautiful ideal 
in in the world around us. I think Nazism's out, but I think I think fascism is a is a massive threat out there because I don't think we've learned real lessons of nobody knows what Nazi, fascism is. Everybody thinks fascism is Nazism. They don't they don't recognize that in a sense we are already fascist and that we're suddenly heading in that direction. Uh, so they don't know what it is. And again, we haven't studied. And the real lesson here is we haven't studied what unifies them both because there's not a big difference between fascism and communism. There's no big difference between what, Nazism and what communism. What does unify them? What unifies them is the common good, the public interest. What unifies them is this idea that there is some elite group of people who can run our lives for us for the common good, for the public interest. Uh, and it, that it, you don't matter. That's you the as most an individual, yeah. you individual don't matter, and they they will dictate how you live. And you know, so these are philosopher kings. It goes back to Plato's philosophy, but it you really unifies it. Think about communism. Communism is about the sacrifice of the individual to the proletarian. Who is the proletarian? It's this collective group here. Who represents the proletarian? Well, they have, somebody has to. Somebody has to tell the proletarian what they believe in because they don't know because there is no collective consciousness. So you need a Stalin. And this is the point about Marxism. Marxism needs a dictator because somebody has to represent the, 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 the values, the, the, the public interest, what's good for the public. Nazism needs the same thing. Just Nazism replaced proletarian with Aryans the Aryan race, and you have exactly the same thing. You need a dictator to tell us what's good for the Aryan people so we can do what's good for the Aryan people. So it's impossible to have a communist system or a fascist system without a dictator naturally emerging. It's not It's not possible it's to not have a George. It's, it's, it's ideologically. Ab- it's absolutely impossible to have that on, on scale. You can certainly have communes well, I, where I, people I, behave communistically. Because it's not inside well, the ideology that that should happen. Hold on, let me talk about this. Because let's talk about fascism. Because fascism definitionally is going to have a strong man. I, I don't even know if, what, how it could be fascism without that. And let's talk, what you said earlier on uh, is about how people don't know what fascism is. Mm-hmm. Fascists don't know what fascism is. Yeah. So there's a superb book by John Diggins from the early 70s called uh, Mussolini and Fascism, The View from America. So I find Mussolini to be a far more interesting figure than Hitler because he had a much more nuanced career. He was much more of an innovator. He was an intellectual. Uh, he was which is, intellectual. Which is shocking because yeah, yeah. he always comes across as a buffoon. A buffoon yeah, but he's he was actually a thinker. So why did he not hold, resist hold, hold Hitler on. at all? Hold on. Okay. So so one of the things with fascism is it comes. It's a direct line from mm-hmm. Kant to Mussolini. Yep. There's a, so basically uh, there is a philosopher who I adore, who I'm sure you don't, called Schopenhauer. And Schopenhauer, <laughs> the question became Rand. Rand was not a particularly humorous person. She had some moments of wit. There's a great moment when she was on Tom Snyder's show Mm -hmm. in 1980, I believe. And she's talking about Kant. And she goes, Immanuel Kant and all his illegitimate children, if you catch my meaning, she mean all his bastards. But the host, Tom Snyder, did not pick up on it. If you watch it on YouTube, you could pick up on it. And what happened was once Kant bifurcated reality into the phenomenal world, the pure idea world, and the noumenal world, the question became, well, what is the nature of this world of ideas? And Hegel had it meant reason. I don't know, even know what that means theoretically, <laughs> that the world of reason is idea. And this is Schopenhauer, who hated Hegel, who constantly attacked him by name and Hegel's followers in his work. He was a very big innovator in a malevolent way because mm-hmm. he said the nature of reality, this idea is will, yep. meaning the universe doesn't care about you. And it's constantly in this reality, putting urges in your mind, values. 
And when you denounce these values and urges, that's the basis of morality. Mm -hmm. And from there, it went to Nietzsche. And the will isn't mindless. It is a will to power. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mussolini took this and basically said, because the will to power is the real reality, the Kantian idea, therefore, all of this is secondary. So if we will it, we can make it happen. When you have this concept of my willpower is stronger than reality, and you're like, okay, how's this program going to work? We can make it happen. That was why fascism is not a very coherent ideology, because explicitly, there's a book called, uh, from 1936, called The Philosophy of Fascism, which tried to codify this. 36, this is a long time ago, where they're like, we're against reason and explicitly rationality. We are for willpower, for strength. And if you are strong enough and united enough, you can force these things mm-hmm. to work. So it, it's uh, there's a lot that is not taught about this ideology. I highly recommend people read the books from the time. And what was fascinating about Mussolini is he was regarded as the moderate. Yep. Because the 1930s, you had the Great Depression. All the intellectuals said, this proves capitalism can't work. The Great Depression, obviously, air quotes, is capitalism's fault. Then you had the alternative, the USSR. Well, that's not tenable for us. Here comes Mussolini. And Mussolini says, I'm going to take the best of both worlds. I have aspects of markets, capitalism, but I don't have this chaos. And But I also don't have complete con- government control of the bureaucrats. I'm going to have this combination. And there was a Broadway song, You're the Top. You're Mussolini. That was later edited out because that's when he took a bad turn. But this is kind of the uh, fascist idea. And, and it's about power and it's about control. That's, that's yeah. the essence. It's about will. So it, they don't care. Fascists don't care who owns stuff, owns in quotes, because, right. because what's important is who controls it. Mm-hmm. So you can own your home. But if I get to tell you when you can sell it, for how much yeah. you can sell it, and what you can do on that home, then I'm in control of it. That's the essence of fascism. And if you think about it, we live today in a much more fascist economic context than anything else. Uh, you know, we, we pretend that corporations are private, but when everything they do is regulated, who they can hire, how, you know, how much they pay them, uh, when and how they can fire them, what they can do in their property, you know, it's all control. That's the way fascists, uh, you know, start controlling Everything, but it's and, not possible to have checks on power and balance on power at the top of fascism or communist systems. The, the question was whether in uh, fascist systems or communist systems, we're saying the dictator naturally or must emerge. If but, I don't say emerge, the dictator is the one who makes the fascist system. Yeah, fascism. No. Well, it it is it it could emerge because, for example, I think today in America we're moving more, much more towards fascism, sure. towards socialism. And at some point, that'll manifest itself in some kind of dictator. And the dictator might be different than a Mussolini or a Nazis. It might be couched in some kind of constitution, pseudo-constitutional uh, American it would be a lot easier. It would be a right? lot easier for a female to be a fascist dictator in America than a male because you have that softness. She's not going to come off as a strong woman. People won't see it coming, in my May, opinion. Maybe. So I, I think it's going to be, I have my own view. I think it's going to be a... a a nationalist, religionist, environmentalist. I think somebody who can combine those well, three. Well, Hitler did those, yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And yeah. somebody who can combine those three and articulate the case for it, I think America's ready so for it. So you think it's possible but, for fascism to arise in the world again? Yes, oh, of course. Definitely. It had never went away. It never they went just, away. They just adopt the name. And it, because the fundamental ideas, the Kantian ideas, the, the, the ideas that are behind 
fascism never went away. They're, they're still as popular, if anything, more popular than they were back then. Marx is as popular. I, I, I think these ideas are, are prevalent. They're out there. And, and absolutely, we, I think America is ready for them. Uh, again, it won't be quite in the form that we've experienced in the past. It'll be in a yeah. in a uniquely American form, couched to the flag, and uh, of course, it was couched to the flag before. Um, but no, uh, yes, an authoritarian, some form of authoritarianism is necessary because the fundamental principle behind both communism and fascism is the in- unimportance of the individual. The individual is nothing. The individual is a nobody, and the importance of the collective. The collective, the collective will, the collective soul, the collective consciousness, but the collective has no will, has no soul, has no consciousness. So somebody has to emerge to speak for the collective. Otherwise, everything falls apart, right? So it's it's necessary whether it's a committee or whether it's one person. How exactly create? Somebody has to speak for the collective. Even a committee doesn't function as a committee, right? Most committees, particularly when the committee is about dictating how people should live, somebody is going to, because now it becomes really, really important, somebody is going to dominate that committee and rule over it because you don't want independent source, uh, independent voices because the pe- individual doesn't matter. And the individual doesn't count. People are naturally hierarchical. So if you have seven people and they're ostensibly have the same role, someone is going to emerge as a leader naturally and some people are going to yeah, follow. Yeah, it's the same reason you cannot have the Richard Wolf type socialism of, um, and this is the more, if you will, innocent part of his ideas. Oh, why can't we have corporations all be worker-owned and everybody votes on everything and we vote on who should be CEO? And No, communism, fascism, most ideas <laughs> necessitate ultimately authoritarians. And that's most of human history. We forget again. This idea of liberty, this idea of freedom, even the limited freedom we have today. It's a recent invention. It's a recent invention. It happens in little pockets throughout history. You know, we had a little bit of this democracy stuff, partial, only if you, you know, some people got to vote and it wasn't rights respecting because they didn't have the concept of rights in Athens, right? Yet in a few Greece, Greek yeah. cities. We maybe had a version of it in Venice. We had a version of it in city states around the world. But then it was invented by the founding fathers in this country. That that that's That's what makes the founding of America so important and so different and such a radical thing to have happened historically. Freedom is rare, authoritarianism is common. So I was looking at some uh, statistics that uh, 53% of people in the world live under authoritarian governments. So the majority- Only 53, oh, because India is is democratic, so I guess they don't count India, but yeah, but yes, so how it do used we- to be 100. How do we change <laughs> Exactly, yeah. How and do we e- change that? How do and we even the authoritarianism that? in a country like China is a lot less than it used to be under Mao, right? So, so I would, I would, you know, they, they were better off than they were under Mao. That's a reality. How do we change it? We have to declare. We have to change the ethical views of people. This brings us back to selfishness, it, because it, it, it. As long as the standard of morality is the group, others. As long as the standard of value is what other people want, what other people think. As long as you are alive only to be sacrificed to the group. That's why you have to challenge Christianity. As long as the, the, the Jesus on a cross dying for other people's sin is viewed as this noble, wonderful act instead of one of the most unjust things that ever happened to anybody, as long as the common good and the public interest are the standards by which we evaluate things, we will always drift towards fascism, some form of authoritarianism. I'm gonna, uh, can I uh, yes, answer your question? I think there's something that has to go along with what Yaron was saying, and I know he's going to agree with me, which is technology. 
because if it becomes harder technologically for the authoritarian and more more expensive for him to input or force his edicts, that is going to create a pocket of freedom regardless of what the masses think. And the masses as a hold on, let me finish. Yeah. The masses as a rule are not going to be able to think in general anyway. I've 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 a much more elitist view of mankind than, than Rand does. So let me give you one specific example, which I mentioned in my book, then you write. Let's suppose it's 1990, not that long ago. We all remember 1990, mm -hmm. and we're having an argument about censorship. And Yaron says, I want full sense, full freedom of the press, free, freedom of books, publish whatever you want, whatever, free free speech. And I say, well, what about books like Mein Kampf? What about, you know, people read this, get the wrong idea. What about child pornography, things like this? Like, where are you going to draw the line? And we could argue along. Lex appears from the future and he goes, hey guys, this conversation is moot. And we're like, Lex, you look exactly the same. I'm like, yeah, of course, <laughs> robust don't age. And you go, I'm from the future. And I go, wait a minute, black president? And you go, look, this conversation is moot because in a few years from now, you will be able to send any book anywhere on earth at the speed of light. You can make infinite copies at in one second, and you could send it to anyone such that they can only open this book if they know a magic word. Mm -hmm. And I go, well, how much is this going to cost? Oh, it's free. free. And I go, wait, wait, you're telling me I can make infinite copies of any book and teleport them at the speed of light anywhere for free. And you would say, yes, we would think he's insane, but that's the status quo, right? So technology has done far more to fight government censorship of literature and ideas than has spreading the right ideas. So when you have things like crypto, which makes money less accessible than a gold block in your house, when you have things like people being able to travel quickly, those are also necessary uh, compliments to having the right ideas. And Rand herself said that she couldn't have come up with her philosophy before the Industrial Revolution. So as time goes forward and we have more technology and we have more discourse. But for a def very different sure, reason, but she it, said that. Sure, right? but, but it's also a lot easier to persuade people the right ideas. So I kind of agree. I, I, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm more pessimistic or maybe I don't get the technology completely. Um, That's because you're a boomer. There you go. <laughs> Okay, Boomer. I, I, I get that insult a lot. Yeah, I think I'm the last year of the Boomer generation. I think, it's I, a I, think I hit that last year. It's a mindset. There yeah. you go. Um, <laughs> I love you so much. So the reason she said she couldn't have developed her, <laughs> the reason she said she couldn't develop the uh, philosophy without the Industrial Revolution, is the link between reason and wealth was not obvious before the Industrial Revolution. And that, you know, for, for example, it's not obvious to Aristotle. Aristotle doesn't see the link between rationality yeah. and wealth creation. Business is low, uh, you know, and, and money is barren. Money is barren. Interest has no productive function. Bankers don't have. So, uh, so she, you had to see it existentially to be able to see reason is the source of wealth creation. Um, so I think that's a little different. Now, there is a sense in which, yes, technology makes it more difficult for authoritarians to achieve their authoritarianism. I, I wouldn't, I'm not convinced that they can't. I didn't say can't. Yeah. Okay. I, I didn't say can't. No, yeah. No, so, so, so I don't think- At a certain point, because I'm saying they can turn expensive. off their electricity. I'm just saying yeah. it becomes more expensive. Yes. It becomes more expensive, no question. It becomes more expensive. And it, we're still beings that live in a physical reality. 
uh, therefore, they can still harm us in in this physical reality. But, but let me say this: like, I, it's going to sound as absurd if there was technology that we could teleport anywhere on Earth at the speed of light. Well, sure, that would certainly do, go a long way towards hurting uh, authority. Sure, if yeah. there was some way to go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and sure. of course, they could teleport too. Sure. And and this is of course the danger of 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 they can use the technology too. Sure, absolutely. And, and look at what the Chinese are doing with social scores and and uh, and with monitoring people and cameras everywhere. So there's a sense in which you probably had more privacy. Uh, before some of the oh, technology, absolutely. so so it's not obvious to me that to, so to me it's all about ideas, uh, and if we don't get the ideas right, technology will be used for evil. Yes, and it will allow some of us maybe to escape for a little while in in some realms, but others not. Uh, you know, Iran and and uh, North Korea do a pretty good job shutting themselves away from technology, uh, although a lot gets through in the Iranian, at least with Iran. And I don't, North know, Korea, I, right? I don't yes. know about North it's Korea, really, how much gets through. It's really undermining them, which is wonderful. Yeah, which is great. Uh, so so yes, and it, but it's, it's more than that. And this is what leads me to be optimistic. It's that we live in a world today where 7 billion people basically have access to all of human knowledge, all of human knowledge. It's not like in Rome, when Rome fell, all of human knowledge disappeared. Now, some of it escaped to Byzantines. Some of the Byzantines had and ultimately landed up with the Arabs and found its way back into Western civilization through them. But a lot of knowledge disappeared, just wiped out, right? How to build a dome, how to build a big dome, how to have, you know, in Pompeii, they had faucets, that running water and faucets. They didn't have faucets for another thousand years, right? Mm. Um, A lot of, they couldn't build tall buildings once Rome came down. The Great Pyramid Um, of Egypt, was the tallest building on earth till like 1840. It was yeah. crazy. Rome was a city of a million people. Other than China, there wasn't another city of a million people in the West until London in the 19th century, 1500 oh, yeah. years later. So it all disappeared because all of it was concentrated basically in one place. Today, none of that exists because of the internet, because because of in- universities everywhere, institutions. I mean, think about how many engineers there are in the world today, right? And who have basically all different basically the same level of knowledge on how to build stuff so even if the united states went to some kind of dark ages it's unlikely the whole world goes into that kind of dark ages so i i am optimistic in that sense that the fusion of knowledge is so broad today that other other than wiping out all electricity on the planet everything electronic on the planet it's just it's not going to be possible to control us all and And in that sense technology is going to make it possible for us to survive and to stay semi-free because i don't think full freedom but semi-free because full freedom you need the ideas because full freedom means you need some political implementation no full freedom means anarchy but we know that no. well, <laughs> well, well we, we need to get into that because yeah, we, we can't, we'll get we can't leave without sure. pointing but, out that we fundamentally disagree about that oh uh, that's beautiful uh to be continued on that one uh let me let me ask about on the one particular technology that i've been uh learning a lot about thinking a lot about talking about which is bitcoin or cryptocurrency in general but bitcoin specifically which a lot of people argue that the Bitcoin, that uh, setting ideas aside, when you look at practical tools that governments use to manipulate its people is inflation of the monetary system, within the monetary system. And so they see Bitcoin as a way for for individuals to fight that, to go outside those specific government control systems and thereby sort of decentralizing power, you know, there's a case to be made historically of the 20th century that you you couldn't have Stalin, you couldn't have Hitler, you couldn't have much of the evil that you see in the world if they couldn't control the monetary system. You couldn't have had the New Deal. 
And FDR realized this very quickly. Oh, yeah, that's where he confiscated all the gold. Everybody knows FDR is going to come into into to become president and confiscate yeah. the gold. So one of the one of the mythologies, that, the myths about the Great Depression, is that the, there were all these bank runs that that well bank runs happened because everybody was afraid that FDR would get elected, confiscate the gold. So everybody ran to the bank and took the gold. Little did they realize that he would confiscate their private holdings in their own backyards. He would dig, he would force them to dig up the gold from their own backyard. But yes, one of the first things FDR did, in spite of denying it throughout the campaign, right? He he, he was asked about this over and over again and denied it. One of the first things was was take over the gold and take the United States, the Federal Reserve, off the gold standard, so that they could, in a sense, print money and that he could start spending. Um, yeah, what people don't realize, just to clarify yeah. what your own said, is FDR, this is something that's so crazy to us that we think, okay, yeah, I'm misunderstanding it. FDR made it illegal for people to own gold unless it's like a wedding ring. Yes. And before that, contracts, because inflation was a concern, I make a contract with, with your gold. own. Right. I said, okay, you're either going to pay me in $1,500 for my work mm -hmm. or the gold equivalent. Because yeah. if that $1,500, you know, you know, Weimar Germany and you have hyperinflation, I don't want that $1,500. Just give me the gold bullion. And FDR said all of those clauses, he broke every contract. No, let me. They, they, don't, they don't matter. Yeah. So now if I say, Iran says, okay, you owe me three feet of drywall. And I go, here's three feet of drywall. It's uh, 12 inches. And you go, wait, wait, wait. Three feet is 36 inches. I go, no, no, not anymore. <laughs> not it's anymore. like, what am I supposed to do? And because you have, when you print more money, the value of every individual dollar matters less. It becomes that much harder to plan anything, either on the government level or on the private level, because if I'm managing outlays, if I'm trying to pay my workers, I'm trying to build factories, I'm thinking long term, and I don't know what this dollar is going to buy in 10 years, that puts an enormous incentive for me to spend it now and not save it, because if I save it, it's going to be worth a lot less. And the worst thing about inflation, and this is something I think people who are pro-capitalism don't talk about enough, they do talk about it, I would just like to yep. see it more, this by far hurts the poor, the poorest of the poor the most. When we came to this country, my mom told me they would go to 86th Street in Bensonhurst with the fruit stands to buy Mikachka some grapes, <laughs> and you go to this fruit stand, and she'd walk all the way to the other corner, and if it was three cents more a pound or less a pound, she'd walk all the way back because that three cents mattered. Now, if I have this dollar, and it's 5% inflation, whatever, and next year it's 95 cents, me and you, the three of us might not care, but if I'm destitute hand to mouth and I've got 5% less, that is really a material consequence of my life. So inflation really is evil because it hurts the people for who those pennies matter. Well, one of the ways the government gets around that, and is because they get they get smart to that, right, is they index everything, right? Yeah. So they, they index your social security, they index welfare, they try to make sure, but that only makes you more dependent on them. Right. And and the people in the modern context that saving hurts the most, the, the inflation hurts the most, are savers, people trying to save money. And and Fed policy right now is just horrific if you're a saver, right? Because the Fed is at the, the interest rates are zero, you get nothing on your saving, and cost of living is going up. Maybe not at a huge level, but it is going up. And yet you can't even save to keep up to keep the value of your to keep the value of your your dollars. So uh, and here, here's the other and the That's government right. controls. Like, and, and this has massive perverse effects because it's not just that prices go up. It's that prices don't reflect reality anymore. So some prices go up. Some prices might not. Yeah. 
investments get distorted, things get produced that shouldn't get produced. And then people like Richard Wolff turn around and blame all the distortions and the perversions and the crashes and the financial crisis on capitalism. Not on the fact that the Fed, look at the financial crisis. Financial crisis was caused, you could argue, by inflation. And, and we could get into that if you wanted, but that's probably a three-hour show, just that, right? It was caused by, by the Federal Reserve. And yet, who got blamed for the financial crisis? Who would Richard Wolff is going to jump up and down? This is a crisis of capitalism. This was caused by capitalism. But capitalism is the negation of the Fed. Capitalism says there should be no Fed. That's that's item number one on the list of the things capitalists want is to get rid of the of 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 uh, of, uh, of the Fed and then grant you guys your wish, have competition for currency, and let's see if Bitcoin wins. I'm skeptical, but let but I don't care. My point is under freedom. I don't yeah. care who wins. I just want free choices, uh, yeah, choices yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and let the best currency win. I doubt that becomes Bitcoin, but it doesn't really matter. Let, if let, I'm wrong, let, let, great. Let me add to this. And and I think people appreciate, and this is a leftist uh, leftism at its best, that the government and the banks are in bed with each other. This, I don't think, is a particularly controversial statement. Well, I, I don't like that statement. Let me just say why I don't I'm like sure. it. I mean, I don't like it because it assumes that they're equal partners or that there's causality goes in both directions. From day one, and this is really from day one uh, of, the, of the establishment of the United States, banks have been regulated by the state. And the reason for that is primarily Jefferson and others, founders, distrust of financial of, sure. of finance. So from the beginning, banks are being controlled by the state. Now, over time, if, if, I'm, if I'm controlling you, you won't have influence over me because yeah. I get to... So yes, they get into bed over time. But it, So I don't like it that they're in bed together. One is dominating over the other, and the other is participating because what choice do they have? I should explain to you how things work when you get to bed in bed. It's not always equal. <laughs> well, okay. So if, okay, if so the bank. So let's talk about safe I, words. I, oh, wait, wait. Which is a very Randian topic. Safe she doesn't words. like those. You read read the. I had to read that scene three times in the Fountainhead because I couldn't. Sure read what I was reading. I was like, sure well, you did. Yeah, I, no, because I'm like, I looked at the back cover. I'm like, a woman wrote this book in 1943. I must be misunderstanding and it's this 43. scene. Yeah. She she sure had a lot of shades of gray. Yeah. So no, she hated that. She, <laughs> only black and white. No, but um, what I meant is 2008. Right, you have the ba the bailout of Wall Street. Whereas in 2020, we saw every medium and small business under the sun go under. There's not even a pretense that these are going to be uh, uh, bailed out. So the priorities of the politicians, in my view, are always going to be towards powerful entities, powerful corporations, and they're not going to be about the medium guy, the middle guy. Let me just finish my yeah. point because I see you champing at the bit. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> at the very least, if you have regulation, people influencing each other with Bitcoin. And with crypto, that is not a possibility. Yeah. You do not have any agency who is king of Bitcoin, who is the Federal Reserve of Bitcoin. There is no organizing organization uh, management team. Now, you could say this is a bad thing, but you can't say that this is a different thing to money as opposed to Federal Reserve system. Yeah, yeah so, so I agree with that description of Bitcoin, my problems with Bitcoin elsewhere. Um, let me just say about the financial crisis, it's it's... I don't like it phrased that way again. They let Lehman go under um, and destroyed Lehman Brothers. Sure. Uh, in the past, they destroyed uh, 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 Drexel Burnham because they didn't like Michael Milken. They are vindictive. Yes. Uh, it's not an accident that the, that the Treasury Secretary at the time was an ex-chairman of Goldman Sachs, not Lehman Brothers. Yeah. And Goldman hates Lehman. And, you know, and the next day, they bail out AIG. What I what I got out of financial crisis more than anything, and and by the way, there wasn't a bailout, so it wasn't even a bailout because they gave money to every bank, whether they 
had problems or not. Sure. And indeed, <laughs> okay. and indeed, I know several bankers, including big banks like J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo, and a friend of mine, John Allison of BB&T, who told them explicitly, "We don't want your money. We don't need your money. We don't." And they were basically a gun was put to their head, and yeah, they yeah. said, "You don't take the money, we'll shut you down." Basically, right? The equivalent of that. Um, and so they they a wanted a virtue signal. So there's a big virtue signal. We're, we're taking care of things. Don't worry. We're, you know, we've got everything under control, even though they were completely panicking and they had no clue what they were doing. Uh, one, of, one of the things that the financial crisis really illustrated was how pathetic, ignorant, and incompetent the people at the top are. And they knew it. And they, you know, so Paulson goes to Congress and says, give me $700 billion. Don't tell me how to use it because I have no clue. Just give it to me and give me authoritarian power to do it any way I want. And and that was not out of a sense of grandeur. That was a sense of panic. He had no idea. He had no clue. None of them did. Um, they bailed out everybody they could, everybody under the, you know, within the periphery. Uh, when they thought it was appropriate, they were vindictive about some people like Lehman. It was complete arbitrary use of power. It's right. it, it, the bankers didn't benefit from this. Indeed, many bankers that took their money lost from it. Bank stocks got crushed after the bailout. Before the bailout, bank stocks were doing okay, and right after top was announced, bank stocks crushed because this was bad for banks. It wasn't good for banks. This is just central planning gone amok. It's it's not them bailing out elites. It's them you know, throwing money at a problem without knowing what they would actually doing and what the consequences would be. Right. But the point is, sorry, to, yep. where we, we agree, the focus will always be on bailing out elites. It's almost- well, but, but little banks got money too. No, I was saying that last year, there's no talk of saving ice and vice, saving Century 21, Shh. saving all these other uh, um, industries. But sure they were. If you look, it's, it's just, it's, sure there was. If you look at the, if you look at what the Fed did, the, the, the Fed was bailing out third, fourth class businesses, in all kinds of areas that you wouldn't consider elitist areas. Uh, the whole the PPP- the You're way talking they, 2008. Yeah, no, but, I'm talking about now. Okay. I'm talking about COVID last year. Um, what the Fed did was unbelievable. The kind of bonds that they were buying, even 2008, even after 2008, I couldn't believe what they did last year. Um, PPP, the, the Payable Protection Program was targeted at everybody. Everybody got PPP. Um, it's not about, I don't think it's about bailing out elites. It's about securing their power base. And if they believe that securing their power base is Wall Street, then they'll bail out Wall Street. They believe securing their power base is is uh, writing checks to restaurant owners all over the country. They'll write checks to restaurant owners all over the country, which is what they did with PPP. Um, it's all about power for them. And it's whatever will achieve power, whatever will result in power. I don't think it's about elites. I don't see, I don't, I didn't see elitism in the bailouts of last year. I I, I agree. Dealer. I agree. It wasn't last year. I'm saying that's one distinction between 2008 and 2020. Uh, but, and I do think, uh, uh, just one more thing. Yeah. I do think uh, uh, getting in good bed with the elites is a great mechanism in general for maintaining one's power. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. that's not dispute. depending on how, how we define. Of course. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. You mentioned there's some criticism for, towards Bitcoin. So there's a lot of uh, excitement about the technology of Bitcoin for the the resistance against this state, kind of yeah. central state pursuit of power. So that's part of my so, criticism because I, I don't think it works. So uh, yeah, I, I can imagine a world, I can imagine, uh, I'd love to see a technology evolve that where money is competitive and it's 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 a financial instrument that the government cannot touch. 
you think the state is too powerful? In the, uh, I think in, two in things. I think Bitcoin. I think right now, and maybe this won't be true in the future. Right now, I think crypto is ill. It cannot function as money right now. It just can't. Um, but it does. No, it doesn't. It it functions as a mechanism. It functions as a mechanism to transfer. It's a technology that allows me to transfer. Uh, fiat money from place to place, but it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't function because, and it can't because it's too volatile. Wait, wait. So I've sold things with Bitcoin. No, I know you have. Money. But well, I can sell things. I can buy things and sell things with my airline miles. There are lots of ways in which you can use things as money, but it doesn't make the money. So if you're using something as money, so let it's me money. take something you no. Okay. So let me take something you said before, and okay. and, and it, it contradicts. I think Bitcoin. You said one of the things about money is that it's stable. I know what it's going to buy tomorrow, right? I, I, this is why we're against inflation because I know what the dollar today I can plan because I can't plan. I don't know what Bitcoin's going to be worth tomorrow, so I can't plan with Bitcoin. So the- Bitcoin is way too volatile to serve right now as money. Now, the the argument from Bitcoin is is yes, it's still being adopted at some point. It'll reach a certain crucial yeah, hyper Bitcoinization, yeah. Yes, and then it will become money because then, at, at that point it can be used as money because then it'll have a stable value. Maybe right now it's not it's not useful as money because I can't predict what I can't invest in 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 it knowing what the value will be in five years. It, right now it's an asset. It's not a uh, it's not a, a monetary unit. It's it's much more functions as an asset. Assets value can go up. Oh, I, I agree. It's functioning yeah. much more as an asset than yeah. as money. That's yeah. not in dispute. So, I agree so, with that so, completely. So I don't think so. I don't think it's money. Uh, but so so if, uh, I think it's it it it's still. I think it can compete as a money with something tangible. So I think in a free market, uh, some kind of crypto backed by gold would be more successful. So uh, Bitcoin folks argue that uh, Bitcoin has all the same fundamental properties that does gold. So it's backed by, there's a scarcity to it and it's backed by proof of work. So it's ba- backed by, you know, physical resources. And so they say that's a very natural replacement of gold. So it doesn't need to be connected to gold. So the two things that gold has that it doesn't have. Um, one is gold is not finite. Gold, gold supply actually grows over time. Bitcoin at some point is truly finite. Yes. Uh, at least unless you count the, the, the fact that you can split Bitcoins and create coins, but uh, you know, but that's, that's a whole other question, yeah. right? Um, so that's one. The second is that uh, gold has value beyond its use as a currency, beyond its use as-, as, uh, as, as For jewelry money. and stuff. Yeah, but but you you minimize that. But jewelry and stuff has been important for the human race for a hundred thousand years. You can find jewelry in caves for, for the cavemen designed jewelry and wore them. So we obviously as human beings value jewelry a lot, and almost all jewelry evolved to be made out of gold because whatever it is within us is attracted to shiny <laughs> shiny gold in particular, <laughs> shiny object generally. So there's something about gold that appeals to human beings. There's some value that gold has beyond its being a currency. It doesn't, it, it, it's not, it, it, that Bitcoin doesn't. Now, it's not enough to use it as money. Lots of things appeal to human beings. But it, those are two characteristics. One, that it's not finite. And second, that it is a value beyond that, uh, that Bitcoin doesn't Don't have. Don't you think the finiteness could be framed as a feature, the scarcity of Bitcoin? No, because I think it creates, it creates a real problem with scarcity economically. It, it's, the, it's the issue of planning. Um, there is a mechanism, there's a beautiful mechanism in markets that as the supply of gold is, is in a sense, the, the quantity of gold is, um, it, prices are going down because there's too little gold, right? So so the value of gold, in a sense, in sure. dollar terms, the yeah. so prices are going down. What happens then is you, there's, a, there's an incentive to then go mine 
for more gold, right? Uh, because it becomes cheaper and cheaper to mine as the price goes down. So you mine for more gold. So it, so it keeps increasing and it keeps increasing, basically very correlated to the rate of increase in productivity. That's that's the beauty of gold mining because it's it's because prices are related to gold. Gold gold is the dominant money, and it it increases at this about the same rate as productivity. So it keeps these it keeps prices relatively stable. You still have bouts of inflation and deflation, but it keeps it relatively stable. With Bitcoin, it's finite; it ends. Now prices will only decline. What rate will they decline at? They'll rate they decline at the rate of productivity increases. It's hard to predict what product at the rate to which productivity increases. For example, technological shocks can change that dramatically. You could get you could get bouts of dramatic deflation, dramatic price drops that could be problematic in terms of planning the same problem of inflation just reversed that you had before. So, I you know again that it's a technical issue. I'm sure there are ways to get around it. And again, I I'm not sure. I don't know if you guys consider Bitcoin the end. Or the beginning, that is, is, is Bitcoin it? Or is Bitcoin just the first example of a technology that well, might evolve? I was just going to say, I don't know. The, the, there's the same technological issue with regard to gold, which is we now have the technology that was very expensive to turn elements into different elements. And at a certain, at a certain really? yeah, you could fire electrons at it or whatever. You can make gold. They figure out how to do it. It's not cheap and it's, it's yeah, a whole it's big process. Very, very right? yeah. If yeah. gold is the standard, a lot of resources are going to be going toward turning other things into gold, making the production of gold cheaper, and that's going to have a similar uh, consequence well, that, that a, so Lawrence is talking about. That's kind of the category of security that Bitcoiners talk about that it's very difficult to do that with Bitcoin. Right. Uh, but I would argue that it's exceptionally difficult to do that with gold. It you, is now, but the thing is there's not a huge incentive. If gold is the and, basis and if gold is worth that much, Techno- but gold isn't worth that much. Gold is worth, let's well, say- I'm saying in this world that we're talking about. In, even in, future, world, in the future, yeah. Gold is not going to be worth more. Let's say right now gold is about 2,000 bucks. It's less than 2,000, but let's say it's 2,000 bucks. That's that's its price in terms of all, in dollars. So you'd have to, it, it would have to be worth your while to create something of $2,000. How much would we be willing to put into right. it? At some point, you're right. Awesome, and, it's, yeah. and at that point, I think gold stops being money. Right. Because it, it, it's there, useless. It, once I can create it like sand, like like silicon, yeah. then then once I can make artificial gold. So I'm just not, I don't think Bitcoin is the solution. I, I, I think, you know, I don't know what the solution is. I wish I, I wish I was that innovative. Um, but I think, I think you need a solution that has more of the characteristics of gold than Bitcoin currently has. And I'm, I guess, I'm surprised at a lot of the technologists who view Bitcoin as the end game, where it strikes me as it's a, it's the birth of a new tech. It represents the birth of a new technology. And who the winner in that technology is going to be, we have no clue. Yeah. Bitcoin is one of the players. There are other players. There might be a new technology that is even better than anything we can imagine right now. That So Bitcoin doesn't so, strike me as optimal so, and that, that we should be moving okay, towards can, something can better. You, can you please stop shilling Randcoin for five <laughs> Rand minutes? Coin. Yeah. There is, there, you know where there was Randcoin? There was Rand. So South I was, Africa. No, I was- Their currency is no, Rand. That's yeah. true. No, I mean, Ayn, Ayn Rand, Rand is coin. the South South African one dollar. Yeah, the Ayn Rand coin was. I was in China in twenty. I think it was twenty fifteen or fourteen. What's <laughs> okay. that? China, China. Uh, I was in China twenty huge. something like that, and this entrepreneur came up to me. She said she's she's bought this massive quantity of land in this area in China. It's a little secluded. She's starting what she's calling Gold's Gulch. And she's serious, and uh, she's issuing. And she issued cryptocurrency based on the land, right, backed by the land, called Rand, but Ayn Rand, 
with a little portrait of Ayn, you know, a little portrait in the in the uh, in the marketing. Ayn Rinker. I don't I don't think it went anywhere. You're but, not going to be a janitor. Uh, a janitor in, Gold's in Gold. China, Gold's <laughs> Gold, yeah. By, the, the, by the way, I do want to point out something I do enjoy about objectivists. I constantly talk about Anne Rand and her vampire novels. And I That's the joke you're on. Thank you. Uh, and it's inevitably, someone feels the need to point out that she did not write vampire novels and her name is actually Ayn. So thank you. Thank you, Aaron. <laughs> We've been talking for two hours. Yeah, I own her copy of The Fountainhead. Somehow I thought her name was Anne. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Anne is an anthem. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this is really interesting way of phrasing it, which is- I was kidding with the Ayn. I know, I know you knew you how to pronounce it. Yeah. I know you know you know that yeah, you know. Yeah, it just got confusing. <laughs> I think we all know, and we God, all know that we're jokers We're here. all one. Yeah. There's no Batman in There's this no conversation. Zero, so ones. <laughs> so it's, that's an interesting way to frame it, is Bitcoin the end or the beginning of something. And I've, as sort of with an open mind and seeing kind of all the possibilities of technologies out there, I also kind of thought that Bitcoin is the beginning of something. But what the Bitcoin community argues is that Bitcoin is the end of the base layer, meaning all the j different innovations will come on top of it. Like for example, there's a, a something called lightning network where it's basically just like gold is the end and everything is built like the monetary systems like cash and all that is built on top of gold. Uh, Bitcoin is the end in that other technologies that build on top of Bitcoin. That's that's their argument. And I get an that, and I component. hear that all the time. And I, I just I I don't quite understand that. And I and I think Bitcoin has limitations that potentially other cryptocurrencies might not have. Yeah. I you know my attitude towards something like this is to a large extent I don't understand the technology. Uh, my view is let it play out. Yeah. I I think I have more fear of uh, physical, the ability of, of the government to crush these things and I think many in the community. So for example, so I, I gave a talk, uh, Bitcoin, you know, and they were hyping the acceptance now. A lot of, a lot of vendors are willing yeah, to yeah. accept Bitcoin and this is great. And I said, yeah, it's absolutely great. More options is better than fewer options. But I said, you know that that could be taken away like that. Now it's true that we could exchange Bitcoin and the government wouldn't know or I think, wouldn't know that we do. But once he's advertising on his website that he accepts Bitcoin, or once he tries to turn his Bitcoin into particular goods, once you manifest it in the physical world, now the, the government can step in. So the government could say, you can't sell anything to anybody using Bitcoin. They can do that, and you won't be able to sell it. You, it will be have to go into the black market. So, but that is able to sell it. Just it's just selling in the black market. Yeah, but that's where the government thrives, right? The government thrives on letting you do stuff in the black market, so they can decide when to put you sure, in jail or sure, not, sure. right? Yeah. So, so if if I'm buying a sweatshirt from the government, for, sorry, if I'm buying a sweatshirt from somebody using Bitcoin, the government can't monitor my exchange of Bitcoin to him. Yeah. But they can monitor the the the, the sweatshirt being sent to me. Right, that's where they can interfere, and and I think that at some point, to the extent Bitcoin is successful, it will be stopped. That is, it, it, and and that's what'll stop it from becoming money. See, money can only become money; it can only become money if people are using it as money, yeah. right? And if the government can stop it being used, if I can't go to the grocery store and use my ATM that charges on Bitcoin or whatever, then it's not money. And I, I think that the government is going to step in and stop people from doing that. And, and that's that's what I, I, so I, I have, 
more respect and fear for the for the power of uh, of uh, of government today. I, I don't see that at all. However, I could be wrong, and I'm sure Yaron hopes he's wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in I some hope sense, the government just give in, and, yeah, and, yeah. and the Fed tomorrow says, "Yeah, let let Bitcoin yeah. thrive." What, what, but what, I think they want to regulate and control it. And the only way to regulate and control it is to is to to stop it. Yeah, there's a bunch of people who argue that Bitcoin is too compelling to argue uh, to government. That they'll actually embrace it. Like but a that assumes government has positive me- goals and and wants to do good yeah. things. You can ask. You, you can. No, no, it's greedy. They say government is greedy because they, uh, well, Bitcoiners have this whole lingo. They say number go up. <laughs> government is not greedy. Government is government is not greedy for money. Government is greedy for power. Power. Yeah. Government is greedy for control. Government is much more. Now, money's good too. They'll take the money if they can sure, get it. Sure. But it's not fundamentally end. about money. It's fundamentally, and this is something that libertar- many libertarians don't understand. This is something many of the Bitcoin community don't understand. They have far too benevolent a view of of politicians and the people in government today. By the way, I'm uh, and I know why this. he's laughing. I think I know why he's. You laughing. know exactly why I'm yeah. laughing. And and we should get to that issue at some point here. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so I think there's a lot of naive, naivete. Yeah, there's Speaking a lot. Of naivete. A lot of it, you're on. No, <laughs> okay. I'm not naive. Right. Okay, I'm, let's, I'm naive. actually providing the warning and, and all these Bitcoiners are saying, no, 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 no government doesn't function no, that no way. No one says I'm naive. Naive people think they're not naive. Yeah. Well, so let's put this on the table. Speaking of naive, I still more than the two of you by far, I think, have faith that government can work. Okay, let's put that on the Wait, table. I got it. I'm not trying to be pedantic. What do you mean work? Government can achieve goals. That is not in dispute. <laughs> can achieve goals effectively to build a better world, Okay. a, a, a functioning society. So I'm going to take it one step further than you. Oh, boy. The only way to achieve a better world is through government. Michael, what do you think about that? He, he almost <laughs> dropped, and I said it on purpose that way. No, I, so, I'm, so I'm you glad cannot, that the mask is dropping. You, you cannot, you cannot achieve, you cannot have liberty or freedom without a government. Now, not anything like the governments we have today. So, I think, I think the idea that you can have liberty or freedom without government <laughs> is the rejection of the idea of liberty and freedom. Um, and and the undermining of any effort, any attempt to do it. So in that sense, I you know, agree he's with sitting you, right here, right? Lex, I know, exactly. <laughs> On this side, I'm in agreement with Lex, yeah. which is unusual. That government yeah, is good for you're, freedom. You agree with the guy who's reading Mein Kampf. Who's, <laughs> That's who's, not a who's, surprise. Who's dressed in black. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the bad guys. No, the, 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 the fascism... It, I mean, the road to fascism is anarchy. It's not. It's what not the hell are you talking about? Anarchy. Can you give me one example of when anarchy led to fascism? <laughs> well, every example of uh, stateless society leads to authoritarianism. Every single one in all of human history. And well, yeah, it has to because wait, wait, because you're saying Weimar Germany to. was a, a anarchy. Well, it was. It wasn't pure anarchy, but it got close. But no, it, it I, I didn't say. I said the reverse. By the way, okay, I said the ahead. reverse. I didn't say that every form of authoritarianism started with anarchy. I said that every situation in which human beings lived under anarchy led to authoritarianism. So I said the flip was Anarchism isn't a location. Anarchism is a relationship. The three of us are in an anarchist relationship. Every country is is in a relationship of anarchy toward each other. The US and Canada have an anarchist relationship toward one another. And to claim, you know, when going back to Emma Goldman, who I love, in 1901, uh, William McKinley, 
President McKinley was shot by this guy, Leon Salgas. And it was very funny because he was a crazy person. And they arrested him. He shot the president. And they go, why did you shoot President McKinley? And he just goes, I was radicalized by Emma Goldman. And she's like, oh, God damn it. <laughs> so now she's on the lam. She had nothing to do with this guy. She's trying to flee. She gets arrested. They, they caught her. And she said, and this is the, the hubris of this woman, which I admire as the subject of good hubris. She goes, I'd like to thank the cops for doing what they're doing. They're turning far more people into anarchism than I could do on my own. So given everything you've said in these two hours, and then to pivot to uh, being anti-government is being anti-liberty, I don't feel I have to say anything. <laughs> well, <That's> okay. Fine. <laughs> for people who are not familiar, and if you're, I don't know why you would not be familiar, but uh, Michael Malice talks quite a bit about the evils of the state and government yep. and espouses ideas that uh, anarchism is actually, what is it, the most moral system, the most effective system for sure, human that. relationships. There's this great book called Atlas Shrugged, and the author posits an anarchist private society. She calls it Galt's Gulch, where everything is privately owned and everyone is, no one is in a position of authority over anyone else other than the landowner. That's an anarchist society. And there's one judge. Yeah. And one authority. Yeah. And that's so what everyone hold on. And that's what everyone rules. and that's what everyone has voluntarily moved there and agreed to be under. It's a very it, small community, right? Sure. Th that is right. So I have no problem with competing governments. That's as the long, definition as, of anarchism. Uh, 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 what's that? That's the definition of anarchism. Case closed. Okay, end no, the no, show. No, no, no. End the show. I got him I got him over. <laughs> not not definition accomplished. Not definition of anarchy at all. <laughs> I'm all for competing hold governments. On. You get more cookies. Good job. <laughs> He did it. He did it. Yay, Iran. Brought him over. Red Roman. More Lithuanian. Uh, <laughs> what is this class? Lithuanian. That's my people. Um, Tulski. Jasne Apoliana. Miodem. Honey. Oh, honey. No it's claims honey. of health or nutrition. <laughs> the other one claimed health. This one, no claims. This no, I'm no for claims. competing governments on different geographic good. areas. Uh, that, that's That's fine. Why does uh, it have to be over? Okay, let me ask. It's, it's really crucial that, that it's on different. So you don't have two uh, judges in Gold Cult. You have one. And, and there's a reason one. There's one authority. There's one system of laws in Gold Cult that, that, is, that all the people under the Gold abide by. There's one. There's two because they're, they're in America. No, so they're not. The whole point is they're not, right? They're not so in America. They're, they're in Colorado. I know, but but the whole point of the novel is they've left America. They haven't left they, America. They've they've hid themselves, so they're not under the authority of the American. But they government. are. Don't but you get not. it? But they're it, hidden. They're, they're supposed to be. The whole point is that they're hidden, so Stop. they're not under the. the no, no, no. The if you, if the three of us hide, we're still under the authority of Washington. No, but not if they but don't this know. Is, but this is why exist. they haven't established a state, and it's not it's not a government, and it's not in that sense, you know, a, 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 an example of. Of, of really the way we form societies. It is a, a private club that is hidden away from everybody else. Fine. I'm fine with that. What happens if an American kills a Canadian in Mexico? What happens in American? It, it depends. Depends on the nature of the governments of the three places, right? So it, right? But so usually what happens in most of human history is that America will launch a war either against Mexico or Canada. Okay, just first of all- right. I, so, so usually violence results in much more violence. Anarchy- is just a system that legalizes violence. That's all it does. And in international affairs, that's the reality. You, you, the reality is that the way you resolve disputes that are major disputes is through violence. Ayn Rand said the definition of a government 
is an agency that has a monopoly of force in a That's geographical right. area. That's right. So you can't complain that anarchism is legalizing violence when the definition of government, according to Rand, is legalized violence. No, but but because you're, you're taking the definition of, of violence the way she defines it, right, in this context. A, she talks about retaliatory force only. And Has that ever happened? That's not the point. That well, is the point. Before there was Aristotle, was there an Aristotle? Before there was an America, was there an America? The fact that something has never existed means that it will never exist before. The fact that the ideas haven't been developed to make something exist means that it will never exist before. Uh, you know, we're young. Human race is a young race. The, the ideas of freedom are very young. The ideas of the Enlightenment are just 250 years old. The idea that you can't create the kind of government Ayn Rand talked about, I talk about, that that it's never been before means it'll never happen again. That's a silly argument. It's not a silly argument. It's you're being a Platonist. And no, explain, not at all. I'll explain to you how you're being exactly a Platonist. So if I was sitting in 1750 arguing with Thomas Jefferson, he was telling me what kind of state he was going to create. And I said, is a state like this ever been created? And he said, no, was I being a Platonist? Of course not. No, you're being you know, things change. You're being a Platonist now. Here's why you're being a Platonist now. Because one of the re things that Aristotle believed in, one of the things that Ayn Rand and other contexts believed in, the cover of her book, The uh, Philosophy Who Needs It, mm -hmm. is, the, I think it's the Sistine Chapel, the cover, or wherever it is. It's Aristotle and, and Plato walking. No, it's at, not, not, yeah, but- uh, What's I, that I, painting? Yeah, I, I forget what it is. It's a School of Athens. School of Athens, School thank of you. Athens. It's the Raphael. So, uh, Plato's pointing toward the heavens while they're talking, and yeah. Aristotle's pointing to the earth. Reality. So, reality. Absolutely. So if you want, there's two approaches. There's the Descartes Cartesian approach, which is I sit in my armchair and I deduce all of reality. Or if I want to study the nature of man, if I want to study the nature of dogs, if I want to study the nature of the sun, I have to look around. Mm -hmm. I have to open my eyes. I have to look at data. It's very difficult. You know, when Rand was on Donahue, he asked her about, aren't you impressed with the order in the universe? And she goes, oh, now you have to give me a moment. And the point she made, which was very hard for many people to grasp, is hard for me to grasp, is one's concept of order comes from the universe. You mm -hmm. can't have a disorderly universe because order means describing that which exists and which has existed. Sure. Now, if you are looking at governments throughout history that have always existed, and when you were on Lex, you said, what I'm talking about has never existed. That's right. To say that this, therefore, that that has a possibility of working in reality, I think is uh, certainly not a point in that favor, number one. And number two, Jefferson was a fraud. What Jefferson argued how America would look mm -hmm. did not come true. Jefferson's concerns about the Constitution were accurate. And the fact is the federal government did become centralized, did become a civil war. So if you told Mr. Jefferson, the our government you're positing can't work, you would have been correct. That's not what I'm saying. It's not the issue of can it work or not. It's the issue of can something exist that hasn't existed in the past. That's a, it's a, it's a it's a it's a silly argument. Now we can argue about the facts of reality whether such a thing can exist, but to say it hasn't existed in the past is not an argument about whether it can exist Correct. in the future. But that's the argument you made. But no, no, you're talking about history and now you're dancing around it. No, I'm not. Yes, you I'm are. I'm saying I'm saying that something different happened in the founding of America. It might not have been perfect, sure. might not have been ideal, it might have been some people even think it was bad, right? Sure, it but was something different. different happened. Sure. And you could have sat 20 years before and said, well, that's never happened before, so it can't happen in the future. That is a, that is a bad argument. It's not a good argument. 
It, 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 irrelevant. No, but you're making the argument that just I'm, because something hasn't happened before, does, that's certainly not a point to say it's likely to happen or possible. No, I'm saying, I'm saying, first of all, I, I agree that everything we know about what's possible or what's not possible has to be from reality. That we agree Good. completely. I think, I think anarchists completely evade that point. I think you guys live in a world of, of uh, mythology, of, of abstraction, of Descartes, to imagine the kind of anarchy that uh, David Friedman or, or Rothbard describe. It's complete fiction, we don't, it's, and it's complete it's just name mysticism. Okay, uh, let me ask just a few dumb questions. So, so first of all, uh, what do we do with violence? Uh, in terms of just natural emergence of violence in human societies. Sure. So uh, the, the idea that anarchism proposes is that we would, as the community grows, there may be violence, and then we together form collectives that sort of fund mechanisms that resist that violence. I mean, that's. I'd love to sort of talk about violence because that seems to be the the core thing. That's the difference between the state that has a, was definitionally, I guess, is the thing that has a monopoly on violence or controls violence in such a way that you don't have to worry about it. And then the anarchism, I don't know. I'm, I, I know, I'm, using, I'm just laughing because- I'm, I'm using uh, bad words. No, your definition is accurate, but the point is that being the definition of the state versus how states act Action. in reality is just absurd, yeah. So, uh, and, and then the idea that anarchism would be is that it's more kind of a, a market of uh, defenses against violence. So you you have like security companies and then you hire different ones that you are have, more competent. You, you have things being made affordable. You have more accessibility to security. You have accountability when people misuse their power. And you have uh, more layers of security than having a government monopoly. So, What's a, every, uh, objectivists understand, and they don't deny this, this is something they talk about constantly, is Anytime you have a government monopoly, it's going to have enormous distortions as a consequence. It's going to be expensive. It's going to be ineffective. And when you're talking about ineffectiveness in markets, that's not just, you know, like the cup sucks. It often means mass death. It often means persecution. So this is something that anarchism, uh, um, if not entirely prevents, certainly mitigates enormously. So, so can I just, as a thought experiment, sure. say it was very easy to immigrate to another country, like where you could just move about from government to government, sure. would that alleviate most of the problems that you have towards the state, which is like people being free to choose which government they op operate under? Wouldn't that essentially be- yeah. So like, what is, I, I'm trying to understand why governments aren't already the thing that's the goal of anarchism, the kind of collectives that emerge but, under anarchism okay, look, seems to be what saying. government you're, is. You're equating two terms. Yeah. So there's something called like private governance and there's government. So for example, right. if I go to Yaron's house and he has a rule, take off your shoes, become your house. If you want to really be kind of silly about it, you could say he's the governor. It's, it's, it, but it's, it's, it's really nonsensical to say that. If you go to Macy's, right? If you want to return your sweater, Macy's rules are right up there. You have seven days. If you don't have a receipt, you're going to get store credit. If you do have a receipt, you get a refund. So every organization, every bar, mm -hmm. every nightclub, your house has rules of governments. This is it's often they're unspoken. This is unavoidable. Mm -hmm. No one in America, uh, by law, has to pay a tip, but it's just customary. You go at the waiter, you give them 15, 20%, so on and so forth. Now, what anarchism does is it says, okay, security 
is something that is of crucial, essential human need. We all need to be safe in our property, safe in our purpose. The organization that by far is the biggest violator of this and always has been, always will be, is the government. Why? Because it's a monopoly, because it has no accountability. And look at the rioting last year, right? If you have one agency, pretend it's not the government, pretend it's Apple. And Apple has the char- in charge of security in this town. People are rioting, people are looting. And Apple says, yeah, we're not going to send people into work. And if you try to defend yourself, we're going to put you in jail as well. That's the problem of having a government monopoly. And that's something that anarchism solves for. So, okay. But don't you, because you said no accountability. Right. Don't you mean to say poor accountability? No, I mean to say no accountability. So, I mean, but isn't that the idea of democracies? I'm a not for democracy. No, not for democracy, but like the, the system of, of governments that we have, uh, there is a monopoly on violence, but there is a, uh, I mean, at least in the ideal, but I think in practice as well, there's an accountability. I like, do not think I know you're a critic of the police force and all those kinds of things, but the military is accountable to the people. I do not the agree. police force is accountable I do not to agree. the people. In, perhaps imperfectly, I do but not, you're saying not at all. Not at all. And we've seen many examples of police officers doing horrific things on video and they don't even lose their pensions. But there's a lot of amazing police officers, no. You, I mean, no, they're not. So you're saying by nature, police is like a fundamentally flawed system. No, by nature, government monopoly and police is a fundamentally irredeemable system. Let's talk about private security. If I have a private security firm, you could have that with, under a government. And as a result of my private security, my person who I'm bodyguarding gets shot. That's going to be very bad for my company as compared to competing companies. However, when you have a government monopoly and I get people shot, what are you going to do? So so the problem is that all the examples are going to be within the context of an existing government. This is why I said the cell phone example and all these other examples of us being here. We're not in anarchy. That, that is absurd. We're under a particular system of law and the system of laws applies. And we know that the system, particular system of laws applies. So the problem is when you have... Uh, there are many laws that we're not going to be enforced. That we're not sure, really we know that. Violence right? related? No, there are lots of laws that are not going to be enforced. Right. And And... And uh, the, that doesn't make this anarchy because there are other laws out there. They could be enforced, which makes, which makes an enormous business. But look, there's a, there's a number of issues here. Uh, there's an issue of the role of force in, 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 in human I, I, society. I, I got to clarify thing because I think you misunderstood what I said. I, well, I'm not saying that America is anarchist. What I'm saying is the three of us have an anarchist relationship between us because none of us have authority over the others. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. But, but that is a, that's a bad use of the word anarchy. No, that's the correct use of the word anarchy. It makes it meaningless. It makes it, every time any people get together, they have an anarchistic relationship. Yes. No, we that's have a voluntary relationship. That's what anarchism means, no. voluntarism. No, yeah, it doesn't. It's, it's, no, it's, it's a political system. You want to system. get a dictionary out? You're taking a word and it's accepted usage and then you, you, you you're like saying, selfishness? oh no, you it means- like selfishness? Maybe, and we, we never finished that discussion. You're taking a word, we're taking a word that, that you're defining as, as and replacing it with voluntary. Now, okay, vol- fine. I'm not for anarchism but, or voluntarism. Fine, but, but, go ahead. but let me, let's, let's right. understand right. what voluntary means, right? So we, for example, go into stores and, and there's a certain relationship that we have with the store that we engage in certain voluntary transactions sure. with that store. Now, I believe that that works because there is a certain system of law that both the store and we have accepted that makes that possible. Now, if that didn't, there are certain people who would like to walk into their store and just take the stuff, right? So there is a, not, we might not, 
but there are certain people who might want it to go into their store. There's a certain system of laws that regulates the relationship and and that defines the property rights and then provides protection for the property rights. Now, you would like all that privatized. Yes. That is, the store would have its police force and they that would be yeah. privatized. Now, I don't believe that force can be privatized. Um, and, the, and, and there are many and reasons- it shouldn't. I don't think it can. And I don't think, I, I think, I think it's That's a- an interesting well, distinction. I, I don't think it can because I think that it's an unstable equilibrium, right? I don't think competing uh, uh, police forces can work. Uh, the, at the end, the police force with the biggest gun always wins and always takes That's over. That's not true. And because becomes look authoritarian. At Vietnam, look at Iran and Iraq, excuse me. We had the bigger guns. We didn't win. Look at Afghanistan. We didn't. We, <laughs> we didn't win partially because none of that is an example of anarchy. No, but, but you said you just said the guy with the biggest gun is going to win. Yeah, the guy with the biggest gun. We didn't win in win. Vietnam. We had the bigger guns. But again, you're taking it outside of a context. That was a context in which uh, that was a context in which countries are fighting, not a context in Fine. which there is no you, country. Okay, let's suppose no you Yaron have yes. a rocket launcher. Yes, and there's a hundred people with handguns. How are you going to win? You have the biggest gun. Oh, believe me, I could win. With one rocket launcher against 100 people? Yeah, it's just, a, it's a good, well, it depends how many rockets I have in the rocket launcher and wh whether I'm willing to use them. But that's, but so so now it's democracy because there are more of them that they win. Look, the, the any yeah. one of these scenarios, all it does, so so let's go back to the store. So This is fascinating, by the way. I'm really enjoying this. I just want to say that. This is great. <laughs> I because I'm glad I, you are. I am enjoying the pain. And I'm also enjoying the comments that are going to happen. <laughs> oh, the comments, the comments are going to be overwhelmingly on your side. I don't I know think that. Because so. people like I don't honesty. Think so. No. So I think the anarchy position is completely dishonest. I'm a modern day, what's his name? What's the guy who was defending communism? Oh, oh uh, Richard Wolf. I'm a modern day Richard Wolf. <laughs> There's a sense in which I think anarchists <laughs> are uh, evading reality in the same sense. You know, so, so we've got this Do you think I'm dishonest or delusional? Calling someone dishonest is a really specific I think you're delusional. I think you're delusional, and I'm going to give you the benefit <laughs> of a doubt okay. of being delusional. <laughs> okay, good. Um, and that's fair. We all that's love fair. each other. And as I said, what is love? And, 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 as I, and as I said on the show, uh, on the previous uh, interview, I said, only smart people can be anarchists because it requires a certain level of abstraction of divorce, being divorced from reality that is hard for people who are actually connected but to reality. He makes a good point because I always talk about this with people on social media and they talk about a lot of people who buy into the corporate media narrative and how they're dumb. I go, it's easier to train smart people than dumb people. It's easier to convince smart people of, of the systemic that's divorced from reality yeah, than somebody's dumb. They can yeah. deal in the abstractions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't have to deal with the, with the concretes that actually happen. Um, this is an example I gave uh, debating another anarchist. So who was it? Jesus. They must have sucked. <laughs> uh, well, you were, were the they best. They were Hoppe, Hoppe fans. Oh, okay, uh, Hoppe, okay. Hoppe fans, not one of my least like uh, the people I like the least um, in the world out there. Uh, you don't. You like them better than the communists, don't you? Barely. Oh come on, seriously? Yes, because I think it leads to the same place. I really do. I think it leads to gulags. Fine. I think anarchy oh, leads on. to gulags, and I think Hoppe's view of anarchy definitely leads to gulags. I'll, I'll grant you just for the sake of argument yeah. that it leads to gulags. Yeah. However, surely you concede that they are against gulags, whereas the commies have no problem with it, and that's yeah. a big. Argument. I think some do. I'm not okay. sure. Oh, I'm fair. not sure people that's, like Hoppe do then. because if you if you read if you read some of his stuff. One wonders, right? Okay. Uh, you know, but once monarchies and he wants, uh, once, uh, no, he said monarchies this... are preferable to democracy, yeah, which well, is no. true. No, it's not. Oh, god, 
I mean, one of the problems with anarchists is- One judge. That's the motto. Is that one of the problems, yeah. <laughs> one judge, one authority. This yeah, is why I think, that's why I think authoritarian. So you're Hoppian. So authoritarians. So Yaron Brooks a Hoppian. No, I'm Get not in the Hoppian. chopper. I don't want one judge. I don't want a, an arbitrary judge. I want an objective judge. There's an essay by John Hasnas, I think his name, I'm going to bungle it. It's going to be in my upcoming book on anarchism. And he just discusses, and it's a very long, complicated technical issue, yeah. that the idea of objective law is incoherent. Well, yeah. I mean, that's why we disagree so much. Yeah. Because, because I think objective law is the only coherent system. Do you disagree that we, in effect, have competing uh, uh, systems of law under America? Meaning there's different ideologies uh, you have the Sotomayor ideology versus the Scalia ideology, and that effectively, and the point being, when you and I file a lawsuit, it completely depends on who the judge is. Yes, and, okay. and, and in theory, in theory, I don't think the system works this way, but in theory, the way the system would work is that on new issues, there are there is some competition. It's nice to meet you. Siri, I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> um, Technology. Capitalism. <laughs> So in theory, the system works, and this works, I think, I think with competing states, but also with competing legal ide- uh, views, particularly on a new issue. There's some, uh, this is how common law worked, right? There's some evolution of it, and at some point, that gets codified into the law, and it gets objectified in that sense. That is, there's some conclusion that people come to, this is the role in theory of a legislature, and sure. the legislature would be nice if it was if it was composed of people who are, uh, had some idea of legal philosophy. Sure, uh, and and it gets codified, and when it, and because these things are complex, and uh, and at some point it goes through all the arguments, and then a certain truth emerges or a certain truth is identified, and that's what gets encoded in law. That's what the purpose of a legislature is. Now, if you have competing mechanisms that don't converge on one authority because there is no one authority. There are multiple authorities. That is, in a sense, there are multiple governments or multiple uh, systems of enforcement, sure. right? Then you get not just uh, something emerging out of it. What you get is competing legal systems. Competing legal systems that now have competing mechanisms of enforcement, competing police forces, competing militaries, however we want to define it. And now there's no mechanism to resolve that. Now, yes, we could negotiate and there's goodwill and so on, right? <laughs> yeah, no, there you go. <laughs> no, but, but now we're talking about the law, what each view, each position views as true and right, right? And it, it might involve, for example, it might involve uh, the fact that the legal system has come to the conclusion that it's okay for children to have sex, with adults, and this legal system thinks that is e- evil and wrong, sure. right? And uh, you know, this something has happened, right, between the two, right? How do you resolve that conflict? There is no resolution. You know, this adult wants to have sex with this child. This legal system thinks it's okay. That legal system thinks it. The only way to resolve that system is through one system imposing itself on the other. <laughs> An example of countries is exactly that. When you had monarchies. When you had little states all over the place, the way any kind of dispute was resolved when there were issues of territorial disputes or issues of marriage or issues of, of le- different legal interpretations of how, was war. No, it war, wasn't. Yes, it, it was. was marriage. A it lot was, of times people would marry a princess from another country. Just sure, forced marriages, which was not very pleasant. I'd and, rather sacrifice one princess than an army. No, I don't want to sacrifice anybody. <laughs> And in I, addition, I, I don't royal, want to sacrifice anybody. I want to sacrifice the royals. And in addition, well, I don't want royals. <laughs> well, that's what I, I think, sacrificing I think royals are pretty means. disgusting. Okay. And then Let's on get top, the baskets. And then on top of that, 
<laughs> you, look, those periods in history are filled with violence, much more violence than we have today, much more bloody than they are today, far less freedom than we have today in After terms the of 20, individual you're comparing freedom. comparing this to the 20th century. Y yes, I'm comparing a monarchy, right? You you you, you said that's preferable to democracy. Yes, right? I do. I, I'm comparing- I'm little... saying Hopper said that. I'm not saying I'm saying that. Oh, I thought you- To some extent, agreed to some extent but I'm not going to die in that hell. Hopper said that, and I think it's ridiculous. They, these kings and queens- were fighting constantly. I, I mean, the wars back then were violent in a way that- Unlike now? No, much more violent okay. than now. If you look at the actual percentage of people the, killed yeah, in the war- Yeah, the Stephen Pinker book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you look Better at the percentage of people, and not just that, you can you can look at the other stats, that the percentage of people killed in war back then were far greater than the sure. percentage of people, even during World War II and World War One. So anarchy, and you know, David Friedman loves to quote the sagas of, of Iceland about how wonderful the anarchy, and I mean, it's funny because a lot of people who read David Friedman never read the sagas. It's worth reading. Uh, the sagas of the sagas of the Iceland are filled with violence, constant violence, constantly people killing each other over, I you know I stole your chickens and you slept with my wife and uh, the only way to resolve disputes, the only way to resolve disputes was violence. There was no authority. There was no mechanism to resolve these disputes. There was a council, but the council couldn't enforce anything. So in the end of the day, we just resolved to violence. And this is legalized because there is no there is no mechanism by which to make the violence illegal. So all anarchy is, is legalized violence constrained, constrained up, you know, uh, for a while and up until people stop that constraint by uh, you know, arrangements between the uh, security organizations. Yeah. But the security organizations have us by the balls, to put it to put it figuratively, right? They really do. Sure. Unlike the state? Oh, the state today has it. But I would much rather live in this state, much rather live in this state, much rather live in many more authoritarian states than this, than a place where there's constant violence. I have a bunch of questions, here's but why, I'm enjoying this. why everything so. he said is wrong. Okay, yes. First of all, the idea of competing legal systems is inevitable because uh, what Rand talked about is what she wanted was, and this is really kind of Eric out of character with her broader ideology is, I think this was her term and I'm not saying this to make fun of you. When she has a judge and he's looking at the information, she wants him to be basically, I think she used the word robot, someone without any ideology. That they're just looking at the facts. They're not bringing their kind of worldview to it. I take it as a compliment. <laughs> you, you are welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I think that given otherwise her correct view that ideology, say it calls something ideology, mm -hmm. is just a slur for someone's philosophy. Mm -hmm. That someone, especially someone as erudite, educated, and informed as a judge has to, and in fact should, bring their ideology to their work is in one sense a little contradiction in her view, number one. Number two is we have right now the DA in San Francisco. Uh, I, I forget his name. He's the son of literal terrorists, communist terrorists. Mm -hmm. And he has made it the decree unilaterally that if you shoplift for less than, I forget, $200, we're not prosecuting. Yeah, I know that. You know this case, <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So now- you and I, certain, and Lex, I'm sure, probably, agree that his ideology is abhorrent, that this doesn't help poor people, it doesn't help shop owners, it creates a, a culture, an area where it's just deleterious to human life. Yeah. However, he has, in one sense, given that he is a state operative, a legitimate 
worldview. Can I ask you just a quick question? Sure. Why couldn't a security force in a particular in a particular context say, "Yeah, if you if you take if you take stuff on that store, we're, we're not going to we're, we're not going to have that's, any problem that's, with that." I agree with you. That's very fair. That's a, that's a very legitimate question. The point is, in the context that I'm talking about, that firm is like, "Wait a minute, I'm hiring you for security." You're saying we're not going to provide security. Why am I writing you a check? And we have examples of this in real life. If I get into a car accident with you, mm -hmm. right? You have your car insurance. I have my car insurance. If your car insurance had their druthers, they wouldn't pay me one penny. If my car insurance didn't have their druthers, they wouldn't pay you one penny. We already have all the, you were saying earlier that we need to have one kind of umbrella mechanism yeah. fused. There are already more cases than you can count where there's private uh, um, arbitration. Now, the argument is that private arbitration only works because they have recourse to the government. But my point is there's many examples where even though that recourse is theoretically possible, it's not a realistic concern, specifically because they know that if you have recourse to the state, you have no concept of what that outcome is going to look like, except knowing it's going to be exorbitant, it's going to be time-consuming, uh, Talk look, about the, we, we can't use the state, right? I mean, I'm as critical as the state as it is right now. Maybe not as critical not as yours, critical. not as critical as yours, <laughs> but I'm quite critical of the yes, state okay. as it is right now. Um, but but let's say let's say we got into a traffic accident and uh, you you have a Rolls Royce, um, and and I, I destroyed your Rolls Royce, and my insurance company now owes your insurance company a lot of money. And, and let's imagine it's a lot of money just for the sake. And that you're clearly guilty. Let's yeah, yeah, clearly guilty. And my insurance company looks at the books and it goes, you know, I don't. <laughs> really, I don't want to pay this. Sure. I and and you know what? I've got bigger guns than his insurance company. Sure. And I'm gonna just gonna take over their insurance company. And and hostile takeover takes on a whole new meaning hmm. when when I can I can muster guns on my behalf. You, than than in sure. than in than in a in a hostile takeover in a capitalist uh, context. Um, that to me is what happens. That to me is inevitably what happens. And it's and I think this is where the delusion comes in. The idea that everything that that when big money is involved and big and and power is involved, remember sure. again the same kind of politicians who today get into politics are likely to want to run some of these security agencies because sure. they'll have a lot of power over people. Uh, so the same kind of uh, I, I don't maybe sociopaths would I don't be. I think it's the same skill set, but that's a separate issue. I, I think it very much is. Uh, but you if, think people, the people in Washington, are the same as CEOs psychologically and skill set wise? Well, today's CEOs, yes. Okay. Yes, because I think that's what's rewarded for CEO is somebody right. who could get along with, with, with government. Okay. And I think and I think the kind of CEO who is going to run a security company, which is not just about business, it's about the use of force, it's about control, it's about negotiation with other entities that are using force, sure. you know, diplom diplomacy. Then negate, and, and, and we should get back to objective law because I think it's essential to this whole to argument. I think all you get into is security agencies, fighting security agencies, and again, the biggest gun. And, it, and I don't mean here the guy who has the biggest literal gun, the rocket launcher versus the guns. I got the, excited the, 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 By the biggest gun. Yeah. The party that has the more physical force However, that is mustered either by numbers sure. or by weapons is going to dominate can I, can I, and will take over everybody else. Now, one of the things that's, that's common You're in a market is takeovers. It's, it's, it's consolidation. And here, the consolidation can happen through force and it can you can roll other, other security companies. And that's exactly what will happen until you dominate the particular geographic area. Okay, so let me explain why I disagree with that. You were just saying, and I agree correctly, I agree with you. 
that, listen, if I have access to the bigger gun, why am I paying you or whoever's paying whatever? I'm just going to use force and not yeah. pay them. We have that right now. It's called lobbying. Yeah. So instead, instead of me, and I'm, I, I'm sure in your example, you weren't being literal, instead of the insurance company literally having the army, they could be like, hey, let me call Corruptco with the mafia. I agree. Yeah, go out and take them out. Yeah. By having the federal government, as you know, and, and certainly I'm not a fan of, has takes more through um, asset forfeiture mm-hmm. than burglaries combined. What asset forfeiture is, people don't even understand this. This is something crazy, which I'm, you, which are on, it's is as opposed to me as as opposed as I am, yeah. which is I'm a cop. I go to your house. I think you haven't been charged or or convicted of anything. I or have evidence. It's usually in a car. Yeah, yeah. Or but no, it's like drug deals. Okay, I go to yeah, your house. You're a drug dealer. I say, and you can understand the reasoning. Well, if someone is getting profit through illegal mechanisms, their profit isn't real, their property, and they shouldn't be rewarded that profit. So basically, I go to your house, you're a drug dealer, I seize all your property. Mm -hmm. You don't really have recourse, even though you haven't been through deep, I'm just explaining to the audience, through deep new process and SOL. That combined, for people who don't know, is more than the total amount of burglaries in America. It's a huge, and what happens is the police department, which seizes your car, auctions it, seizes your house, auctions it, it's a great way to line their pockets. This is a huge incentive. It's horrible. It's a huge incentive for police departments to do this because it's like, look, this guy's a crook. Maybe he's not a drug dealer, but he's clearly a pimp. Let me just take all his stuff and it's going to go to the community. Well, and the rationale originally was, if I try him, in the meantime, he'll take that money and you know, funnel it somewhere else and yeah, hide yeah. it, yeah. and I'll never be able to get access to it. And it was it was passed in the 1970s under the original Caesar laws were kind of RICO Act, sure, you know, yeah. going after the mafia. And one of the reasons I despise Giuliani as much as I do, and there's very few politicians out there that I despise more, is because he he was the first guy to use RICO on financiers. Yeah. And so it wasn't even a drug dealer. It was you were accused of a financial fraud. Not, not you. You weren't shown to be guilty. Accused, accused. yeah. All your, your assets pr- basically were forfeiture. Innocent so you, until proven guilty went out so the window. If, if you were yeah. managing money, you were done. You were finished. So you're saying this kind of stuff naturally merges with the state. Hold on. So my point is, what are presented as the strongest criticism of anarchism are inevitably descriptions of status quo. What you're describing is already the event. I am a big insurance company. I don't want to pay you. I call Washington. Either I pay you and Washington gives me a subsidy. So what you're describing is an inevitable aspect of having a government. See, but so the, what I, I'm I, describing is the, the inevitable evolution of anarchy into a government. I just think that the- Markets it, don't consolidate into monopoly. That's a leftist propaganda myth. Not, not, markets, not markets where you have substitute products, but this is the problem. The problem is force has no substitute. That is, force is not a product you can have. A, so this is my fundamental issue about turning poli- uh, competing police forces. Force is not a product. Force it's is a not service. a service. It's not, it's a, not service a service and it's Pre- not a Security product. is not a service? No. Well, security, security in the context of a legal system is. But this is the point. The legal system, the laws, are not a service or a product. They are a different type of human institution. Um, science is not a product or service. It's a different type of human institution. There are different types of human institutions. Sure. Some are marketable. Uh, uh, you can create markets in. Some you cannot. Law is not a marketable uh, system. Can I ask a question it, quickly? 
Is there any other field other than law that you think you can't create markets? Well, science. Science is not marketable. The, okay. the, the science itself is not marketable. Well, sure. science is true. And the same ethic is in law. Law is not marketable. Law is the system that allows markets to happen. Right, you need a system of law, whether it's private law in a in a in a particular narrow context, or whether it's broader law. Law is the is the is the context in which markets arise. So one of the reasons we transact is we know that there's a certain contract between us, explicit or implicit, that is protected by a certain law, whether it's protected by a private agency or private. The government doesn't matter, but there's a certain contract that is protectable, right? By theoretically, by a system. theoretically, yes. yes. So law is the context in which markets arise. You don't create a market in the because there's nothing above it in a sense. There's no it is the it is the context that allows markets to be created. Once you market it, markets fall apart. So there hold on a second. No yeah, hold on. So you think that law could be a market? And it already is a market. And we see it, for example, eBay. If I am buying something from Yaron, I won't even know his name. I don't know, maybe he's in another country. I and you know, he screws me out of the money. I don't have access. I can't sue you. Like, or if I if sue you in England, it's good luck with that. You're not going to argue that I'm going to sue you. What happens in this case, which has already been solved by the market, eBay and PayPal, which has access to your bank account, they act as the private arbiter. They're going to get it wrong a lot. Not a, not even a question. Just like Yaron's not going to argue that the, the government right now gets it wrong a lot. That's not even a question. Mm -hmm. The point is, at the very least, I'm going to get my resolution faster, cheaper, and more effectively. So the issue with having any kind of government, anything, and Yaron's not going to disagree with this, is at the very least, it's going to be expensive, inefficient, and, and cause uh, uh, conflict. Yeah, but I think what it allows is exactly- We don't even know what the Supreme what, Court's going to judge. Again, you're moving us to today's environment, which, I, which, which I'm, I'm against, right? I'm reality. No, but reality, reality doesn't have to be what it is. I mean- <laughs> That's the most anti-Rand quote. No, in a, in, in a sense, in a sense, in a sense of, of, of the politics, the okay, re sure. political That's, reality. I know, but the quote by itself is great. I know, I know. You'd love to- He agrees with Donald Hoffman, as what yeah, you yeah, It turns out I agree with Hoffman. He's an elf. <laughs> so it's, it's, where were we? Uh, so I believe that because we have a certain system of government, right? It allows for these private innovations to come about that facilitate certain issues in a much more efficient way than the government would deal with it. But it's only because we have a particular system that has defined property rights, that has a clear view of what property rights are, it has a clear view of what a, a transaction means or what, a contra what contract law is, and eBay has a bunch of stuff that you sign, whether sure. you read it or of not. Course. All of that is defined first. And then there are massive innovations at the, at the level of particular transactions, at the level of an eBay, that facilitate increased efficiency. And that's great. But the fact is none of that gets developed. None of that gets created. In a world in which I might be living under a different definition of property rights, eBay might be living under a separate definition of property rights, you might have a third definition of property rights, and there's no mechanism by which we can actually operationalize that because we all have a different system. There is a mechanism. We, already, we already have that. Uh, let's change the example I just used. What happens if a Chinese person who has different definition of property rights kills an America American in Brazil? Again, in, 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 in a smaller community, what happens is lots of violence. No, but I'm talking about right now. If a Chinese person has- Right now, the only reason that, that it doesn't lead to violence is because people are afraid of even more violence and it affects many people large numbers of people who don't want to go to war. But 
if if you have if you have small it, 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 in a state where the states were small, okay. like in in those little state, there was war all the time for exactly those reasons, because the cost was lower, because uh, because it was more personal, because I knew maybe the person who was killed over there, and I and I went to my king and encouraged him to go to yeah. war. You know why there was Violence war? Violence is constant. You know why there was war? Because there had been no no Ayn Rand. And good ideas lead to good societies, which leads to good people, which leads to good behavior, good interrelationships. So now that we have Ayn Rand, yes. all this stuff in the past is irrelevant because if they studied her works, we would be... Rand was on Donahue again. You yeah. could watch the clip. And he asks her, she goes, he goes, you're saying that if we were more selfish and acted more self-interest, there'd be less war, less Hitler. And she said, there yes. wouldn't be any. Right. That's right. Well, so, if we were all selfish, there wouldn't be any Hitlers, right? But who do you regard yeah. as the overweening authority if I am buying a product from you as a, someone in England via eBay? Who's the governing authority? The governing authority is other other legal systems in England and the United States, which have to be synchronized pretty well. Right, but what I'm it's, saying it's is why eBay, why, do have to be, why eBay doesn't sure. function in certain countries sure. because there is no legal system. I agree with you. Legal My point is, why countries. do those legal systems have to be a function specifically of geography as opposed to why can't I sitting here, I could sit here, you're because, not going to let me finish my point. Yeah. I can sit here and be a British diplomat, right? And as a British diplomat, I'm going to be treated differently under American law than you are as an American citizen as you are. Why can't you have that same process Sure, we're geographically proximate, but I'm a citizen of this company and you're a citizen of that company. Why would that be different in your opinion? Be, if it's England and the United States, it's probably not going to matter that much, right? But if it's Iran and the United States, then sure. the fact that we're sitting next to each other makes a huge difference. Oh, I agree. Massive difference. And the fact is that, uh, and Ayn Rand, I think, would, would be the first to acknowledge this, and this is why she was, she was so opposed to anarchy. It's That's not, not why. It is. It's because of Rothbard. No, it has nothing to do with the, nothing. It has nothing to do with nothing. Rothbard. Nothing. How do you know? Nothing. How would Be you know? Because it, uh, argument against uh, against anarchy is an intellectual one, not yeah. a personality. Can it be one. both? Anyway, but, but yeah, with, no, back to it. Back to Ron. Back to Ron. No, it has nothing to do with Rothbard. You don't it's, know that. You're not a psychic. You don't, or a necromancer. The only He's way we're going to resolve uh, this is arm wrestling, right? It's through violence. Arm but, wrestling's not violence. Um, <laughs> Words of violence. <laughs> Words are violence, Aaron. Words of violence. Emotions of violence. Uh, <laughs> so see, wait, but, he throws me off with this stuff. But, but that's the problem. But it's, right? facts and He's truth? very, very good. No, not facts and truth. I mean, there's distortions some... and arbitrary statements because your statement about Rothbard is an arbitrary statement that has no cognitive standing, okay, and wait, and okay. therefore I can dismiss it. So wait, I'm wait. not doing like this because I want to dismiss it. It has no cognitive status. The fact that she disliked Rothbard doesn't mean that everything he said she was going to dismiss because she disliked him. I agree with you. But what I'm saying is it but, would not be impossible. But there's no evidence. I'll give you, I'll talk. I'll give you yeah. some evidence. It's human psychology. It is not impossible that if you hate some, uh, what's his name? What's that guy's name? Richard, Richard Wolf. Wolf. Right. Yeah. It's not impossible yes. that if Richard Wolf said something that you would otherwise agree with, 
You hold on, let me finish. You'd be dismissive or less likely to give him credit for it being a human being. That's all I'm saying. It's as silly as to say Rothbard came up with this theory of anarchy because he 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 was pissed off at Ayn Rand and wanted to write something. I don't know. Bring What's it bring point? it down because <laughs> bring it down so that he can speak too and let's 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 keep it because I, I don't think I, we're getting agitated. No, you guys aren't. Way. No, no, no. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, uh, bring it uh, down, not in terms of in terms of uh, give more pauses. Okay. So okay. Michael can insert himself. That's what I mean. See, private What's governance. The point of that. Private no, governance. No, look, um, private. He's look. It's private governance. It's, it's I'm all for private. I'm trying to establish this geographic great. law of the land. That's uh, I don't not know. the point. Uh, I, I do think <laughs> that Michael's. I mean, that's interesting that you disagree with this. I, I do believe that psychology has an impact on ideas, and Ayn Rand. You don't think Ayn Rand had grudges that impacted the way she f saw the world? I, I, oh, I, we would like to think that. I don't think any of her grudges entered into philosophical statements, at least not that I can tell. Um, and I don't see, and given the centrality Ayn Rand gave, and if you to to, to the role of government, to the existence of government, to the need for government, yeah. uh, to establish real freedom, uh, and the way she defines freedom, which is very different than Rothbard and the way she defines government. Um, to say then that her opposition to anarchy is because of, I, I think is just, just an I, arbitrary well, statement. I didn't say because and of, not, I didn't and say not, because, and I said not, colored by. And, not, and, not, and, and I don't see why psychology would enter it. Yep. Now, maybe the tone in which she responded to, to an answer might have been motivated by that, something like, but given the amount of thought she gave to the role of government in human society and why government was needed, and why you needed laws in order to be free, that, you, that freedom didn't proceed, it, it, the, the right, you needed the right hierarchy. I, you know, I think, I, think that, I think that we could say that it, give it at least the respect that she, this was, she might've been wrong, right? But she, she had a particular theory that, that rejected anarchy and that thought anarchy was wrong. Okay. But hold on, anyway. I, res I, I really resent, and I'm not saying you're doing this, the implication sure. that if Rand was guided by her passions, that somehow is a criticism of her or lessens her. I think Rand was a very passionate person. Absolutely. I think she uh, loved her husband enormously. She despised certain people enormously. Sure. Uh, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I don't think she that. would change her philosophical position about something because she disliked somebody. I agree, but what I'm Given saying- Given the amount of thought she gave to that fair, philosophical position. All I'm saying is it is possible that if someone comes across ideas that she had not considered before, if she regarded this person as a bad actor, like all of us, she would be less likely to take them under consideration. Sure. I, I, That's all I, I'm saying. I, sure. Right. And I think I think yeah. other people other people confronted her with the ideas of anarchy. I don't think Rothbard was the only one. Correct. Roy Charles uh, as well. Yeah. yeah, Roy Charles certainly did. And she rejected them. And she rejected them because she had, and, and whether you agree with her or not, she had a, a thought out position about why you needed to have this particular structure in place so that markets and human freedom could but exist. It, it's just really interesting because this is the one time in my view, and please correct me if I'm wrong, where she invokes need as kind of a basis for political activity. So if, let's suppose you want yeah. this federal government, whatever you want, yeah. you, you don't want it like it is now, but like your version of the, of the yeah. government. I don't see why it's an issue for you for me and Lex to say, we're not privy to Washington, we're gonna do our own thing. And given, if we go about our lives not initiating force and being productive actors, why she would have an issue with why this. Why would I care? 
Well, you would care because if you're saying the government has a monopoly on force between these two oceans, so you can at, you can do that as finish, long as you don't violate somebody else's rights. Sure, but what I'm saying is, we just declare ourselves sovereign. We're not going to pay any income taxes. We're going to be peaceful people. We're going to contribute. And and when Lex and I have disputes, we're going to call Joe. That's Joe Rogan. You're never going to get to meet him, but he's a good guy. I know. <laughs> We're going to call Joe and Joe's going to resolve it. He's so good at at like, you know, needling and and getting you off topic that way. It's really, he's really effective at it. He's Um, Muhammad Ali and you're Joe I I always say when I debate, when I debate communists, I always say to them. (laughs) You mean Lex? (laughs) Yeah, maybe Lex. Maybe I should. Comrade, I love you. That that if they really believe. Burgundy, not red. (laughs) If if, if they really believe in what they think, then they should be advocates for capitalism. Because under capitalism, under my system of government, capitalist government, right? They could go and start a commune. They can live sure. in communists. They can live to each according to for each to each according to his needs, from each according to his ability, all they want, and and live their pathetic, miserable lives that way. And <laughs> and the government would never intervene because the whole view of capitalism is freedom. Is we leave the way alone, right? As long as you're not violating my rights, as long as you're not taking my property, as long as you're not in, engaging. Sure. With, so so in that sense, yeah, you and Lex can form your own thing. I don't believe in compulsory taxes anyway. So you and Lex can do your own thing, never pay taxes. Um, uh, do your thing, as long as you're not violating the laws, and the laws are very limited, right? Because they're only there to protect individual rights. So as long as you're not violating somebody else's property rights or, or inflicting force on anybody else, you're peaceful. You can do what you want. You know, don't great. have, yeah. Great. Case don't, case. Don't, <laughs> don't have sex with kids. Right? I, I will stop yeah. immediately. <laughs> Good. The rest of us um, are just so playing checkers and he's playing chess. Yeah. So. I mean, I mean, <laughs> a government that protects individual rights properly is a government that leaves you alone to live your life as you see fit, even if you live your life in a way that I don't approve of, that I don't think is right. I mean, that's the whole point. Okay. Right? Then we're in it, complete it, agreement. The, the, the only thing you can do is, you know, try to enforce arbitrary laws that you come up sure. with on me. Of course. Absolutely. Right? Okay, great. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we lived in a world where rights-protecting laws are superfluous? But the reality is usually that somebody violates them, whether by accident or, or sure. intentionally, and that you need some mechanism. Now, if you guys can resolve that dispute without getting involved, fine. But right. if you guys land up not wanting, not resolving, there is another authority that will help you resolve it. Yeah. So can I ask you a question? Under anarchism... <laughs> what what kind of systems of laws do you think will emerge? Do you think we'll have basically a similar kind of layer of yeah, universal I, yeah, law me, to, to where like- Let me you, answer this. This is a great question. I know what you're going with this. Uh, this is often presented as a criticism of anarchism. And this is actually something I think Yaron would, would agree with as well in other contexts, which is this. One of the reasons communism can't work, central planning can't work, and this was one of Mises' great innovations is if I could sit down it's like asking, what would the fashion industry look like if the government didn't run it? There's no way for me to know. What the fashion industry is, which all of us are in favor of it being free, is mi- literally millions of designers, of seamstresses, of uh, uh, people who make the fabric. Also references throughout history and these creative ar- artistic minds putting things together in every year. And, and t- there's no shortage of clothes. In fact, we make so many clothes that we send them in landfill sizes to overseas poor mm-hmm. countries. And you have people in these destitute countries wearing like Adidas shirts. They don't can't even read English, but because we don't know what to do with all, all these clothes. Th- that's how the glory of free enterprise is. The problem is you, it, problem use this loosely, 
it's everything comes cheap and overabundant. It's it, it the food, you know. Well, it doesn't uh, actually come overabundant. But yeah, it's done properly. Sure, it's, it's the that's fair. Supply meets demand. The, sure, that's yeah. fair. But I'm saying is like if 150 years ago you said, you know, one day we're gonna have an issue where there's gonna be so much food and, and obesity that the, yeah. the kids are too fat it's just gonna be like i, I too fat I, like i had four who are dead in the crib i wish i mean what kind of fan is what, what kind of uh paradise is this so what you would have we have this right now in certain senses you have the hasidim you have sharia you have different you have uh uh i'm sure in the medical system they have their own kind of private courts and court marshals is another example of this although obviously that's through the state so you would have uh innovation in law, under markets, just the same ways you'd have it. And, and, and we have this already. Maybe it's not, Yaron doesn't like it in terms of like murder and rape, and I can understand why, but in terms of like business and interactions, he would have no problem with different arbitration firms mm-hmm. having different rules for like what kind of evidence is allowed. Maybe you only have 60 days to make your case and so on and so forth. And the market is a process of creative innovation and it would be dynamic. It would be changing. So what's interesting, what's interesting relating to this is that one of the ways Ayn Rand proposed raising revenue for the government because she was against uh, was, let's say we have a contract. We could just have it arbitrated without government interfering. But if we wanted to access the courts of the government as a final authority, we would pay. And that's how governments would raise some of the funds would be raised that way. So there's definitely a, 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 a value to having this innovation and the public space. But I don't believe that is the case with murder. I don't believe that is the case with violent crime. And and it's funny you bring up Sharia because David Friedman, when he gives... when he gives uh, Wait, I got to ask you to clarify. I'm not trying to interrupt yeah. you. You were talking about with murder. I mean, you would agree, I think, just to clarify for the audience, that... There is room for innovation and murder because there's things like manslaughter. There's murder one, murder two. Oh yeah, yeah, those, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, there I don't think it happens at, at, a, at a market level. I don't think there's a market innovation but, for murder. Somebody has to figure out what those standards are, but, and they but, will evolve as we gain right, more knowledge. But, but we're all agreement that the, yeah. the, the the word murder means very oh, different things. Oh, absolutely. And and if circumstances matter, and 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 uh, what do you uh, standards of proof, and yeah, standards yeah. of evidence. All of that there has to be and a consequences standard. too. Yes, all of that there has to be a standard, and that's that's what the well, that's what I think the, a proper government provides. Um, but uh, so David Friedman uses in in some of his talks about private law, he uses he, he uses uh, Sharia law in Somalia as an example. Look, legal legal systems evolve privately, independent. Yeah, authoritarian ones, ones that that don't respect the rights of women at all. Are you married? Uh, no, no. But we all want to have sex with our mother, as Freud would say. Oh, my God. Can we make that a clip? Yep. <laughs> Where the hell did that come from? <laughs> that's, that's much better than what I was just saying about the kids. <laughs> I appreciate okay. that. Okay, so we went in a voluntary way, although sometimes for Yaron and sometimes for Michael, it felt un- involuntary. <laughs> but uh, I, involuntary. we all got the big guns. So uh, how do we land the this? The big guns. Clearly, there's a disagreement about uh, anarchism here. I think we're in agree. I think there's a big agreement because if Yaron was saying that if I want to have my voluntary stupid thing with you, and his government is not going to tax me and is not going to insinuate itself unless we're murdering each other, or something like that, I'm okay with that. So, so if you take if you take the example of, of Sharia law, which was mentioned earlier, so if you impo- if you have a little community within this within my world, right, that that imposes Sharia law. Um, as, if if it starts mutilating little girls, sure, then that then you impose your law on it, right? You impose the the law on it because it's an issue of protecting individual rights. If they want to treat women 
if women have to cover up and the women are okay with that, that's fine. If the woman wants to leave but is not allowed to leave, that's where my government would step in and 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 allow her, you know, prevent them from using force against her. And that's it, right? Okay. Now, I, I think it's more complicated than that, right? Because I think there are complex issue property rights often where it's not going to be easy for you guys to resolve, and, there, and particularly if you interact with people outside of your community. Sure. But, but, uh, but yeah, I, you know, that's my view is government is there to protect individual rights. That's it. To otherwise leave you alone. I think this conversation is going to continue for quite a while. Uh, Michael has a new book on the topic coming out eventually one day. So you're working also on uh, the still called the white pill. The white pill, yeah. And the first line of the white pill is Ayn Rand did not laugh. <laughs> I'm not joking. That's literally the first line. I believe you. Because it opens up with her. Who's, who knows what the book's going to look like when it's done? But as of now, that's the beginning. Because it opens up with her um, testimony at the House on American Activities Committee, where she's trying to explain to these Congress people what, uh, what it was like when she left the Soviet Union, and they are just befuddled by it. Can you explain she did not laugh? Well, because like, the first line, the fountainhead, spoiler alert, is Howard Rourke laughed. Yep. So this is a, a little inversion of that. It says Ayn Rand did not laugh because she had this. She Ayn Rand was a huge fan of America, as am I. Uh, she she took our political system very seriously. She had enormous reverence for institutions. One example of this is one of the villains of the Atlas Shrugged is based on Harry Truman. Uh, I think Thompson is the character's name. And because she had such respect for the name, for the title of president, yep. she refers to him as the chairman. She couldn't even bring herself. She to... had a huge respect for, for, the, for the presidency. Yeah. I wonder if she'd still have it. Right, maybe Given not. the last string of sure. uh, presidents we've had. So having her, which sets up the broader point of the book, which I'm sure I'll be back to, on the show to discuss, assuming this bridge hasn't been burned, but I'll try my best. Um, All three of us are canceled. <laughs> Some are more canceled than the others. Yeah, Uh-oh. <laughs> um, I don't know. No. The, the point <laughs> being, you, which sets up the broader point in the book, is how uh, ignorant many people are in the West about the horrors of, of Stalinism and communism, but also how many people in the West were complicit in saying to Americans, Go home. Everything's fine. Uh, this is great. Sure, you know this is why pencils have a razor. Sure, there are mistakes, and they really made a point to downplay, really gratuitously, some of the unimaginable atrocities of uh, of the communism. And just one more sentence. And going through the work and learning about what they actually did is so jaw dropping. That it's it, and I, if I didn't know about it, and many people I'm friends with who are historians who are interested in the space, they, you know, this isn't common knowledge to them. Then we can assume that almost no one knows about it. And I think it's very important uh, for people to appreciate whether Republican, Democrat, liberal, whatever, uh, how much of a danger this is. And I think Americans have this. There's a book called It Can't Happen Here, uh, I think by uh, Sinclair Lewis, about a fascism coming to America. We American exceptionalism has a positive context, but also have a negative context where you think mm -hmm. we're invincible. All these horrible things that happen in these other countries, it can't possibly happen here. We're America, we're special. And it's completely an absurdity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, have you seen the movie, Mr. Jones? Uh, my friend wrote it. Um, no, I haven't. But Walter Durante uh, and his quotes, I have a, th a thread on Twitter. Walter Durante, for those who don't know, he won a Pulitzer 
because he was uh, the New York Times man in Moscow. Yep. And endlessly, he was talking about how great it was, how if you hear about this famine in Ukraine, this is just propaganda. I went to the villages. Uh, you know, everyone's happy and fed. It, a lot of it was explicit lies, yep. you know? And when you realize you're talking about, let's give them the absolute benefit of the doubt, an accidental genocide, it's still um, mind-boggling. And also, you know, Anne Applebaum, who's just a phenomenal, phenomenal writer, she wrote a book called Red, Fa Red Famine, mm -hmm. Stalin's War in Ukraine. And she talks about how what people in America don't appreciate is how uh, clever in their sadism the Soviets were. And what they knew to do to Ukraine is everyone is starving. So they knew if you got some meat on your bones, you're hiding food. Yeah. So they come back at night, take your hand, put in the door jam, keep slamming the door, ransack your house. They didn't have to find the food, burn down your house, take all your clothes, goodbye and good luck. I don't recall saying good luck. Yeah, it, it, so it, it's- So I highly recommend uh, the movie because it's very well done. Okay. It's, it's very well directed. It's beautifully made. It's, it's stunningly effective. Okay, good. In illustrating exactly that. The scenes in Ukraine during the famine Oh, your heart goes, I mean, it just, it's crushing. It's it, so, and it shifts to black and white. It's very, very well made aesthetically. So highly recommend. And it's written by Andrew Chalupa. She's a Ukrainian um, friend of mine. She introduced me, Yanmi Park, who's a big North Korean defector. Yep, yep. Um, and and uh, it's, it's, this, is, this is the kind of thing where I think more people need to, be. When, I, when I wrote The New Right, which talks a lot about uh, the Nazis or the, the kind of neo-Nazis, one of their big complaints about, you know, against uh, people who are Jewish is like, oh, we hear all about the Holocaust. You, how come you don't talk about the Holodomor? I'm like, I'm trying to do my part. Yeah. I agree with you yeah. that yeah, we need to I be agree. talking more Absolutely. about the Holodomor. Yeah. Absolutely. And, it, it, and it's it's sad there are not more movies that are anti-Soviet, which yeah. tells you a lot about the view of the intelligentsia. It's a great idea. It just was badly implemented. And no, it's a rotten idea. It's an evil idea. And Which it was, was implemented. Correct. Exactly. It was implemented exactly how it has to be implemented. There's no alternative. Can we talk about uh, the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged? And which character do you find most fascinating? Ones that kind of you meet in your own mind, that you almost have conversations with, or as an influence on you and your life in general? You know what character I like because I know no good one, or bad. Sorry, no one, no one ever gives this answer. But this is my just aesthetically. You know how sometimes you're drawn to a character, and it's if this person were real, you think they're just hard. But there's something about that resonates with you. I can't even explain this, but I love the character in Atlas Shrugged of Lillian Reardon, who's Hank Reardon's <laughs> wife. Mm -hmm. And what I what is amazing about her, she so she's his wife. He's this big industrialist innovator. And she's this like former beauty in that, but she's so cold and soulless that there's, I mean, I joke about, you know, Anne Rand's vampire novels. That character is as close to a literal vampire as you're going to see in Rand. And there's just this great scene where, you know, Hank Reardon invents Reardon metal. It's this great metal, which is extremely strong, but extremely, uh, it's like light. So this creates all these innovations. And he brings her a bracelet made of the first reared in metal. This is his life goal. This is like Prometheus bringing fire. And she's like, what the fuck is this? You I bought want... me diamonds. Yeah, you could have bought me diamonds. What is this shit? <laughs> and Dagny, who's another industrialist, she's a heroine, a very strong female character in Atlas Shrugged, is at a party. And she goes, I got diamonds. Let's trade. <laughs> and she really is like, you want this? And she's like, yes, because that's the concretization of the human mind. These are rocks. <laughs> and Lillian's like, okay, yep. whatever. And that 
character is someone who has a lot of resonance in our culture, this kind of soulless. It's easy to write um, a soulless male figure, like Peter mm-hmm. Keating in, in some ways a soulless, mm-hmm. but that for some reason when it's like a the soulless female, it seems that much more uh, uh, chilling and effective. Do you not agree though that Lillian Reardon <laughs> oh, is powerful. an amazingly, very powerful figure? Powerful yeah. figure. I, and I think, I think Reardon is too. Oh, sure. And what I love about Reardon is his evolution, right? He's so flawed. He's a hero who's completely flawed. And it, it drives me nuts when people say her, her characters are cartoonish, they never change, there's no emotion. Really? <laughs> did you read the same book I did? Because if you take Reardon and he's struggling and he's trying to deal with Lillian and his family and all this stuff, and we know family members like this, right? I mean, uh, who, are, who are leeches and, and parasites, and, but he's excusing them because that's what he's supposed to do. And then as he evolves, to fully realize what's going on. That evolution is so is, is difficult. It's hard. Like the scene after he has sex with Dagny, of course, he gives a, a speech, but the speech is <laughs> it's such a good speech in terms of conveying his mind-body split, right? He thinks he, he really had fun. He really enjoyed the sex, right? But he, he thinks it's animalistic and he thinks it's a sign of his depravity and he thinks... And and here he is, this woman he loves, and he adores her, and and and, uh, and he can't, yeah, and he can't connect the two. He can't connect the sex with the love. He can't connect the sex with adoration, and and with the values. So, her characters are anything I think but cardboard characters, because I think they Dagny, and the scenes where she's listening to music, um, and 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 gets captured by the music, and the way she, the way Rand describes that, I think it's just beautiful. Or the scene, my favorite scene in Atlas, is. Um, is the scene where they where they're crossing uh, where they, where they're taking the first train ride across oh, the yeah. John Gold End Bridge, of Act One. and she's they're in the engine room and it's traveling through, and the way she's describing Dagny and the, it's almost like Dagny's having sex with the with the machine right mm-hmm. with yeah. the with the it's so powerful emotionally their success the fact that they did it they you know everybody told them it was impossible and the train is going really fast and that whole it's got it's got a, a sexual vibe to it it's got it's all about passion it's all about success and it's all about the success of their minds and nobody else matters right? what what nobody what's else really great about that scene just in terms of construct the novel i'm not going to spoil anything so the, the atlas shrugged has three acts like three act structure is not uncommon and the first act is about hank reardon you know overcoming all this adversity at home in his personal life and in his business to create this great achievement so Rand really makes the reader invested in this character and his accomplishments. He's unambiguously doing something good. This, there's no downside here. He's making it easy to transport people, transport food. This is really just great. And it's just, once you read it and you look back, you're like, she does such a masterful job of making, mm-hmm. you have to be a fan of this person and root for them. Cause she's like, oh, you think he, things are going great. He's overcome. <laughs> Hold on a minute. Yeah. And then the rest of it, she's just real. And your sense of injustice is triggered as a reader to such an nth degree because yeah. you saw what he went through to get to this point, And now you're seeing it taken away people in fear, and, uh, fear to him. And one of the quotes on Twitter I use all the time is, I'll see someone, politician or a bureaucrat or a thinker, just advocate for something completely unconscionable. And I'll just quote it and say, my favorite criticism of Ayn Rand is that they say her villains are yeah. too evil and unrealistic because the things that people posit with a straight face are so much worse 
yeah. than she has in her book. That- and not just politicians. You find intellectuals today. Oh, of course. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Way, way over the top. You know, even when I read Atlas Shrugged, I was going, eh, nobody really talks like this. No, they do. Let me, give you, let me give you one example. There was a, a story she wrote, which she never published. They published her journals, uh, the Ayn Rand Institute. And there was one character, and this is a prototype of Ellsworth II. He was the villain of, uh, one of the villains of, of The Fountainhead. And basically the kid had like deformed legs or broke his legs or something like that. And he wants to get leg braces. And the dad is like, oh, we're not going to do that. Why should you be better than anyone else? Like you should just have like this Except deformity. Your fate. Except yeah. your fate. And you're reading this. I'm like, what dad is not going to give his kid leg braces? It's ridiculous. But now it's not uncommon for deaf children Mm-hmm. to not get cochlear implants and not be able to hear because their parents say, well, we're going to lose deaf culture. Hearing is just information. And you're sitting there, and whether you agree with this or not, this is very close to what she was saying. And when I read what she was saying, I'm like, okay, crazy on Rand. This is not a thing. And then it's like, oh, I, I, it's, yeah, the craziness is that it's not braces, it's hearing. It's, it's yeah, and what evil to, to deny your kid hearing. I mean- God. So well, yeah. here's the other thing. If you want deaf culture, which I would believe is a thing, sign language, whatever, they could turn it off. Yeah. Yeah. If you want, you give them the choice. Yeah. Let them, to, to, tonight, I'm sorry, one more thing. To, you know, Rand used the word evil frequently. Uh, and I think maybe I can make the argument she uses it too loosely. If you are denying a child the gift of music, I will say that's evil. I agree completely. Unambiguously. Yep. Go online and listen, watch videos of people getting hearing aids and oh, being able to hear for the and first seeing time. seeing what happens, their faces. I promise you, you will cry <laughs> because yeah. there's not, no pure, I'm getting teared up right now. Yeah. There's no pure expression of humanity and technology at its best than seeing a two-year-old or one and a half-year-old who can't even talk. And then you see their reaction when they hear mom's voice. It, it's, it's so yeah. beautiful and moving. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a few things that's moving. It, it is, it's it, like, it's one of the, one of the ways to, to rethink technology, perhaps. And there's this, this a really funny because sometimes it'll be this tough dude, right? And he's de- been deaf all his life. And then he they put hearing and the girlfriend's like, can you hear me? And he's trying to be tough for three seconds. Yeah, and he yeah, just, yeah, just, yeah. just loses. And, and you yeah. just sit there. It's yeah. just this. No, absolutely. And that's true of any sense. I mean. Like colorblind people seeing color for the first time, that kind of thing. Uh, I think there's a I mean, few. It's not quite the same, it's but, 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 but it's somewhat. But if you're blind and suddenly you can see. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just stunning. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and how do we form our concepts? How do we think? We have to, we get information from reality, right? We, 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 we interact with reality through our senses and that's how we become conceptual beings. And you deny an element of that from a human being. That is horrible. There's a potential with that with the Neuralink too. So further developments there. So, yes. I mean, on that, there's a powerful question of who is John Galt? I don't know if we can do this without spoiler Yeah, alerts. don't spoil the book. Okay. Well, but you can say, you can say, what what's the importance of this character? What's the importance of this question? I mean, without the importance of so, I want to give a talk on who is John Galt, and who is John Galt in a sense is anybody who takes their own life seriously, anybody who's willing to really live fully their own life, use their mind in pursuit of their rational values, and and pursue their happiness fully, uncompromisingly, with no comp, with no, you know, compromise and and you know, sticking to the integrity. Anybody can be John Galt in that sense. I, I think one of the mottos I live by is all you, we are tasked to, maybe this is a little bit religious, but I think Yaron's going to agree with it. I'm sure you'll agree with it. All any of us can do is leave the world a little bit of a better place than we found it. 
And I think if you do that through hard work, being honest, being a kind, uh, not at the expense of other people, you can go to your grave patting yourself on the back. I mean, I mean, to me, the the, the leaving the world a better place. Yeah, I mean, that's that's, but that's not what drives me. What drives me is, I mean, what what I think drives people. I think just live a good life, and good life means a life you're happy living, and part of that is the impact you have on sure. on the world. But it's. You know, so many people live wasted lives, live mediocre lives, live conventional lives. You know, maybe they even leave the world a better place, but they didn't really. They didn't. But they didn't leave the world a better place. They left the world a better place, but they didn't. They didn't. They didn't um, live their potential. They didn't, or they, or they died feeling guilty about it, or they, they, a million different things. So there's so many productive people. I mean, think about all the innovators and the technologists and the businessmen who leave the world a better place by a big shot, but are never happy, never happy in their own, in their own souls, in their own, in their own life. And to me, that's what counts. And if you're going to be happy, you'll leave the better world a better And that's what John Gold symbolizes. To me, it's, it's living your life by your standards, by your values and, and, and pursuing, pursuing that, that happiness. Well, I take, I'm sorry, I I take in a different context because I think a lot of, and I don't think you're going to disagree with this. I think a lot of times when you're young, you have unrealistic expectations about what you're going to accomplish. And you think to yourself, well, if I, let's suppose someone wants to go into politics. Well, if I'm not elected president, I'm a failure. That's nonsensical. There's lots of people who are successful who haven't achieved literally the top position their role. So if you can go to your grave having defending everything you've done and you've yeah, moved the needle in a Success should not be relative. Yes. So that, that goes like. back to second handedness. Yes. Success is not being better than other people. So success right. is not being the best. Success is maximizing your potential, yes. whatever that is. And and look, you know, I know people, <laughs> you know, I have a son who's who who could be a really good engineer, really good mathematician, really good scientist, but he he decided he wants to write comedy, right? So he might have been a better mathematician than he a comedian, but that's his values. Yeah. That's that's his goals. That's what he wants to do. And hopefully he'll be really, really good at that and he'll be incredibly successful at it and materially in every other sense. But that's that's what you pursue. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, so it's it's really being true to yourself in a deep sense. And and if you are true to yourself, yeah, you'll leave the world a better place. But that's not the essence. The essence is you. No, focus on focus on you. Focus on making your life the best life that it can be. And if you do that, you'll make the world a better place by almost by definition. But yeah, we're, you'll impact people. We're, we're looking at the same thing in different ways. Yeah. It's uh, at least in my little corner of the world. It was disappointing how rare that that is. So one of the reasons I'm here in Austin, and one of the reasons I my work gravitated towards Elon Musk is because he represents that person for me in the world of technology, in the world of CEO, in the world of business. It was very surprising to me, the more I've learned about the world of tech, how few people live unapologetically, fully to their potential. I'm sure people, others do that, maybe music and art, I'm not sure. I don't know about those worlds. I do know about the technology world. And it was disappointing to me how many people compromise their integrity in subtle ways at first, but then it becomes a slippery slope. There's, and then can, you, I, there's I, this, can I say yeah. this? There's this great quote, and I, I always forget if it's Steinbeck or Hemingway, and the quote, and this applies for money, it applies for, for morality. He, the quote was, how did you go bankrupt? And he says two ways, gradually and then suddenly. <laughs> it's very hard to one day be like, I have no integrity. 
You know, that doesn't yep. happen. It's very easy if it's like, look, I stole this candy bar. What's the big deal if I steal this thing? Then you're still- you, People uh, say they're no slippy slopes. They are, yeah. and they're big, and they're very slippery, and people this is slide. The, this is the biggest one. And and people violate their integrity even without stealing. Just little things about, about how they treat other people, how they treat themselves, the values they pursue. They don't go after the profession they really wanted to. They compromise with in ways that they shouldn't with their spouse or with their mothers or whatever. They look and the other they way when they see justice. Yep, yep, yep. And this is this is why people go through uh, middle age midlife crisis. Midlife crisis is a crisis where you suddenly realize, I didn't do it. I I didn't live up to my standards. I didn't live up to my youthful idealism. I compromised and I sold out. But I also would warn you about Silicon Valley. Yeah, I think I think at the top, very few of them stick to it and. Partially, it's the political pressure is unbearable. I mean, how would you? How how can you? It would require to be a hero, and very few of them are. But there are a lot of people who do really well at all kinds of levels in technology, who little startups, people. Yeah. And this is the point Michael was making. You don't have to be the best. Yeah. You know, you don't have to be a CEO to uh, to live to your max and to live with integrity and to live a great life. Uh, I know people who do because they joined Amazon or whatever have, have just made a life for themselves, an amazing life for themselves, and have done great work at Amazon, let's say, and then have lived a great life because of the opportunity that that created for them. So, uh, I, I think there are more good people out there. But but yes, I, I, the, one of the saddest things of growing up is is noted, or even when you're when you're a teenager and looking at adults and noticing how few of them actually live. I mean, are really alive yeah, yeah. in a sense of, of living their values and enjoying their life. And you start with your parents and you look across the people. Everybody lives such mediocre lives. Yeah, it's, it's, and the, the, the other thing is they don't have to. That's what people they don't, don't appreciate. You, Particularly you, not in the world that we live in today that's so wealthy. And so many, we all have so many opportunities, right? So what, by way of advice, what advice would you give to young people to live their life fully? I mean, Michael and I have talked about this, but it bears repeating. So if you look at John Galt, if you look at the highest ideals of what we of a life we could live, what advice would you give to a 20-year-old today, 18-year-old? Can I say, I don't think, John, I think, and I think Rand would agree. When Rand was writing John Galt, she says, when you have this character's human perfection, you don't want to get too close. So he's a little bit of a vague character because she was aware that when you're dealing with day-to-day, it kind of, the shine comes off. Yeah. I think Rourke is a lot better character yeah. for a young person. Or, or Reardon. Yeah, but, but Rourke is yeah. all, the, all, the entirety of the fountain is, yeah. is Rourke. So, and Reardon is the one of we several. We barely know John Gold. Yeah, so, but Rourke is someone where you could be like, okay, and what Rourke also gives young people is- That's in the fountainhead. The fountainhead is the strength to persevere. Yeah. Because when you're young- you're going to have downtimes. There's going to be times when you're lonely. There's going to be times when you don't have a girlfriend. There's going to be times when you're out of work and you're thinking, holy crap, I'm falling between the cracks. Uh, I'm going to accomplish that. I'm going to be a failure. And he gives them the courage. To, to, uh, there's even a scene in The Fountainhead, which is this amazing scene. I, I love that it's not talked about enough where basically Rourke is looking at one of his buildings and this little kid on a bicycle comes up to him and I, I Yaron, please correct me. Yeah. And he's like, who built this? And Rourke said, I did. And the line is, you know, Rourke didn't realize it, but he just gave that kid the courage to face a lifetime. And I think <laughs> that 
is such a beautiful thing where you can find inspiration in this character. Don't become needlessly difficult. Don't start parroting his lines. You're not Howard Rourke and he's not a real person, but there's aspects of him that you can apply to your life. And here's something else. I'll give one example because this happened to me. When I was working at Goldman Sachs, I was doing tech support and my great-grandmother had passed away that year. And I promised my grandmother I would have, thanks. I've told the story several times, I would have Thanksgiving dinner with her. I was working second shift four to midnight and we were a 24-7 help desk. And I got the schedule for the next week and I, I told my grandma I'm gonna have lunch with her on Thanksgiving. And they had put me down from four to midnight the day before Wednesday, which is my normal shift. But then the day shift the next day, and I go to my boss, I go, I, first of all, second shift, I'm like, this Thanksgiving, I, I promised my grandma. And they're like, well, if you could find someone to fill this, we'll do it. And I asked everyone, they're like, no. And I said, I'm not coming in. And I, I 100%, not even a question, if I asked my grandmother, can we have dinner instead, she would have said yes. Yeah. But this was one of those moments, maybe this is from my huge ego, where I felt like I was in a movie and I'm making a choice. Am I going to ask grandma or am I going to just bend the knee? And I go... I, I go, I couldn't find anyone. And I go, I'm not coming in. And they go, if you're not coming in, you're fired. And I go, fire me. And they did fire me. And I'm, and I have no regrets. And cause if they, if I, if I'd compromised, I'd have money in my pocket. But since I didn't compromise, I could look at that story. Rand talks about how man is a being of self-made soul. I could look at that story. And next time I have a time where it's a tough decision, where there's really pressure. I could be like, you know what? This is the kind of person you are. Stick to it. I'll give one more example. Sorry, you're on. I've given talks on networking and I tell people, I, I like to use humor because humor is a great way to shortcut the brain and get the truth mm -hmm. to them directly. I say, if you know someone is in town, sell it with it's their birthday and they're not doing anything, take them out. And I say, I do this for Rand reasons. I do it selfishly. And the audience laughs and I go, you're laughing, but I go, the guy who takes people out for their birthday is awesome. That could be you. There's nothing stopping you. You're just not thinking in these terms. Mm -hmm. What's it going to cost you? $30? But for the rest of their life or a few years, that person will remember you and be like, you know what? This person did right by me. And, and I'll give you a concrete example, which changed my life profoundly. Uh, Ted Hope, who was the producer of the film American Splendor, which starred my mentor, Harvey Picar, sent an email to his firm that said, Harvey's in town with nothing to do. If you want to hang out with him, here's your chance. They worked at a film company and I was the only one, I got the email, I wasn't working there from a friend who took him up on it. And as a consequence, Harvey wrote a graphic novel about me, Egon Hubris, which is $250 on eBay now and it moves at that, not, not too shabby. The point being, nice. you know what? Ta someone had a movie made about him. Someone is an interesting figure. Take the lunch yeah. and stay overtime for an hour. But so many people don't think in those terms and there's so many opportunities for them. And so that's the advice I give. And I think it's also good to give advice via anecdote. So not only is the person getting the advice, they are learning why you got to that point. And maybe I'm wrong, but at least they've thought about it. Yeah, I mean, I agree with all of that. And I, 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 I like the, the line, Ayn Rand's line about man is a self-made soul, is a creature of a self-made soul, is, is, is huge. And, and it's something most people don't realize. And it's something that modern intellectuals undermine. I mean, even even somebody like Sam Harris, when when you keep telling people exactly. they don't have free will, then you you don't have a self-made soul because what is self-made? There is no self, according to Sam. Right? He meditates and he sees that he doesn't have a self. A self. So it, it, you're undermining the ability of people to take control over their own lives, 
and make the kind of choices that are necessary to create the kind of moral character that is necessary for them to be successful. So I'd, I'd encourage people to go read Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged because put aside the politics, put aside even aspects of the philosophy, focus on these models. These are, you know, Howard Rock is a great model for, for all of us. It's a great story to have in your head, in your mind, when you encounter challenging choices that you might make. Um, and then spend the time, and this is, I, you know, I don't think I ever did this when I was young. I don't think people do this, but spend the time thinking about what your values really are. What do you love yeah, doing? Yeah. What, 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 what makes, what gets you going? What gets you excited? And, and how can I, how can I make a living at this? How can I do this and, and live through this? And then, you know, think about what kind of life you want, what kind of, I don't know, what kind of people you want to hang out with. Don't just, don't let life just happen to you. Think it through. Yeah. What kind of people, for example, if you want ambitious, excited, maybe you should move to Silicon Valley, to Austin, Texas, right? Um, if you want to be around artsy people, maybe you should go to Hollywood, maybe you should go to New York. You know, I don't know. But but figure out what kind of life you want to live, what kind of people you want to hang out with, what kind of woman you want to spend your life with, or what kind of, uh, what kind of romantic relationship you want to have. Uh, figure that out and go and do it. Don't sit around. Life is not- Or try and fail. It's okay. You're going oh, to fail. failure. Yeah, yeah. Failure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and learn from that failure. And, and that's the other thing. Think about what you're doing, why you're succeeding, why you're failing, and and keep improving. Keep working on it because it's not just going to happen like this. Nobody nobody, nobody is Francisco to take a character out okay. of Atlas Shark who succeeds at everything first try, right? We, we all need to fail a few times. We all need to. But what have you got to lose? Every second is never going to be back. I mean, these are all cliches, but they're all true cliches, right? So- Think, make a, figure out what your values are and, and try to apply your, your reason, your, your rational thought on getting those values. And try to, we talked about early on in the show, in the interview, we talked about integrating your emotions with your uh, cognition. I think that's crucial because you don't want to be fighting your emotions as you move towards these things. You don't want your emotions to be barriers to your own success. You want them to be cheerleaders, right? To, 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 to cheer on when good things happen and, and to, to, to be negative emotions when, when it's justified that they're negative. So work on integrating your soul. Work, so creating your own soul, that's, that's the real challenge. And I'll give one piece of meta advice. When you're young, you're going to be clueless because you're going to be ignorant. You know the data. Don't ask your dopey friends for advice because they want to be or your helpful. Parents. Or, or parents, but the friends want to be helpful. They're as dopey as you. They have uninformed as you, so they're just going to give you platitudes, and you're going to be worse off because now you're going to be confused. Especially with social media, reach out to people who are older than you, who are accomplished. You'd be surprised how mm -hmm. often that you got to send them twenty bucks, buy them dinner, buy their book, whatever yep. it takes. Yep. You are getting free world class advice for very cheap. And, and that is really a mechanism for success. And here's something very unpopular and not sexy. This is why people probably uh, unfollow me. That's not why. Read. Well, oh, yeah, you'll, yeah. Tell me, you'll tell me why after. Read, read, read. Because you, you're not always going to have access to those experts. And I'm not just talking about uh, self-help books. I'm not even talking about self-help books. Read the world's literature. I mean, literature presents you with all the different characters. Or, you know, read Dostoevsky, yeah. right? Uh, read uh, read Hugo, right? Read all these 
authors that have taken time to really create characters and put them in situations that maybe you will never face those exact situations, but you'll face similar situations. And and they play it out for you. You'll see what the consequences are. Great literature is a real tool for building your soul. Great art generally, but literature and particularly because it's more conceptual. What um, maybe you could speak to love and relationship in your own life, but in general, if we look at Alice Shrugged, if we look at Fountainhead, and maybe this is going to become a therapy session for Lex, but also just looking at your own life in a form of advice, how can you be uh, a Rorik Reardon type character and do it, live your life to the fullest in, in, in creating the most amazing things that you're able to create? and yet have others in your life that you give yourself to in terms of loving them fully and having a family, having kids, but just even just the love of your life kind of thing. Um, how do you balance those things together? But Is there any anything to say? In gonna, the- I'll say one thing, because then I'll defer to your own, because he's the one who's married here. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think it's a balance. I think they complement each other and feed off each other. So it's like, how do you balance having shoes and pants? It's like, no, you want both. <laughs> you you want it all. And, and having Absolutely. a great partner who thinks you're a badass, and then sometimes they're on the stage and you're like, oh my, I'm married to a badass. Yeah. That's that's the goal. Yeah. Am, I, am I wrong? No, absolutely. It feeds off of each other. It's, it's synergetic. It's completely synergetic. The, the problem that people have, I think, the, where they get into challenges is when they view them as opposites, right? Yeah. Work or family. Well, if you don't work the family, you can't fun, if, if finance the family, but more than that, who, why, is your love gonna, why is your wife going to love you? Right? What are the virtues that you're, you're bringing? If you don't maximize your own potential, if you don't live the best life that you can live, what is it to love? And if she doesn't do the same thing, why do you love her? So, so you don't get this conflict between work and you know how do I have a balanced life? Of course, you have a balanced life. You balance it based on your values, and it's never going to be the same. The balance is you know the the time you spend at work and with family when you're young or when you have little kids or when they're grown up is all going to be different. It's going to depend on your priorities at the point, but it's all going to feed off of each other. So maybe another word outside of balance is sacrifice. Do you think relationship oh involves God. sacrifice or not? Does he know what he's doing? I know. He, I think he, he's, he's, he's trolling you. He's is a he troll. Trolling he's a big troll. Is tro- Lex is never, the biggest troll on Twitter. Ever. Well, ever. Sunglasses ever sacrifice. Deal with it. Never sacrifice. Never but sa- see, he so, means sacrifice so in the context. I know, yeah, okay, I know. So yeah. I'm going to define yeah, yeah, okay. So sacrifice in my Wait, can world. I, can I say one thing before we, go, we get sidebar? Rand there, Rand had a good example of what he's talking about balance. So she was married to this guy, Frank O'Connor. He was not a cerebral. He was not intellectual. That's fine. She was in love with him. And I met someone who had been friends with Rand. And a lot of times she'd have these conversations with her acolytes to like four in the morning about the most cerebral topics. And I said, and he would always bring them food. He'd stay up and kind of sit there in a corner. And I go, when this was happening, was he sitting there like, oh God, here goes crazy old Ayn and I just got to be bored. And they go, absolutely no, not. He was, he was so proud of her. He was so excited. In fact, when she got a lot of money from, I think, selling uh, Red Pawn, which was her screenplay, which never produced, he told her, you can buy any kind of fur coat as long as it's mink. He would, He's like, you earn this, celebrate it. So that was a good example. And that's a good relationship, absolutely. No, sacrifice is the, is the giving of a, high, of a value and expecting either nothing or something less in return. You don't do that in a love relationship. Your love relationship is a sense, a, a trade. You're constantly trading. You're not trading materially, but you're trading spiritually. I, I, imagine if I only gave my wife. 
if I get, gave spiritually and maturely only in one direction, I'd get sick of it. She'd get sick of it. It would never last. It has to be in give and take constantly in different ways, right? Different values. It's not, it's not a monetary exchange, but it's constantly you're giving and you're, you're receiving and you're giving, right? And it's, it's, it's gotta, that's gotta be in balance. And, and I know a lot of relationships where that gets out of bounds, right? And one party feels like they're giving all the time, they're sacrificing. They're giving more than they're receiving in a sense. And it's over, right? So now people use the word sacrifice, like like Jordan Peterson sometimes uses he, he uses it both ways, right? That's the problem. You people use it. I don't know him personally, no. Jordan Peterson, I said. I didn't call him Jordan. <laughs> <you see? laughs> yeah. Uh, he uses it in his talks as, sometimes he uses it as just as I described it. Uh, and he's supportive of that, like uh, the sacrifice Jesus made, right? And sometimes he uses it as his investment, but it's it's not. If you're if you're giving some giving money now, expecting a bigger return in the future, that's not a sacrifice. That's an investment. That's why we have two concepts for that. And the same is true. You know, if my wife is ill, and I'm in, you know, I've got a whole relationship build around what I'm giving. It's not that I'm not getting anything back. What I'm getting back is that she is recovering, right? is that she is she's still alive or whatever it is that that I'm keeping that's the value that I'm getting in return if I'm not getting that why am I doing it because I signed a contract a long time ago um so it's uh it's it's not a sacrifice children are not a sacrifice if I don't go to the movies because I stay with my home with my kids it's because I love my kids more than I love going to the movies right and if I love going to the movies more than I love staying with the kids then get a babysitter or don't have kids which is the better better approach? Here's because a question: yeah. Who did uh, what book did Ayn Rand say is the most evil book in all of serious literature? Tolstoy. It was Anna Karenina. Tolstoy, yeah, Anna Karenina. And the reason it That's was right. that book, which I haven't That's read, right. please correct me if I get the plot wrong. What Rand was saying is the plot is a guy who's a big shot. I think he marries a stupid girl who has yep. nothing of value to offer him for at all, and she ends up killing herself. Whereas Rand's version, and we can take this out of the romantic context. It. I am delighted when I could be of use to my friends. It yeah. is makes me feel wonderful and not in a kind of parasitic way. It's just like that I'm at a certain point where they call me up, they're having a problem, and I've helped them with that problem. So Anna Karenina, he gives up the love of his life. Oh, is that what it is? Girl, okay. The amazing girl. He has an affair with her outside of marriage, taints her, is married to the to the stupid, but she gives him the prestige and everything. Oh, oh, that's clearly very anti-Rand. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, and the, 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 the smart... Real, the one she, he he loves, she commits suicide in there. Oh, okay, I got it wrong. So Thank it's you. it's it's um, it's it's about him choosing mediocrity and nothingness over, over this amazing yeah, over yeah. love. So yep. so pursuing your values is so crucial. So so don't sacrifice. It doesn't mean that if you want to eat Chinese and she want to eat Italian, you don't once in a while eat Italian on that day, it's right? Just that's, that's that's <laughs> just get noodles. Yeah, that's silly, right? That's not a sacrifice, not in the sense in which we're talking about. That's you know, it doesn't mean don't compromise. It doesn't mean don't compromise on on the day to day stuff. It means don't compromise on moral values. It doesn't you don't yeah. compromise on the big stuff, and you never and, and and you never sacrifice. And that way, you you have a relationship that's built as equals. And, and as you admire each other and love at the end of the day is a response to value. Hmm. If you stop undermining your own value, the person who loves you will stop or, or will stop loving you or love you less. If you love yourself less, they, you know, you have to, I also said, just, you know, to say, I love you, you have to be able to say the I. Hmm. 
right? You have yeah. to you have to be somebody. You have to know yourself. You have to have value. Uh, and, and so love is a love is a profound emotional response to value. So speaking of love and the three of us being on this deserted island for a time together, somehow not murdering each other. Let me ask you, uh, Yaron, Michael, what is the most beautiful thing you find about the the other? So let's go Yaron first. What do you think about Michael what, that you appreciate what about him? That, these questions that you I think, what, what do you love? Me. What do you love about <laughs> Michael? That, 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 that he's gonna edit it. <laughs> You see, that makes sense. I just me. programmed him. <laughs> Press play. It's all just a uh, pre-recorded message. So I've never met Michael before. So this is my. That's uh, not true. You have, and you're, so I don't remember ever meeting Michael. Before. And you're, whatever, the, you're, whatever the, you're the very beginning of the new right. Is me meeting you? Is the, the I'm in the book. Yes. All right. Well, now I have to read his book because yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, I did my, am I presented positively or negatively? Very. Oh, okay. Good. Uh, <laughs> Lex Link. is not so sure. He's I, lying. No, I like that he goes. Are you? Am I presented positively or negatively? I just go very. Good. <laughs> and he's like, "Oh, good." I'm like, mm, yeah. "Is it?" <laughs> so he's uh, Michael Sharp. He's quick. Um, he's uh, he's he's funny. Although some of the humor is beyond me. That's I'm a nice sure. way of saying he's very intelligent. Yeah, he's very. He's definitely very intelligent, and um, but but also very uh, engaging. I think that's very engaging. I'm a sharp dresser. This fun. And I always definitely, well, yeah, I, I'm let me compliment him on stuff that's obvious and everybody can see by the video. The sex appeal. Uh, let me also just comment one thing you mentioned about you uh, deriving joy from being of value to your friends. Yeah. You know, people talk to me about you sometimes because like, you'll do humor about various things and things like that maybe you're some kind of uh, crazy person or something like that. Yeah, I know you enjoy this aspect of it, but uh, you know, I say that the reason I'm friends with Michael is there's like real love there, and like the kind of kindness you give to your friends, to people like that are close to you, to your family, uh, is is, uh, is amazing, man. So that that's one of my favorite things about you. Your intellect aside, your philosophies aside, your humor aside, I think there's a lot of love in you. That's what I really appreciate. But Enough about you. I'm actually getting sick of saying nice things about you. <laughs> you always get what, say. <laughs> uh, you know, I take it all back. Um, I, what, can I say what, one thing? I, 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 this, you're, you're joking, but this is something that's very key and this is something in a random context. It is very disturbing, and this is not by accident, how in our culture it is poo-pooed to show kindness, mm -hmm. earnestness, appreciation to tell someone I, you see this on Twitter where someone's like, you know what? I read your book. It's made my uh, life a lot better. Okay, simp. And there's a real, and this very much comes out of urban uh, like media circles. There's this real disdain for showing appreciation, for showing happiness, for showing kindness. And you don't know, now that I've called it out, you'll notice it. But when you see how common it is and how people can't take compliments, it's the effects of that are extreme and extremely negative. I gotta right? say about Texas, one of Texas the- particular film. So Austin, especially, I mean, I don't really fully know Texas, Texas, but Austin, the friendliness, there's a reason I've been, I've gotten fatter and been drinking a lot is for all the friendliness from random people who are not no longer random, they're right. just friends. And this I've made more friends in one week than I have in my entire stay in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Really? 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. One and a half. You know what the number One two means? <laughs> I've never counted up that high. <laughs> so this is what happens hey, when people so. are free. No. Yeah. When people are free and individualistic, it's exact opposite of what people believe. The more collectivist we are, the less free we are, the nastier we are to one another. Individualists who are pursuing their own happiness are incredibly kind, friendly, and, and supportive people. Okay, and now your task with uh, talk about doing- ba- Talk about to, bad juju. To, pra- to, <laughs> juju. Pra- to, practice, to practice what you preach, uh, is there in your soul that you can find one beautiful thing to say about Iran now that you guys met oh. for the first, second, or third time, or at least in book yeah, format? Is, yeah. So that's the easy one. So what I like about Yaron is that I think he is taking one of the problems with maybe more old school objectivism is that they would just use Rand's arguments in Rand's way. And it's like, you're a parrot. You're not adding anything and you're not going to be better than her. So you give this talk about, I think you compare, compare um, was it Bill Gates to, uh, who was Mother the one? To, to, no, no, who's the one who went to jail? The, the, oh, Bernie Madoff. To Bernie, Bernie Madoff. Yeah. And you make the point, you're like, yeah. Does anyone here really think Bernie Madoff was happy? Like, yeah, he's successful and he's wealthy, but does he go to bed being like, hey, I'm a great guy? No, and his son kills himself with all this tragedy that goes yep. with him. So I think anyone who takes uh, an ideology or worldview that I, I think is of value and adds to it and makes it and articulates it in a new way, I think is a great accomplishment. Um, I, I like how uncompromising you are in uh, your views uh, of, of her uh, of putting her views forward. And I like how you illustrate how um, silly it is to argue against anarchism. So I don't really have to do any of the work. As for you, and this, I've thought this before many times, you are the first person I met who I come at, literally the first, uh, other than my friend who I went to yeshiva with as a kid, who I come at us, there was a line on Friends where Ross and Rachel were thinking of dating, right? Mm-hmm. And they go, if we start dating, it would be like the third date because they knew each other well. And then she's like, yeah, but it'd be like, the th-. so it's like a plus and a minus. Like, yeah, you're fast forwarding to seriousness, but it's also the fact that you and I have the same background. Like I can sit with your own or any of my other friends and try to explain it. The fact that intuitively you and I grew up the same and I know that we have that background in common does create a bond because I feel even if I haven't told you certain things, you are going to understand me a lot better than many of my friends who've known me for a long time. I also really like how I feel, uh, this is a very new age term, but I'm gonna use it. I feel very seen when I talk to you. I think you see me for who I am, you appreciate me for who I am. And I also really like how, and this is increasingly common as my platform increases, so I'm very uh, flattered by this, you understand what I'm trying to do and you don't try to get in the way, even though it's your show. You're like, okay, this guy's a performer. He's doing his thing. People appreciate it. I appreciate it. I'm not going to try to drive the car. And I think some people who are who are bad, and I, I have not encountered this because I would shoot it down, but I think a lot of times people have a tendency when they're hosts to try to drive the car. And it's like, these things work when we come in here, none of us prepare, you prepared by me, none of us talk mm-hmm. beforehand and it like make it spontaneous. And the audience really enjoys that more because they know it's real earnest and dynamic. Yeah, I enjoy having you drive the car, even though 
I believe you don't have a license, so you don't have a... <laughs> and, and you think we're going to crash. Let's no, start. I think he's, he's an extraordinary interviewer because of all those things. He makes you feel visible. Um, and and he does... But he also comes across as really earnest. The, the questions are really questions that you seem really interested in, that you, that, that, that you really want answers to. So, it doesn't come across as canned or I prepared my three book book project yeah, yeah. Uh, Thank questions. you, uh, Thank you, Michael. I was pretty sure that on a desert island, this would end in murder, but now I believe it may- Well, given his comments on anarchy, it might still. It's gonna be human It might sympathy. still. It you might never, still. It might still. The day the is silliness. young. The it's, night is young. It's just beginning. This is a huge honor. I've been a fan of both of you separately for a long time. I really appreciate wasting all this time with me today. <laughs> I love you, Michael. I love you, Iran. Yeah, we love you too. Advice. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Michael Malice and Yaron Brook. And thank you to Ground News, Public Goods, Athletic Greens, Brave, and Four Sigmatic. Check them out in the description to support this podcast. And now let me leave you with some words from Karl Marx. Surround yourself with people who make you happy, people who make you laugh, who help you when you're in need, people who genuinely care, they are the ones worth keeping in your life. Everyone else is just passing through. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.